Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. First Contact Chapter 41 The room was full of tension as the Crete walked in. He was proud in his uniform and rank, the highmost of the heavy armor division. Proud of the way that everyone turned and nodded to him. He was unstoppable bulwark that the enemy could not breach, the thundering guns that destroyed the enemy at range, and friend to the infantry. He had fought on a dozen worlds, commanded tanks since he was barely an adult, and had risen to exalted rank for the Neostapians. What is the issue? Akrit asked the highmost of the infantry. He was one of the unified civilized races, a four-hoofed, four-armed, six-eyed Lanktalian, with mouth tendrils, jowls, and inflatable crests. Highmost for the infantry named Mulawan was the same race as most of the highmosts except for Akrit and the old Iron Feathers, but Akrit demanded respect as the commander of the armored hover tanks that weighed nearly 150 tons each. The Terran Confederate Army forces have arrived. They call themselves Old Metal and V-Corps, and we of the Unified Military Council are trying to discern just how their chain of command and order of battle works. Mulawin answered, his tentacles tight with anxiety as his crest simplated with anger. So far, they've refused to turn over a command to our system defenses highmost, citing that Terran military forces are always under the command of the Confederacy commanders, never local governments. This is outrageous, even if you disregard the fact that the Unified Civilized Races Council is far older than the Confederacy with a larger population. These are our systems, not theirs. They should respect our claim and turn over the command to those units. Hmm, Akrit answered, staring at the hollow tank showing the system. Akrit didn't argue. Tanks were precision instruments of mass destruction that required skilled, dedicated, educated, and experienced commanders to avoid any major problems. If the Terrans were so fearsome as the reputation whispered about in the barracks pods, he could understand their unwillingness to turn over command of their war machines. That's a lot of ships, Akrit thought to himself. They were already deployed and Akrit appreciated the tight formations, the smooth, coordinated way that the Terran fleets moved, and how their first instinct was to identify weak points and shore them up. Do they have armor? Akrit asked. They claim to have armored units. They plan on landing mixed units, something called bolos, are kept separate from the other armored units. They claim that the mere dozen bolos will work and hold the machines at bay in this world with the weight of the heavy metal that they're landing. Nutrak, the old Iron Feathers himself, whispered, I feel for you, having to deal with such arrogance. Admiral, I must insist you put your forces under my command, the system highmost was saying in one corner of the holotank. No, sir, I'll happily interlock your planning with my own, but it'll take time to catch you up on the speed of our capabilities, much less our way of making war. If you would, sir, transmitting your battle plan to us will allow us to work seamlessly with your forces. The Terran was saying, he was represented merely by a pentagon sliced into five blue triangles, surrounded by a black pentagon on five white background. 
As System Highmost, it is I who should be deciding the war plan, the Lanark Talon said, his tentacles trembling in rage. You know nothing of the star system. The Terran Admiral merely gave a sigh, which the translator reported as a sound of frustration and resignation or relief. System Highmost, I am going to explain this to you one more time. My forces are everything from parasite carriers to high-penetration parasite vessels and heavy bomber parasite vessels. I have troops, landing transports, portable logistics spaces, field medical hospitals, everything I need to carry out a defense of the system. The Terran Admiral paused for a moment. To put it plainly, System Hindmost, I don't need you any more than I need burrs in my silky soft fox's tail. I'll tell you to coordinate with the Battle Tactical Net Artificial Intelligence until you can come to grips with reality. Hello, I am Xerxes331, the digital, artificial, sentient. I'm here too, the voice said as the Terran commander's icon winked out and a new one appeared that looked the same but was overlaid on the system mat. An AI? I don't want to talk to a collection of wires and circuits. Get some sentient back on this call at once, the system highmost yelled. What? I'm rude. I'm a fully sentient being who chose to be in the military, not some hash crash trailer made VI. You apologize right this second, the new voice said. I most certainly will not. Return that arrogant and rude Terran commander to this call at once, your posturing computer program. The system highmost roared out, his crests inflating, raising up to his rear hooves and pawing at the air in his forward ones. I am not a computer program. I'm a digital sentience, classified as Homo Digitalis. The voice, Xerxes, answered stuffily. Stop arguing with me. I am the system I most, and you will respect me. You jumped up answering service. Now put the Terran I most back online. The Lanak Talan insisted. Due to your repeated violations of the Terran legal code regarding digital sapiens, I must now inform you that all contact between our two offices shall only be done through writing. Please submit your battle plan for integration within 12 standard hours. Xerxes 331 out. The icon vanished, replaced by an electronic inbox as a timer. You get someone back on this line this moment! The system highmost roared at the communication technician. <clears throat> May I be excused? Agreed asked. The system highmost turned and stared at Agreed, but he had stared into the barrels of the enemy's plasma cannons. He wasn't perturbed by the system's highmost's glare. Yes, it is doubtful that your armored units will be needed. The system's highmost harumphed. Agreed saluted, turned, and left thinking. Actual sapient AIs, without them going insane and homicidal. Ships capable of accelerating far above what I've seen out of our own fleet of vessels. I need information, and the system highs most of this race, too arrogant to see that his six eyes show him. Agreed thought to himself as he climbed into his stuff car. He mumbled to his driver to take him back to the armor command and leaned back in his seat, grooming his closely shaved fur with his hands as he thought. Agreed went over his forces, 2,000 heavy tanks, 3,000 medium tanks, 5,000 light tanks. Well, he didn't have control over the armored personnel carriers. He still watched over the nearly 10,000 of them. At best, the corporation could buy from the Unified Military Service. Our equipment is purchased from the Unified Military Services. While they may be the best money can buy, the UMS only produces what it sells the most. Do the Terrans approach war and military in the same way? If they do not, are they required to each purchase their own vehicles or does the corporate government provide for them? 
How has this changed their approach to major warfare, war material, strategic and tactics? Akrit wondered to himself. He triggered his implant to give him a VR desk as requested and comlinks to the Terran Battle Tactical Network, using his own officer's ID code with the messages. He was surprised to get back with the code five minutes and even more surprised to find that the VI had been assigned to him as a liaison due to the fact that the system highmost had not approved the linkage. Sigh. He disabled his vest and used his implants to connect to the linkage. Greetings, gentle beings. I'm Zukov442, armored vehicle command liaison. A pleasant voice with a curt sounding accent answered, Who do I have the pleasure of communicating with? I'm a Crete, armored highmost unified military forces attached to the Customet Corporation, a Crete said carefully. The voice sounded old and very formal. I am pleased to make your acquaintance. A fellow armor commander, this is good to hear. I am responsible for interlocking your battle plans with the battle plan of the Terran Confederate Armed Services assigned to protect this area. The voice said. Akrit noticed a slight sound of what was interpreted as pleasure in the other's voices. When you are in a secure area, we will go over necessary information. Do you prefer artificial sentience or physical beings to liaise with? Akrit thought for a moment. He was pretty sure that Zukov was an artificial intelligence, and from the speech mannerisms and tone, Akrit was pretty sure it was an old one. Can I have both? Honored Zukov, Akrit asked. I will assign an armored liaison. May I attach a maintenance unit to your forces in order to ensure that you are fully combat ready? I mean, no disrespect to your current logistics, but I have found that what the High Command thinks a soldier needs to fight a war and what is really needed are two different things. Zukov said. Akrit barked aloft. But honored sir, I allocated exactly as many plasma rounds as there are enemy vehicles. How can we be out of ammunition? Exactly, sir, Zukov answered. Am I to understand this is not your first combat engagement as a force leader? No, honored Zukov, it is not. It is my experience that the battles are won or lost by the logistics corps rather than what the commanders will admit, Akrit said, smoothing his fur with his legs. My own biological ancestors, the once living being I was templated of originally, would certainly agree with that. He lived prior to our current post-scarcity existence, Zukov said, to coin a phrase from ancient terror, for the want of a nail a shoe was lost. I do not understand the reference, Akrit stated. The AI uploaded a chain of events that started with the loss of a horseshoe nail due to a poor blacksmithing, resulting in the loss of the shoe, which resulted in the laming of the horse, which caused the rider to fall out of formation, which then caused a hole in the formation, or collapsing into a loss of a kingdom. A second one referred to an ancient cavalry riders keeping a nail in their pockets to spike enemy guns that overran, and one rider did not have a nail, and so the cannon was used to knock off that rider's cannons, resulting in a loss of the battle and the death of the hivemost. I shall frame this and put it in my office, Agreed thought to himself. He had lost tanks to lack of bearings or hoverfan systems. Once the corporation had skimped on the super lubricant and the entire brigade's worth of tanks had their engines and turbofan seeds up, turning the tanks into nothing more than heavily armored and armed emplacements. When I see your, how do you refer to it, heavy metals battle honors, Pete answered. Of course, sir. Zukov answered. What came up next was a long list of not only where the V-Corps, old metal, had fought, but where the officers had fought, where the subcomponents had fought, and where the model and equipment had seen action. 
Agreed noticed that not only was there a written list, but he could view the battles either as a strategic map or VR or EVR if he chose. The links to the whole volumes of action reports, historical analysis, and more. He was forced to leave most of the information in his office computer's buffer. His own system, remarkably, would take nearly two hours to save all the information to local storage. Agreed wasn't surprised. There was nearly 8,000 years of data. Thousands of battle scores of war, Agreed decided to go backwards in chronological order. Sir Lieutenant Colonel Hodgson and his staff are making descent into your unit area. Where will you permit them to enter? They would prefer to be waiting for you, sir, Zukov said, breaking into Agreed's examination of the third battle of Numerous Star, where the V-Corps, old metal, broke the back of the Gosolian Empire and armored units made up of heavy metal. The tactics were much different than the unified military fleet, who preferred head-on engagements with minimal support that used least resources. The battle he was studying was a whirling mass of thrust, counter-thrust, flanking, rear-marching, close air support, infantry, ambushes, orbital missile fire. It looked to accrete more like an entire war, rather than the last battle of the war. No one unit took the honor and glory. It was a group effort and even included Space Navy orbital fire. Glory went to all the banners. Permission granted, and thank you for informing me, honored Zukov, Akrit said. He closed the VR tactical overview of the battle and leaned back again. The Terrans made war much different than the unified military forces. The unified Corporal Council had long ago made a capital crime to target manufacturing or industrial facilities as part of warfare. Yet half of what the Terrans did seemed to revolve around protecting or destroying those assets. The civilian workers were quite often not legitimate targets. Unlike the Council's rules, the Terrans seemed to put effort towards avoiding civilian casualties to the point that there were multiple treaties regarding it. The unified military forces also put the units piecemeal into battle, only committing additional units when it was apparent that the force was approaching 10% of field casualties. The Terrans, however, seemed to have the entire military force interlocked into their planning, even if a unit was holding position and waiting for reinforce other units or exploit any sudden gap in defenses. From what he had seen, Terrans would also fight to the last vehicle, robot or sentient being. No 10% casualties. They fought till the other side withdrew, surrendered, or was destroyed. The 10% rule had been in place in the Unified Military Forces and the Unified Corporate Security for so long that some commanders struck the colors of 9% and a few even at 8%. Akrit found himself wondering just when the Terran morale broke. Or did it break? Akrit's hovercraft settled down and Akrit noted three heavily armed and armored dropships sitting on the airfield normally used for aircraft and air units. Each dropship had four massive armored bipedes and the guard, weapons held in hand, cannons deployed. The dropships had the symbol of a triangle around the cannon bisected by a lightning bolt, and massive armored bipeds had the same symbols over their right and left shoulders, and paint obvious against the chrome. Honored Zukov, where is the Terran liaison? Agreed asked as he climbed out. They are, sir, awaiting your pleasure to the door of the Tactical Operations Command, as they have not been given permission to enter such a sensitive area, sir. The AR responded. I will notify the guard that they may enter, Akrit answered, strangely grateful at the courtesy. He signaled the security forces and the limited security AI and the Terrans could enter their command center. 
Security force being saluted at Crete as he entered the command center, making a beeline for the Tactical Operations Command. When he entered, he saw his first Terran. He wasn't sure what to think. Dean came to mind, focused, with the eyes forward facing his intent was another. They had their hair on their heads, cut short like a Crete's fur, which a Crete immediately appreciated. They all had cybernetic linkages on their temples. Five had cybernetic eyes surrounded by metal. One had a cybernetic arm that appeared to a Crete to be more functional than a normal cybernetic prosthetic, which would barely have tactile feedback. They all wore what looked to be photo-doppel camouflage, which kept making the outline slightly blurry. Three of the eight bipeds carried sidearms, while the other five carried some type of rifle slung across their back. Attention! One of the Terrans barked, turning to give a Crete an odd salute. The others all went ramrod straight, hands down to the sides and heels together, staring, not at a Crete, but directly ahead. Tell them at ease, Zukov whispered. At ease, Agreed said and watched all of their postures relax at the same time. Well, discipline does not mean combat effective, Agreed wasn't it to himself. I am Lieutenant Colonel Hargison. This is Major Addison, my executive officer, the Terran said, introducing each one in turn. Master of the lower grades was present also. Agreed noted that they were all very formal in their posture, attentive speech and address. Agreed was informed that the maintenance units, apparently something called the Core Support Command or COSCOM, was landing to assist with maintenance of the Terran's heavy metal. Agreed was startled that their maintenance unit was the size of three of his own divisions. They had ten times the number of beings in their maintenance unit than Agreed's entire armored host. Partway through, Hodgson stopped, pausing the holo display which showed Agreed the breakdown on the unit structure of the V Core. He looked at Agreed. Sir, if I may ask, which of your units close considered heavy metal? The LTC asked, his body language seeming distressed at Crete. The Crete answered, firm, and his belief that his hover tanks were impressive. These units, the LTC asked, bringing up the image of the heavy tank on the hollow display. The Crete admired it as slowly rotated, 90mm bore heavy plasma cannon, three coaxial rapid-fire plasma guns, and two point defense systems and six 40mm mortars with nearly a dozen shots for each in them. Each tank was 150 tons of layered armor, each hover tank, two gravity engines, a crew of four and a tank high-most, the gunner, the EU, the MCOM, COM, the driver, and all trained to high efficiency. Most crews with hundreds of hours in their tanks, rolling doom who any other dared face them. Yes, COSCOM high-most, Akit said, giving him an equivalent of a sigh of pleasure at the sight of his craft. The Terrans went perfectly still and silent for a moment and Akrit wondered if a predator had entered the room. Is there a problem? Akrit asked through his umplant. It would be better if my biological counterpart explained it, armored highmost. Zukov carefully answered. If there's a problem, rub my muzzle in it and try to use it to comb the fur on my buttocks, Akrit said, putting his best command voice on. I feel, perhaps, that I should let you do a comparison, the LTC said. His voice grave, he made a motion, dividing the hollow tank in half, and made a tossing motion. What appeared in the hollow tank was an absolute nightmare. Over 2,800 tons, treads, graviton assistance, main cannon with a bore of a diameter of over 300 millimeters that appeared to be compressed nuclear blast into directed energy slug that it would impact with the force between at a discretion of the commanders, 11 kilotons all the way up to 22.5 megatons. 
It was capable of a shot every 5 to 11 seconds, depending on the skill of the loader and how hot the chamber had gotten, compared to the 15 seconds for his own gun. Worse, the main gun was capable of mission-flexible munitions, which had a dizzying array. Its armor was thicker than all the armor in a Crete's tanks combined and made up a wall steel laminate. The rest of the weapons were point defense, mortars, vehicle launch rocket systems, anti-infantry weapons. May I? A Crete asked, moving towards the holotank and raising one paw towards the one drivetrain specification box. Of course, armor high most, the LTC said. Agreed touched the box and watched the data spill out. It could move under countergrav, but was designated to move on the treads for a multitude of reasons, half of them psychological. It was capable of burst of speed of up to 180 kilometers per hour and sustained speed of 70 kilometers an hour, which is what expected to do battle at. It could fire inside its own turning circle during a 90-degree turn. It carried the same crew as the Crete's tanks, with the exception of also carrying a maintenance stalls officer who ran something called a Creation Engine Nanoforge during battle. It was a monster. How much do one of these cost? Crete asked, his mind boggling as he was seeing. Roughly 225 million Terran credits, mostly the resource shipments, creation of parts, assembly, not as expensive as, say, the Hercules-class war titan, but still expensive, the Major said. Akrit closed his eyes for a moment. If there was what the Terran military was going to feel to help to defend the planet, his tanks, even the heaviest ones, would be no more than litter in front of the treads. Just the corona from the massive cannon passage would be shred his tank armor. Insanely, their main gun could even hurt other tanks, shoot in near orbit, and maybe even hit a target in orbital approach. Hi, most, the ITC asked. A moment, Akrit said. He thought quickly. Had not denigrated his men or his vehicles, just stated that there was a problem, and that was insanely obvious to Akrit the minute he saw one of their hyper-expensive massive war machines. What is equivalent to my armored vehicles? Akrit asked, opening his eyes. Do not be afraid to ruffle my fur. My men's lives depend on facts, not feelings. The Terrans' positions shifted slightly, and Akrit saw a couple of subtle nods, which the Terrans used to slight a scent. Light attack craft primarily scouting and reconnaissance, the LTC said. Akrit thought about what he had read and witnessed looking at the V-Core, Old Metal's records. He held up his hand for patience and closed his eyes. He looked for and found the Cav Scouts, the third armor, and looked at the battle honors. Hundreds of them. He chose a battle at random and then let it play out and fast forward in his mind. His implant heated with the amount of data and he shut down the link. Cavalry Scout is an honored and risky duty that is often decides the order of battle, the Creed said, drawing himself up in pride. My metal will be pleased to assist in such a manner. The gathered-up Terrans all nodded, and he could see a gleam of respect in their eyes. Akrit knew why. He'd seen the casualties, but he'd also seen how vitally important they were. War is not a place for pride. If one believes they are willing to pay any cost for victory, Akrit thought to himself, I will not sacrifice my men for my own pride. The precursor munitions will not be stopped by a commander's pride, only the application of metal. He waved the tank specs away. Come, gentle beings, let us plan. Third Armor Division, Heavy Metal Memo. Local forces have agreed to act as light scout cav scout forces. 
Commander has an excellent ability to integrate new tactics into his skill set and does not react with pride when defeated in simulations. His heavy armor units are equivalent to light scout vehicles. We'll be integrating his forces with the third armor. Third CASCOM is currently refitting their units to acceptable specifications while retaining existing abilities so as to not erode crew skill levels. Nothing follows. Third CASCOM Old Metal Memo Local vehicles are in need of computer upgrade, VI upgrade, weapon upgrade, ablative armor upgrade, and powertrain upgrade. I'm consulting with local commanders on comparable with comparable tech levels. The vehicles may be soft metal, but the crews are experienced and willing. Nothing follows. System Highmost Orders Armored Highmost Crete, you are to ensure that unified military forces are retaining command of all units in the area of operations. Unified Intelligence Council and Unified Corporate Council both believe that the Terrans are overestimating and overstating the level of technology at their military's abilities. Do not let these aliens displace you from your honor command of heavy armor in the name of the Unified Military Forces and the Kestimat Corporation. Kestimat Corporation Memo Ecrete, remember who holds your contract and who gives you your orders. 108th Military Intelligence, all units, all commanders, imp presence detected in all crowd, attack imminent, attack imminent, attack imminent. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 42 The Lanaktalan were shaking with fury as a Crete approached. The maintenance second highmost tendrils were curled, his crests inflating and deflating, and his hooves clattering on the concrete slab of the motor pool. His uniform was spotless, as always, and all four of his grasping hands were clean. He was in his near-dress uniform, badges, and awards sparking as well as the silver decorations. I must, I must protest most strongly at the fact that you're allowing these aliens to access our vehicles. The maintenance second highmost, one, now and Moo complained. Protest all you want, it's happening, agreed stated flatly, walking towards the large buildings where his tanks were kept. The Terrans have offered to ensure that we are able to work within the tactical computer network as well as are able to coordinate with our forces. An offer I intend on taking them up on. Lowen Mu shuddered with anger. We do not need their help. They haven't even been rated on the level of sapiens. What could they have to teach or offer us? Their plasma compression chambers are 18 times more efficient than ours. Cooldown four times as fast. Their barrels are 340% more durable than ours and are capable of firing five times as fast as the same bore width and chamber height. Ecrete stated, still moving at a steady walk towards the hangar. Just for that alone, I would gratefully invite them over to engage in interspecies sexual intercourse. With that alone, I would invite them over to engage with interspecies sexual intercourse with their choice of either my mother or my sister. The Langtalan inflated his crests with horror. That kind of firepower alone ends battles faster than our weapons. They're focusing a razor stronger, increasing their plasma cannon range. They use laser tip to heat the air up so that it does not attenuate the plasma as much. Why haven't our military researchers come up with a simple of a method to increase range? Agreed asked. He saluted the door guards who were standing next to the massive Terran warborgs who had taken up station recently. I would not presume to know. That's outside and above our pay grade. The Lanactalan harumphed. He paused for a second. And above your birth station. Heavy armor, highmost. The four-legged creature said slyly as it reminded Crete of his place in the scheme of things. 
In combat, there's one station that matters little. All that matters is one's will, skill, and equipment. Crete stated, the maintenance second high most harumphed as they entered the hangar and with a great chaos. Terrans swarmed everywhere, moving about quickly, sometimes at a jog, sometimes running, carrying parts, tools, equipment, climbing on the tanks, working under them, on the sides, conversing with the crews, attaching equipment to the tanks or opening sections to gain access to critical systems. They called out to one another with their voices, and Akrit could tell that there wasn't thick with implant and comrade discussions. He could see VR keyboards, manuals, schematics glimmering in the air, and as he watched, one Terran turned his palm to project a schematic for several interested technicians to lean forward and examine. The maintenance officers, primarily Lanak Talons, were all clustered against the back wall, staring at the humans with some of their lesser species as they worked. They are causing chaos. You must stop them, heavy armor highmost, the Lanak Talon said, wringling his four hands together. A Crete's brain, without the help of its implant, quickly deduced what everyone was up to. He'd seen plenty of maintenance done after the battlefield when the maintenance techs were trying to get ready for the corporation inspection most high's arrival. Yes, they are, a Crete mused, heading towards his own heavy tank. His crew were watching a Terran affix something on the inside of the rear glasses, where the clumpel zone airspace was located and was supposed to keep EFP rounds from gutting his tank. Die! His gunner, Cheap Peak, snapped. Relax, Agreed said, waving a paw. He climbed up to the tank, ignoring the Lenac Talon's plaintive pleas to stop the Terrans. He looked at the driver. How's our vehicle? The Saurian blinked in his clear inner eyelids twice and then gestured for Agreed to follow him into the tank. Once they were both inside, the Saurian, driver second-class Selson, made a gesture of irritation. The Terrans, they try to hide it, but they are angry with our maintenance crews, he said. Why is that? Speak freely. We have been through many battles together. For you to worry about combing my fur, Agreed said. The Terrans claim that we have armor and frame microfractures, that the alloy of our hulls is showing stress, and that our engine is not running at optimal performance, and that our computer systems are sadly lacking. Salson hissed. Rather than rub my tail in it, their maintenance chief ordered our first crew to fix it, and when they refused, saying that it was within company tolerances, he ordered his own men to carry out the repairs. Akrete waited for a moment, and Salson slapped his tail tip twice. A habit Akrete knew meant that their being was stressed. They showed me, with our own instruments, how badly our vehicles had been maintained. I requested they repair our vehicle as if there was a Terran one, and do you know what the maintenance chief told me? The Crete sighed. I assume he said no. Salson slapped his tail again. He told me, looking me right in the eye, bound by steel and blood, to lessen you is to lessen myself. Our lives are in one another's hands. It will be done. And ordered his men to get to work. A Crete cocked his head in confusion and then flicked his ears in assent. All right, so... Uh... Hi, the voice interrupted their discussion. It came from a command panel, and Akrit looked at it as it was Salson looked around the cramped tank compartment. A computer-generated face, a blank icon usually, usually used by the United Communications Agency, was on his command communications panel. Greetings, Akrit said. It's your AVI, a war boy, Zukov whispered to him over the implot. He's just been hashed, so he'll be just curious about the tank. The image jumped from display to display and Akrit motioned for Salsen to relax. Finally, the Archon stopped and looked at Akrit. Dab all the way. It will be done. The image spoke and bobbed up and down while showing the ruin for pleasure. 
Welcome aboard. You are installed to assist us, agreed asked. I work best with bio-troops, the war boy chirped. Together, we work best. I compute a 30% increase in effectiveness. Salson raised his tail cautiously. What if we were just moving towards the battle and I suddenly went to maximum acceleration, computer? I would double-check the scans to see what I missed and assume how your predator instincts had alerted you to a threat that I cannot detect. The AVI said, Did you know a human can tell if someone is staring at them, even if one staring at the human is hidden from sight and behind the human? Nobody knows why. Salzen twitched his tail again. That is very interesting. What should we call you? Bouncy, agreed said, watching the little icon of the AVI, advanced VI, bounce eagerly from screen to screen. I like the name, Bouncy answered. Indeed, agreed looked at the VI's icon. Is there anything else? Our tank is in need of immediate repair, refurbishment, service, life extension, and refit, Bouncy said, sounding sad. We are at less than 20% battle effective. Should I file a maintenance report? Yes, agreed said. File it with the Terrans at 3rd Coscom. He turned to Salson. I shall be outside the tank. I wish to see the progress. As you wish, I most, Salson said. As the creek climbed out, he could see the VI, Bouncy, the warboy, going through the systems and running maintenance depot-level diagnostics, somehow getting by the corporate security lockouts. The bay was still full of chaos, with the normal team still against the far wall. They started clustering up by rank, and Akrit knew that they would soon be complaining. A Terran, who looked more cyborg than Bio, came up, nodding. General Trucker, 3rd Armored Division, you must be the armored high-most Akrit. The new Armored Scout Recon Division CO, the big Terran said. Akrit avoided the instinct to cower down in the face of a predator's stare that intense. Say yes, sir, and don't salute, Zukov suggested. The AI followed up with uploading the Terran Confederacy military etiquette to Akrit. Akrit noticed it all seemed to be for keeping highly aggressive predators from going at each other with knives over rank disputes. Yes, sir, Akrit said. The big Terran nodded. Third Coscom tells me that through no fault of your own, you are in need of depot maintenance, he said. Yes, sir, that is correct, Akrit said. Do you have enough simulations for all your men? I noticed you have 10,000 vehicles divided up between heavy, medium, and light designations. Can you put all of your men in simulators? General Trucker asked, watching the maintenance crews work. Akrit shook his head. Only 20% of my men are expected to take part in any conflict, he said. That may be how you're used to it. B Corps takes a different approach, the general said. My military liaison, Zukov 442, made me aware of that, Agreed said. 442? Good man, that one. Steady, headed, innovative. Works well with non-digitals. An excellent mentor for you during your integration period, the general mused. You two getting along? Yes, sir, Agreed said. Excellent. The general looked around the bay. We'll get you interlocked, armored highmost, don't you worry about that. Despite the fact that the Terran had been mostly bored-looking, his voice calm and unruffled, Akrit believed him. The first simulator practice had been a disaster. Akrit's unit had been virtually wiped out. His commanders had made every possible mistake. Worse, the 3rd Armored Division General himself had been riding in tank as they used the VR for practice. When he showed up at the after-action briefing, Akrit firmly believed that he'd be dressed down at least, replaced at worst. He gathered up with the other division commanders and waited for the general for V-Corps. The Trianad, the name of General Nordrak, stared at fast-forward reply of the hollow tank for almost ten minutes. Finally, general stopped it at the words and simulation and looked around. That went, uh, suboptimal. 
the general said, his voice calm and unruffled and sounding more like a human's than a large mantis-like insect. He let a small white stick with the crete that learned was some kind of stimulant and appetite suppressant and painkiller that was used through inhalation of the smoke. A crete waited for his lash to hit. General Trucker cared to explain what happened. General Nadrak, Ax asked mildly, pointing with his smoke. Trucker lifted a can and spit some kind of crude juice into it before answering. A cascade of failures and mistakes and bad decisions that happens in any unit's first integrated exercise. He shrugged. We let our armored recon get chewed up and then acted all surprised when the enemy flanked us and wiped out our logistics. The burning white stick got jabbed at him and a Crete stood up straight as his hips and spine allowed him. What went wrong, armored highmost? General Nadraak asked. I outran my artillery support. Several of my commanders refused to listen to their vehicles' VIs and called in airstrikes, orbital strikes, or artillery strikes on their own units. An entire brigade ran out in front of the moving Bolo company. When we took 15% casualties, my men tried to withdraw, as is the unified military forces policy, and the enemy pounded us like scrap while we ran. Crete said honestly. The general lifted an antenna as he inhaled the smoke. When Crete finished speaking, the general blew out of smoke and the mandibles and nodded. Brutal, but truthful. I like that in an armor officer. He jabbed the tube to the holotank. Well, Unit 9823JWS, you have an explanation for what happened to the entire brigade of my recon jaws. A slightly mechanical voice came over the holotank. We had not been loaded up with the proper IFF and they were mistaken for precursor machines. I have remedied that by ordering the brigade mates to load up their allied vehicle profiles and IFF files. There was a moment of calm. I was unaware the command had not loaded them. You didn't ask for them either, Jaws. The general chided. You're a brand new CO. That's why we're doing this shakedown. The general turned to the 19th Artillery CO. What happened with you? Why didn't you autocorrect? When my controller went to verify the coordinates, they were given a friendly unit's present override code. The general said. Agreed felt himself bridle up. Those idiots hadn't passed the request through him and they had used the code normally used when the units is being overrun. I shall rectify that, sir, Agreed stated. All right, gentle beings, General Nordraak said. Let's go to work. We have a long way to go. Agreed found himself nodding. He refused to embarrass himself or his men again. What happened to Crete? The general Nadraak said, lighting his smoke. Should have asked for a sono scan of that bay if I had been reported a Jotun crashed in the ocean. I didn't expect it to lunge up out of the ocean, Crete admitted. I didn't expect my commanders to retreat rather than open fire. What happened to Crete? General Nodrak asked, bringing out his pack of cigarettes that apparently were imported all the way from Terra. My men had turned off the VIs at the orders from their brigade commanders and were unfamiliar with the map designation for Minefield. How did I lose three quarters of my recon to friendly fire in the first day, Crete? General Nodrak asked, exhaling a smoke from his mandibles. It all went to excrement, sir, Crete said. One of my brigade commanders mistook a friendly unit for an enemy unit and opened fire. The rest of my commanders panicked and tried to retreat or open fire. The general, Nordrak, stared at him as a long moment, his compound is seemingly serious. If you want to replace your commanders, I am most, now is the time. 
Akrit watched as the Lang Talon officers leave, all threatening to destroy his career, all reminding him that he was a neo-sapient and that he would rue the day that he ever joined the UMF. What should I do, Zukov? Akrit asked. Promote from within, list 10% of your vehicles as combat replacements, begin training. Let it be known that any officer who fails in his duty shall be replaced. As high most, you could have them executed, which I approve of, but Terran military code of uniform justice prohibits. Just assign any failures of officers to light tanks and put them in risky positions. AI told him. Crete nodded. The general lit his smoke up and pointed at Crete. What happened? Crete stood up and straight as possible. I convinced the enemy through electronic warfare that my light tanks were bolos, pulling them out of position and into an artillery place minefield where the anti-air could not counter our close air support. I then had my men go full stealth and fall back to Rally Point Gulf, he Crete said. The general exhaled the bluish smoke turning to General Trucker. So general, how exactly did you lose half of my heavy metal before even deployment? Trucker spit out a cut juice into the can and shook his head. I didn't trust my recon and ordered the dropships to land us at Hotel, walking straight into an ambush. Nordrak nodded, stalking around the hollow tank in a very human movement despite his four legs. We're getting better, gentle beings, Trennut growled. A few more and we'll have actual vehicles. Akrit was sat on the back of his tank, chewing his ration. Less than a hundred feet above him was the combat talon ripped across the sky, followed by a dozen of its comrades. Akrit watched the overpowered aircraft go by, his ration tube in his mouth. Ten minutes, sir, Zukov told him. Thank you, Zukov, he said. He spit his ration tube into the churned-up grass and climbed back into his tank. He looked at his crew and gave them a Terran-esque smile. Let's see what General Clickitick is trying to hide from everyone. His crew gave him the same expressions. Bouncy jumped on the command console and a creech driver made sure the stealth systems the Terrans had installed were running before firing up his engines, so he didn't attract the battleload of missiles again. So, Jaws, what happened? the general asked. I had not expected the highmost decree to use his recon skimmers to drop depth charges on me as I crossed the channel. The bolo answered. He used the stealth sheathing on the charges and the very first one detonated between my hull and my barrel of my hullbore. He delivered enough firepower to cripple Jotun before I could surface. The general nodded, moving to the next point. Akrit felt a gold burning pride for his men. Akrit sat on the edge of a hatch, chewing on an empty ration tube and staring at the maintenance crews running at the top to correct the defects identified when the tank crews were inspecting their vehicles that morning. Each tank crew helped their maintenance crew at the work, adding manpower to the job. Akrit ignored how many of his armored units had the V-core blue triangles pentagram shaved into fur, tattooed onto skin, dyed into feathers, or scarred into scales. The morale was high. Even doing maintenance and constant drills, the tank crews had been trained to care for their tanks, doing the small jobs that were easy to do without special tools, including repairing hover skirts and even replacing the broken fan blade. Bouncy, what's on the agenda for the rest of the day? Akrit asked, considering giving his crews a night off to go to town. I don't know. You're supposed to, um... The AVI started to say, It suddenly bounced through Crete's panel and flashed twice for attention. Incoming message from Tremulant. Put it on my implant, Crete said, spitting out the ration tube and sliding into the commander's seat. Both had the same message. 
Attack imminent. All troops ready station. Attack imminent. Load war plans. Go to Bravo. Download the war plans, Bouncy, Akrit said, triggering the elevator to lift him out of the tank. Salson, as soon as the maintenance techs give you the clearance, get this thing ready to roll. Crete saw the humans working faster somehow, putting armor back on, tightening bolts, fixing hover skirts. In some places, 10 or 20 humans swarmed a tank, ripping it apart and adding to it replacing parts and putting it back together. Green, 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 one of the Terrans at the back of a Crete's tank yelled, snapping it three times. The Terrans all scattered, running to tanks that had only had a pause count of techs working on it. His crews climbed past him, dove into the hatch, and got into their positions. Zukov, redesignate my unit as HHQ Armored Cavalry Scout Brigade. Redesignate the rest of my units as discussed, Akrete said. Redesignating, Zukov said. Third Armor Commander's compliments, sir. Signal when deployed. Uh, most high, a signal came over the implant broken. Oh, great. It was Sarklakrik, the third most high in charge of the light stealth tanks. Akrete, go ahead. He said he had considered replacing the Kantua repeatedly, but his crew were more excellent soldiers and he didn't want to mess it up. Great, I'm starting to talk like the humans too, he thought. I object, we are heavy armor division, with divisions of medium and light tanks. We are heavy armor, not some kind of reconnaissance force. Sa'alatik moaned, I request permission to rejoin the heavy tanks again, not this flotilla of floaters. Compared to the Terran tanks, we're lucky to be on considered ammunition. Crete snapped. Get off my implant and get your at crew ready. We'll see what my cousin has to say about this. The Lanak Talon threatened before cutting out. I have disabled all non-military communications that are not rooted through me, sir, Zukov said, and maintaining proper communications net procedure. Additionally, I have assigned a code string to ensure that the Thurheitmost Salatex vehicle is placed under proper MCOM. Thank you, Zukov, Crete said. He enjoyed the speed and efficiency of the AI. Akrit turned to the climb back into his tank, standing on the seat so his upper body was outside of the tank's hull. He watched the Terran tech suddenly stream away like a flock of birds, and the floor was completely clear for the odd crewman running for his tank. Akrit shook his head. It would have taken a normal maintenance crew almost an hour to make their way to the back wall where they were already huddled. They would have stopped for conversations to establish dominance over each other's lesser species or stopped to berate tank crewmen. Instead, the hangar bay looked like it was deserted of everything but the tanks. War plan loaded, sir, Zukov suddenly said. Thank you, Zukov, Agreed said. He ducked down and looked into his communications officer. Open a unit-wide channel. Open, sir, the officer said. I helped. I shut down all communications outside each tank so that they can't talk to other people. The AVI bouncy said. Yes, yes you did, the contact reassured it. All units, all units, Agreed said. His men were used to him abandoning honorifics. Precursors are fighting their way to our planet as they speak. The Corporate Military Council and our own Unified Military Service Council are still engaged in arguments even as space shakes with thunder and combat. Akrete thumped the activate ruin for the movement plan and someplace called Staging Point Bravo and kept talking. The Terrans have dispensed an arguing and instead are ordering their units, of which we are to consider ourselves a part of, to protecting this world, these people, this system. We are still under my command and I will not spend your lives without reason. You know this. I have proved in a dozen battles with you. 
agreed Sid. We are to act as part of a larger whole, so that we can interlock together like a finely made engine. Like a whole of a tank, we are greater than the sum of our parts. We are the first armored scout cavalry division. We shall find the enemy, seek him out, so that he may be destroyed. We do thus in an honor, as our scanners are tuned, our eyes are sharp, and our guns are ready. Move out. It will be done, brought back over the comlinks. Creed noted that the formation the Terrans expected was an odd one, staggered wedge with firing orders. It was one long practice, but for his recon division, it was odd to use. It meant that it was real, precursors were here, and expected to make landfall. Akrit slid an empty ration tube out of his chest pocket and started chewing on the end. Terminal con alert, 50-50, Goliath sin system, double attendant numbers, prepare for battle. Nothing follows. V-core alert, unknown number of Goliaths heading towards planet, expected to be four or more. Commanders, load up battle plan, Alpha 5-9er. It will be done. Nothing follows. United Military Forces Alert The size of the Precursor Forces is too much to defend against. All commanders to withdraw at your own discretion. All third highmost and above commanders and company executives or higher are permitted to retreat from the system at own discretion. End of chapter First Contact Chapter 43 Akrit sat on the back of his tank, chewing on an empty ration tube, his palm turned up, so his palm implant, which had only been installed a week before the attack happened, could display a wireframe VR hollow above his palm. His unit had fought his way through the night, getting close enough to the vehicle's upgraded scanners could spot the enemy, then racing away, positioning themselves to call in orbital strikes, artillery, close airstrikes, or even heavy bombarding. Always moving, never stopping, never letting themselves get pinned down. Using their upgraded speed, their improved stealth, and their constant training to always be where the enemy didn't expect them, and to never be where the enemy fire was. So I ordered you to scan that valley, not from the ridge, but from downside the valley to prevent you from showing your profile to anyone on the other side of that rise. I ordered you to use stealth drones in front of you at a range of no further than 100 meters, Crete said without taking his eyes from it. Instead, you led an entire battalion of recon tanks up over the top of the hill on top of that ridge while running unstealth drones at maximum speed into the valley. The VR hollow hissed, showing the precursor fire ripping into the flanks of his men, destroying a quarter of them before the lead vehicle turned and fled, turning its back on the precursor. The other vehicles turned to their rear to fire and began to explode. According to the icons, nearly 30 of the 50 light tanks had been destroyed without ever identifying what kind of precursor force was in there. Worse, the precursors now knew that he knew that they were there, and that he knew that they knew. The drones had been wiped out. The 108th military intelligence could guess at what was in that valley, but couldn't be sure. Akrit didn't want to have what happened to his men what happened to the old iron feathers and mistake a precursor vehicle for something else. Clenching his fist and turning off the handy implant, Akrit turned in place, swinging his legs off the back of his tank, staring down to the ground. Alt Luck, the third most highest former CO of the 4th Light Armor Recon Battalion, was kneeling on the ground, all four of his legs folded beneath him. All four of his arms were bound painfully behind his back, and two of his six eyes were swollen. What happened to Alt Luck? 
Crete asked, still chewing on the empty ration tube. We're taking casualties. We had to withdraw, the Langtelen protested. Rewind the hollow a bit. Why were you taking casualties? Crete tried. The enemy spotted us, Saltgluck moaned. Why did they spot you? Agreed asked mildly, slowly drawing out his sidearm. Their senses must have been better than we thought. Saltlick said, his voice low and slow, all six eyes rolling in their sockets. Or, I don't know, could it have been that you were silhouetted against the rising sun on top of a ridge I explicitly ordered you to stay away from? Agreed asked. Saltlick's tongue came out and wetted his jowls and tendrils. They must have spotted the drones. You mean the high-speed drones you used instead of the stealth drones that I ordered? Agreed said. He shook his head. And then what did you do? Instead of turning to face the enemy and backing off the ridge, our tanks go 22% faster moving forward than backwards. The third highmost tried. And your forward battle screens and armor should have ensured that you survived the shots. Instead, you ordered the flank speed, which drains the battery screens, meaning which shot when the rear armor penetrated into the interior spaces, as you had ordered to reactivate armor disabled to, and I quote, save corporate funds. I Crete said slowly, your decisions, from start to finish, cost me 30 crews, experienced crews, beings I know personally, including your executive officer. We have replacements for the tanks. New crews can be drawn from the conscription order of workers, Saltluck answered. Welders and agricultural robot supervisors are not tankers, the Crete snarled. The Treonard are right. There are just some things about the Terran snarl. Your ill-advised decision killed tankers, the Crete finished. There are a million more to take one's place, the Langtanet said, repeating the line of the UMF said the way of instilling in the knowledge that the UMF's legions were endless. My cousin, he tried, is not here, Agreed said, and stared off at the other officer. That is three times in a single day period that you have displayed cowardice under fire. And what will you do, Agreed? Send me back to the rear. I'll just evacuate this pathetic turtle and leave you here to die facing the precursors. The Langtelen answered. The bovine spit on the ground. You dare not to. The pistol's retort was quiet compared to the thunder of the last few hours. The hypervelocity dart hit Saltluck in the head, blowing it apart, dropping the Langtelen to the ground. One hoof kicked. Agreed looked at the dead officer's crew. Take command of your tank. Leave in ten minutes. He looked at the other's gathered officers, noticing the satisfaction on their faces, even the other Langtalans. Cowardice only has one reward. It shall be done, they all shouted and then turned as one and started towards the tanks. The tank jerked to the right, throwing a crete against the command chair. The hypersonic rounds tore apart the trees behind him as the 150-ton bulk of his hover tank shattered the trees in front of him, the fans howling like damned souls. Bouncy sent a tingle into his hands. Fire! Agreed yelled unnecessarily as his gunner fired the main gun. Agreed knew that Bouncy had signaled the gunner to fire at the same moment as Agreed's hands had tingled. Shut out, the gunner said. Cheap peek, called out. Direct hit, target killed, Bouncy called out. Salson yanked the tank into another dodge, bouncing deliberately off a bigger tree. The battle screen exploding it into burning chunks. The hypervelocity shots tore apart the copse of trees instead of the tank. Got trucker on the line, Hesletech called out from the Com EU MCOM spot. 
Agreed, the tank commander snapped. Trucker here, what have you got? The Terran sounded stressed. Target, Bouncy yelled. Precursor, every infantry with vehicles, no air support, no anti-aircraft. Agreed, called out. Shout out, Chief Peak yelled. 226 artillery is being jammed, I'll relay it to 22 first. Trucker yelled. In the background, Agreed heard someone call out, Main gun out! Good hit, good hit, still active. The channel dissolved into static from Trucker's end. Agreed, can you hear me? Trucker asked. Give me that grid. Shot out. Agreed, felt Hessler tech load into his implant and he shot out a big Terran general. Repeat, Trucker said in repeating the numbers. All one sixth elements go to rapid fire. Break that big bastard in half. The Terran suddenly roared. Direct hit, target down. Agreed saw the icon blink in his vision, letting him know that the camo wasn't for him. The big Terran had simply not cut Crete out of the link. Agreed, he's still there, Trucker asked. Target, still here, sir, Agreed said. Shot out. 90 seconds, button up, Trucker yelled. It sounded like a human was half death. The tank jerked, moving again, jerking at Bouncy and Salsen's commands. Direct hit, target down, Bouncy called out. Agreed had noticed that Bouncy looked more like him, only made a chrome and burning blue neon with a V-Core logo on his head. Gimme HHQ Brigade, Agreed yelled to Houselet Tech. Target, open channel, Houselet Tech called out. Shut out. All elements, 90 seconds, incoming rainstorm. Agreed called out over his comm link. He hit the stud to close his hatch, which he had left open, to stuck out the vapors of the smoke from the plasma cannon venting slightly into the crew cabin. Target down. The hatch slammed shut, no longer slowly winding shut and instead decking of the blockade of the micropulse leaders as and yanked it down. Agreed stomped the pedal that normally would have overrided the gunner, bringing all the screens back to life. He ground the plas ration tube between his molars. The forest was burning around them. His units were moving fast, blowing through the ambush. His last unit was almost clear, and followed in training as he was rotating as they left the enemy, the battle screeners exploding trees as they defected and absorbed shocks. His units all pocked, cratered, and from the hypervelocity rounds, but none of his tanks were mission killed, and none of his men were seriously injured. His own tank was following, pouring fire into the enemy, who was trying to link up with the larger forces that had heavy vehicles but couldn't move through the canyons where the one other 32 was dug in. 30 seconds, Bouncy squealed. Shut out, target destroyed, Bouncy added. His men were clear and he signaled an all-stop. All power to forward and hull battle screens and ground down. Incoming fuel, air and armor penetrators, Bouncy called out. The forest erupted into fire. Here comes the rain, Agreed thought to himself. Explosions blossomed from the starboard battle screen of Agreed stood up. Half of his hatch, his helmet left below. The precursor aircraft shot by, winding around for another shot. The point defense roared as it but missed. The hover fans roared at max axel as the 150-ton hover tank slid to a starboard and Chipik cursed, trying to line up the shot. Sensors were useless. Thermal masking smoke, droplets, suspended micro-crystal prisms, chaff, and more filling the air. Chipik had read an eye on an optical sight. Bouncing was fully engaged helping health deck in keeping the EU running since air superiority was still in question. Maglev had been built by the precursors from a Jotun that had slammed down into the bay of its devastators and destructors and jinn. 
It was ferrying war vehicles, ammunition, supplies, and only the Picos knew what. Salson drove the tank through the wooden buildings, blowing through the hopefully empty housing. The battle screen, throwing away burning debris, even as the tank's fans ground the debris into dirt. The Crete winced, hoping nobody was taking shelter in the buildings. The battle screen would do the flesh and bone what it did to wood and plaster steel. The tanks of the 1-1 HHQCO burst out of the wooden buildings, rotating and putting the power in to make the tight swing curve so that they were racing next to the train. The last tanks started pouring fire into the train cars, into the tracks as they raced after their fellows. The trail was widening, moving between the tight piles of old mining tailings from when the area had been an active lithium salt mine. Engine up ahead, Chakip yelled his face pressing into the firm cushion on his sight. The avian, already a thick scabs around his eyes and cut on the side of his face from slamming around in the tank while using his sight. Fire it well, a creep bellowed over the comlink, using the two-centimeter four-barrel mag-excel coaxial of the train cars. It tore through the metal and something exploded, throwing debris against the battle screen. Chod out, Chapik yelled. The engine exploded, jumping the track, and the entirety of the 1-1-H yanked away from the maglev train as it began to derail. Several threw shots into the cars coming at them, blowing them apart. In a perfect world, I would have been able to stop the train, load it with atomics, and then blow the Jotun sky high. Akrit thought to himself. The aircraft came roaring back. The gunner of the 1-1-2-3 blew up the air with a main gun shot. Commander's compliments to crew 11-3, a Crete sent over to the voice comm. The night burned around them as they raced for the next target area. The air was full of ticking and cooling of smium and wall steel as the tanks slowly cooled. The crews crawled over them, patching the fan housings where it needed, cleaning the air filters, checking the hoses, recompiling battle programs under a watchful eye of the VIs, eating or drinking where they could, moving to the opposite side of their tank to eliminate waste, or just trying to relax. One four-fourths ordnance company was reloading the tanks, passing up ammunition from their armored vehicles. They men and women in power chassis worked fast, chattering to one another as they worked. A Crete was chewing on an empty ration pack, staring up at the night sky. Streaks, blots of light, all lit up in the dark violet sky. A bright flash, the size of a credit chip, let Crete know that something big had just blown up. He was listening to the chatter of his crews over his implant. The command codes the Terrans had loaded into it proved useful. They were in high spirits, even though the 11-6 had caught a massive magnetic accelerated hypervelocity shot that had blown clear through the tank. The anti-spalling liner the Terrans had installed on the tanks had kept the crew alive, but the tank's commander had been vaporized above the waist. The gunner had lost his tail, and the driver's armor was the only thing that had saved his life as the round punched out through the other side. One crew, one crew in over 24 hours, out of 8,000 tanks and crews. A Crete knew his luck couldn't last forever, but right here, at that moment, the universe felt perfect to him. Off in the distance, the thunder of an orbital strike rumbled as the faint flash spread across the night sky. A Terran heavy cruiser had gotten a shot at the Jotun and took it. From the chatter on a Crete's implant, the Jotun was suffering chain reaction explosions. Its point defenses were down and the artillery units of the V-Corps had already parted the let loose the fire missions. 
The night was perfect. The ion bolt fired from the 200mm cannon slammed into the battle screen, slamming Akrit painfully against the edge of his hatch. Akrit swung his 2cm autocannon around, snarling through bloody teeth and triggering the coaxial. The density collapsed metal shard sheared the armor away from the vehicle, ripping a deep gouge into the side. The hypervelocity rounds connected to the coaxial and the armored vehicle for a second. The 11-4 took a shot and the vehicle exploded, debris flashing on the battle screens. They were passed and Crete could see another vehicle, this one facing away. Crete held down the trigger, hosed a burst into the machine as Selsen fluttered the fans and nudged the ground with the forward port fan, skewing the tank around. The machine exploded as a mag-driven sabo slashed into the edge of the port battle screen, not disrupting it, but instead bleeding energy into it, which the battle screens dumped into the capacitors of the tank. Akrit snarled at the empty thin plast ration tube held between his teeth. He saw another vehicle as slashed coaxial cross its right before Akrit slammed the plasma cannon right into it. They were all past the 11H running for it, deploying chaff, jammers, micropismist, and a good old thermal masking smoke. Head count, a creak growled over his implant, his teeth still warring in the tube. I came back. No casualties. Right net, break net, rapid viper, do you read? A message pushed across the entire net. It was Trucker himself. Behind the Terran's voice, a creak heard, shot out. Hasseltech took boost at the gain, deployed the comm drone, firing into the low clouds that were dropping ash-filled rain on them. Rapid Viper 6 here, Akrit answered. We hear you. You where TACOM says you are? Trucker asked. Target, Akrit wasn't sure if it came from Trucker's link or his. Akrit checked the screens quickly, only off by about a hundred meters, but that could matter. He thumbed the update screen. Roger that, Papa Dragon. Listen close. You know that check you signed? Trucker asked. Crap, Akrit thought. Human curse words were satisfying to let on the human snarl. That check? Oh boy. Roger that, sir, Akrit said. Check caching time, sir. Punch up 13th Evac Hospital. Trucker ordered. Bouncy threw it up on the pulse from Trucker's ID for it to the AVI. Akrit pinged it as he had it. Okay, there's a force of heavy metal leading in on it. Can't get out. I have only one thing in range to get in the way of the heavy metal. You can count on us, sir, Akrit said. Shout out, rang the both Akrit's cabin crew and trucker's transmission. Passing data to your war boy, trucker snapped. I've got elements in 8th infantry and 3rd armor heading in, but they won't get there in time. Just slow them down. You don't have to slam bang them, just toe to toe, rapid viper. We're on it, sir. Rapid Viper, en route and out, Akrit said. Bouncy threw the scans up on the data pads that still worked around Akrit. Akrit pursed his lips. They were big machines, two thousands to Akrit's two hundred. They outweighed him by a factor of twenty, at least. The only good thing was that they were track-motivated with repulsor assets. Maser cannons on the front, plasma cannons on the side, and a single mag lock on the back. Point defense was thick, though. Battle screens, armor's thick, though. No reactive armor, that was something. No indirect fire, but forward-facing rocket pods. They all had gun pods around them, vehicle-sized drones mounted hypervelocity cannons. They were outnumbered, counting the pods, 30 to 1. All 1-1 one, one elements, the Rapid Viper 6 incoming battle plan update, fire off masking and go to flank speed. 
Agreed said. He put what they were trying to do to protect. Our wounded are there. One five and one seven's men are there. It's a check cashing time, as the Terrans say. Salson whipped the tank around like it was a hockey puck on ice, gunning, then fans. Deep shot stroked his sole remaining feather for luck. A Crete put on an empty plas ration tube in his mouth. It was going to get an ugly fight. Thirteenth evac was just beyond the hills, which meant that they couldn't get their line of sight weapons and incoming metal. Their air superiority was still in question, and most of the aircraft were busy pounding two different Jotuns that were spewing fire and molten metal. Accrete worked up the plan as best he could, warning drivers to stay low, ordering the warboys to go to maximum deflection on the topside battle screens, and ordering the warboys to rehash the entire battalion's crypto, ordering the gunners to load all heavy war shot that they'd largely been saving. He ordered them to focus on the tracks, the repulsors, and knock them out and keep going. Stay mobile. Stay alive. He finished the transmission with, It will be done. He got back a resounding reply from every tank. It will be done, sir. The 206 tanks of the 1-1 recon roared through the afternoon, their vans churning and the grass and bushes into puree and spraying it around. They hit the beginning of the hills and split up according to Ekrit's plan, going to full stealth. The battle was ugly, but it wasn't fast as Ekrit's tanks caught up the precursor machines with their electronic pants down. Gunners, with their skills razor sharp after two days of fighting, disabled nearly three times their number as they raced into the enemy, taking them from the rear. Target! Fire! became the watchword, but the precursors didn't die alone. A Crete watched as a tank went down with a white cross of a mission kill. It still moved, though. Gouting flames and main gun kept firing. It took another hit, slewed the side, fired again, and blew up. The Red X covered two, then another, then another. The 1-1 one -one was clear, spinning in place, tilting the fans to push the tanks back towards the enemy as the guns fired, roaring back in their guns thundering aimed at the tracks or repulsive pods. A Crete ran the coaxial, the same as Halstek, blowing pods out of the air, raking the tracks, slamming plasma bolts and mag shots against the armor. Another mission kill. The driver slewed it out of the formation, bouncing off the precursor machine, the tank spinning but getting clear. It's burning two fans, trying to keep the air cushion but still firing its gun. Selectlik's old crew put in a heavy tank after the light tank had blown the primary engine. They kept firing into the precursor vehicles until three of the enemy vehicles targeted the ground tank. It burst into flame, and one one was clear. The precursor machines had abandoned their advanced, stung too hard. Over 25% of their forces and almost all of their pods already destroyed. One precursor machine tried to deploy a pod, and somehow Salatik's old crew put one more plasma shot downrange, hitting an open pod bay. The precursor blew up at the same time as the wounded UMF tank exploded into shards. Back in, and into the thunder and fire, the crash of metal and the scream of overloaded hover fans, the stench of burning battle screens and scorched metal. One one came out of the other side, but this time the precursors gave chase. A Crete had planned for that, and the tanks of 1-1 swam between the lower hills that had once been debris piles for a massive factory that had been reclaimed two centuries before. Black Horse en route, hold the line, brothers, came over the comlink. Heavy metal incoming, roared the warborgs of the 8th Infantry. 
Agreed looked at the tactical display and knew that his men broke off the precursor machines, found the one one's rear arcs and concentrate fire and not a single one of Agreed's men would survive getting out of the hills. Stick with the freaking war plan, men! Agreed roared over the comlink. It will be done for the 13th. For his men roared back. Agreed's men began making figure eights, turning the machines in circles, forcing them to try go over the hills and firing into the underbellies of the precursor machines. The precursors kept exploding, but not fast enough. Another tank was killed. One mission killed, but then crushed beneath the treads of the precursor tank that it had just gutted as gravity pulled the dead precursor down the hill. The commander was firing the coaxial even as the precursor tread slammed down on his tank. A round hit, rowing through the battle screen, slamming into the hull of the turret. A coppola rang out of the inlining hull. A six-inch deep glowing crater shone on the side of a Crete's tank, but Chipik cheap shot slammed the plasma bolt back, blowing the track off. The precursor vehicle skewed to the side and cheap shot slammed the bolt into the side, into a crater left by another tank. The precursor exploded. The drone popped up and Gricrete's braked his mag shot, shattering it before it could deploy a weapon. It was withal wet, greasy looking. Salcine whipped our tank around the dead carcass of another precursor, coming up behind the still moving precursor machine. Shot out, cheap shot drilled. Return shot hit the side of Gricrete's tank, throwing Viper 6 against the burning wreckage of another tank. The spalling liner worked, but the shot still blew two fans out. The second shot hit the engine, and Bouncy blew the fusion engine free, flushing it with water. It flew out towards the moving precursor machine. Hasseltech raked the glowing fusion engine. Salsen pulled the tank around, slamming the injured side against another wreck, the vehicle knocking onto its side slightly. Bouncy put full power, everything he could get, into the starboard battle screen, ignoring the heat and the overload warnings. A Crete hosed the drone. Cheap shot hit the bottom of the tank and was clearing the hill with a roar. The shells breached the mag bottle and the fusion engine erupted. Nuclear fire washed over Viper 6, slamming it against the hill, dragging it along the drift, spinning it and tearing away the last two fans. Cheap shot fired another round, getting another tank. The tank went dead, black. After a long moment, a red light clicked on and went off and then came on. Sparks were shooting out from Cheap Shot's scope, and the avian gunner had blood running down his face as his prosthetic beak had cracked down the middle. I, 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 I got that, Bouncy said. The scope stopped shooting sparks. The hull still rumbled with the battle roaring outside. Get me a screen, Bouncy, Crete ordered. No can do, boss. We're fused shut and here, and gunning emergency power backup batteries, Bouncy said. He stuttered several times. I gotta drop my scissors of survival corpse. Sorry, boss. You did good, Bouncy. Get some rest, a creek coughed. Who's still alive? Me, Hasseltech coughed. Yeah, Salcine said. He coughed, blinking his transparent lids over his eyes. Present, cheap shot hacked. The little digital display of the yellow striped box whipped with the yellow handle next to a creek's head flashed a smiling face. Something crashed into the remains of Viper 6, sending it spinning. The lights went out. Crap! They sat in the dark for a long moment. Sir, can you pass me the medical kit? Shall ask. My face is torn up. The Crete fumbled around until he found it and then passed it to his gunner. Here you go, cheap shot. Good fight, no? 
Best fight, they all said together. Something glanced off their hull, bulging to the side of the crew compartment, and the anti-spoiling lighter held. Cicelene grabbed the extinguisher and hosed it down these controls. Just in case, the Saurian said. No complaints from me, agreed said, putting an empty ration tube in his teeth. Wish we had a pack of glow-in-the-dark dice or cards the Terrans carry. Gonna trade for some, Cheap Shot said in the darkness. Hand me the kit, agreed said. There was some fumbling about, but he got the kit. He used it silently, listening to the battle outside, his crew being alive inside. It went quiet, the crew was panting, the air thick. They took turns on the oxygen mask from the med kit, gasping and sweating between each hit. Eventually, it ran out while the world still thundered and through the hull. There was a clank in the darkness. A crete opened his eyes. It was still dark inside. 13th Evac SAR, hold on brothers, was inducted through the interior. There was a loud roar above a crete and he shielded his eyes even when the hatch was ripped free. A UMF air mobile suit with a red crescent on the side of the chest, the red cross on the other, was looking inside. Can you move, Most High? Old Iron Feathers asked, shining his light on the slap patch that the stump on his right leg. Yeah, Akrit said. He grabbed the handle and the yellow square and pulled it out, twisted the handle and the cube popped free. Don't forget my war boy. Leave none behind, Old Iron Feathers quoted as he deployed a pair of purboys. Akrit looked at his new chrome foot. The Terrans had replaced the entire leg with a cyborg prosthetic. The armor on his leg had been pulled from his faithful tank. His crews had survived. Cheapshot had a black chrome around his eyes, his eyes replaced with cybernetics. Cicelene had his tail regrown and his shoulder repaired. Hasseltech had needed a new implant and both of his legs had been broken. But they had survived the brutal fight two days ago. They had held off the precursor, one-one taking heavy casualties, but keeping them from sweeping over the hills to crash down on the medical evac company. A creep looked up. The new tank was in front of him. He was carrying a bouncy survival core. Let's get it on, Cheap Shot said. Together, they moved to the tank, climbing inside. A creep locked the box in place, hit the stud, and watched as bouncy moved across the screens. Once everyone was buckled in, a creep stood up in the hatch and nudged his implant. One one's waiting, men, a creep said, pulling an empty ration tube from his pocket where it sat next to the glow-in-the-dark dice and put it between his teeth. The tank moved smoothly away on its hover fans. Recall Special Unit Commendation to 1-1 Recon for Valor above and beyond the Call of Duty in the defense of 13th Vac Hospital. Battle Standard to be awarded, permission for Unit Crest and Unit Motto to be approved, is granted. Nothing follows. First Contact Chapter 44 Ulmo Ock was a bad Langtelen. His mother and father had always told him so. He was uninterested in money. He was uninterested in power. He had little to no interest in politics. And he didn't care one way or another for rules. The last would have been understandable, if not involved with the first three in a way. But Ulmo Ock's idea of fun evening was getting together with some friends all of them from the uncivilized species or neo-sapiens, hacking a car's computer and roaring around the city in it. The final straw had come when Ulma Ox had gotten high on stimgrass, stripped naked and painted himself red with a clawed suppression paint gun. 
stolen a Lawsec cruiser and driven it to our chase that had culminated, culminated in Al Moak deliberately crashing the armored vehicle into a river and sand ending on top of it as it sank, rearing up to show his genitals to the tribe's cameras. His jowls full of stem grass, he had had a gun in each hand taken from the Lawsec cruiser and kept shooting pot shots at the cameras until Lawsec sniped him and tagged him with a stunner rifle. The sniper had been forced to shoot the young young Lang Talon three times to drop him. It was put up to the jowls full of stem grass. His parents found it horrified. These friends found it hilarious. Lawsec had taken a bribe and looked the other way. Almoak had been entertained. He'd almost felt something standing on the roof of a sinking Lawsec vehicle. He'd come close, but the stunner had hit him. He'd felt something then. Not the raving nerve pain in the second shot brought, not the darkness the third shot had dropped onto him, but he felt something he'd never felt before. He'd been sent to where his father's uncle was in charge of the resource collection in the system in the unified outer systems. His great-uncle was less than impressed that Olmoak had gotten intoxicated during the flight and had fallen off the gangplank and onto the spaceport tarmac, laughing like a pair of bagpipes in paint shaker. The bottle of cork brew in each hand and a stem stick in his mouth. His great uncle had tried to put him in the offices, doing busy work just moving files and papers around down the mailroom. Almoak had convinced the Neo sapiens who worked in the mailroom to fight one another in a pit of fists and swinging, for the reward of time off, vacation days, and raises. His great uncle moved him to the warehouse where Olmowak had put together a racing rally with the wheeled ground effect forklifts with prizes for the winners. After that was stopped by his great-uncle, he arranged a hover smash where workers drove old hover lifts and crashed into one another with the winners getting prizes. Soon, every hover lift was covered in sheet metal and spikes and mesh. Olmowak himself took part in them until finally he broke one of his arms when he was T-boned by another lift. Olmowak's uncle sighed and sent the young Langtelen out into one of the mines as soon as he healed. Olmowak himself had almost felt something when the bones in his arm had snapped and we whipped the hovercraft around to slam the heavy-weighted end into the worker's side. He'd almost felt something when his uncle had ordered his arms set without painkillers. He'd knocked out the Umtavain medic with one hit and when he'd reacted to the pain and felt a little bit of something that he had been chasing. At the mines, Olmoak's uncle had despaired. Olmoak had gotten bored of paperwork and supervision for the first week and had bribed one of the workers to teach him how to use the cargo mech to load the raw ore onto the transports. That had led to mech bash competitions where mechs smashed against each other, slamming each other with graspers or lifters, while an audience cheered. Within a month, the cargo mechs were covered in metal and spikes and painted in garish colors. A few workers were killed in the competitions, but the mech bash went on, with Olmoak participating in the roar of the crowd. Strangely, productivity was up. Incidents between the workers and Corpsec were down. Alcohol and drug use were up. Black market trading and ration chips and Corpsec were script was up. Fighting was up, but the amount of lethal stabbing, shootings, beatings, and ambushes went down. Olmoak's uncle just swept all the mech bash incidents under the rug. He purchased junk mechs from the other corporate divisions, thinking maybe having older, battered, less maintained cargo mechs would stop the mech bash and having massive redundancy would be replace the cargo mechs when they failed. Instead, Olmoak's band started stripping the parts from the junk mechs and adding it to the cargo mechs. 
Then Corpsec reported that the junkyard where the old defunct corporate crowd control and law enforcement vehicles had been robbed. Omoak's uncle knew exactly who had robbed it, but at least this time there was no evidence. The old Langtalan had boarded the executive hover limo and gone out to the mine, chewing narco, cud, and the whole way to ease his anxiety. He could see two cargo mats battering each other over his hover limo came into the landing. As he watched in horror, one of them opened up a chain gun and was the same type as the heavy crowd control vehicle from Corpsec used. He could hear the roar of the crowd even through the armored limo's window. When he landed, a small putamat neo-sapien lizard asked the older Langtalan if he wanted to purchase something called a box seat, or if he wanted refreshments or to meet some of the mech slammers personally. The uncle, who went by the name of Lo Omanan, harumphed and demanded to see his nephew. Lo Omanan found himself escorted by two young female Langtalans of lower caste. Secretaries for the corporate mining facility dressed scandalously so much of their udders showing. Instead of taking him directly to see his nephew, Lo-Oman-Nan was taken to a seat protected by pressure beams and arm glass. Where <clears throat> is my nephew? Lo-Oman-Nan asked, accepting the offer of an brew. One of the Langtalan females pointed out in the dirt field where the cargo met had just walked out. The gargomet was covered in crude metal armor, garishly painted with chain guns and a giant saw blade for a hand, and a crudely fashioned metal spike fist replacing the one of the graspers. He's right there, most high guest, the Langtalan female informed the older male. Lo-O-Man-Nan watched with Cargomet raised all four arms, slamming the forearm together as the crowd roared. The entire crowd roared so fiercely that Lo-O-Man-Nan's tendrils curled up in his crests and plated defensively. The battle was fierce and made Lo Oman Nan cringe with a feel nauseous. His grandnephew showed no hesitation like a proper civilized being would, and instead charged his opponent and met him blow for blow. The battle ended when the older cargo mech landed on its back and crashed and the crowd roared. Lo Oman Nan thought it strange that his nephew reached down with one mechanical hand to help his opponent up to their feet and raised the mech's hand with his own to the roar of the crowd. One of his female hanger-ons asked Lo-O-Man-Nan if he wanted a trivid or a VR chip of the battle as a souvenir. Only 24 corpse script. Lo-O-Man-Nan couldn't believe that the crowd had been chanting his family name the top volume. He himself avoided the crowds, which all stared and muttered at his limo moved through. He saw his nephew pushing through the crowd, slapping extended hands with his four hands, cursing loudly and swinging narco-brew handed to him. His nephew, Ulmawak, was sweaty, wearing only a cooling vest and a bandage over one of his sides, not even the sash to proclaim who he was and what his standing was. Lo-Man Nan watched, horrified, as one of the tall Neosapien mammals, a two-legged hecan, poured Narcobrew into her fur-covered mammary glands, and his nephew pressed his sweaty face between them, shook his head, and made a blubbering noise. The crowd around the nephew roared with glee. Another worker being another Neosapien stripped off her shirt, revealing a scandalous flesh and fur, handed her a t-shirt to Lower Man's nephew. Omoak wiped the face and chest and handed it back, the Neosapien clutching it tight to her upper body. Her eyes bright as she watched Lower Man Nan's nephew swagger between the doorway. Lower Man Nan was led to his nephew's office, taking a winding way. 
They moved through the maintenance bay where Lower Man Nan saw the maintenance techs working on the crudely armored and armed mechs. Past makeshift lounges and bars where Lower Man Nan saw wealthy executives of the corporation yelling, shaking fists, and shouting bets at the narco brew flowed on the stem cud was chewed. Lower Man Nan couldn't believe what he was seeing. He knew that Langtanans, a senior executive with the corporation from distinguished family lineage, whose family was wealthy and powerful even by unified call system standards. The SEO was at the bar, shouting at the screen where two cargo mechs brawled, a narco brew in each hand of his four hands, while two small Lumerian Walcrit females combed the Langtanans fur and rubbed his skin while sitting on his back. As Lower Man Nan watched the wealthy and powerful being turned to his waist to face the two in his back, the closer one took a deep drag of the stimsick held by another one and put her hands on the other side of Langtalan's jowls and blew the smoke directly into his nostrils. Lower Man Nan hurriedly clapped past them, closing his eyes in the rear so that he didn't have to see such disgusting deviance carried out by members of his own species. Fadi. He reached his nephew, who was sitting on a broken couch, a stimstick in his mouth, a well-cret female with a medkit tending to his bruises and small cuts at his side. The younger, Langtalan, had his eyes closed and his hands at his sides, and Lower Man Nan was horrified to see that his nephew was allowing two comely young Langtalan females manually stimulate him sexually as he relaxed and the well-cret tended his wounds, while loud music, prohibited by the corporation, blared from speakers stacked in the corners. Nephew! The elder Langtalan harumphed, hoping the sound of his voice would put a stop to this degeneracy and debasement. He was shocked and appalled that the two females didn't even look up. Instead, just leaned back and entwined their gel tendrils, their hands still busy. The Welkerit ran the auto-suture down the cut in his nephew's flank. Everyone, everyone else jeered as an arm was torn free from the cargo mech, as the other yanked the arm straight and ravaged the joint with the chain gun. I perfected that move, you know, uncle, his nephew said, pointing at the screen with a half-empty narco brew. Lower Man Nan yanked his attention from the huge display, normally used by executives to display data, and looked at his nephew, who was patting the rumps of the two females and shooing them away. Is what do you think you're doing? Lower Man Nan demanded of his nephew. Getting patched up, to use the phrase uncle. Almoak answered, taking a swig from his narco brew. My opponent was skilled and determined. I was proud to defeat him, most honored uncle. Honored, honored, you destroyed the honor of our line and our name by brawling like these, these, uh, neo-sapiens. Lower Man Nan sputtered, his tendrils tight with outrage. If you say so, uncle, Almuwek said, and twitched slightly, and the Walkrit snapped at him to stay still so that she could scrape the emergency coagulate off his skin and suture the wound. Your workers caused damage to company property, costing mine credits, undoubtedly putting this whole facility in the red. If you don't take care of thou honor, what about our stockholders? Lower Man Nan barked at his best he could, inflating his crests to establish dominance over his nephew. His nephew ignored his crests, taking another swig. Is it money you're worried about, Uncle? The younger Yelang Talon said slowly. He signified a disappointment and resignation, and then made a tossing motion towards the older male. View that if you worry about the profits. Lower Man Nan snorted and opened the data file. It was a spreadsheet of company costs and expenses, balance against income, with man hours, the expenses and income broken down. 
Almawak watched his uncle digest the data that seemed to be important to older Langtalan but was infinitely uninteresting to Almawak himself. Anyone can turn a Neo-Sapien upside down and shake credit chits from his pockets, Almawak thought to himself. Only the best can convince them to roar out his name in a frenzied appreciation. Lower Man Nan couldn't believe what he was seeing. The entire facility was making more profit in a single planetary cycle than it had ever had in the entire existence. Membership fees, drinks, narcotics, prostitution, viewing fees, entrance fees, income from the Trivid and VR chips, Galnet broadcasts and shady net sites, that was a pay-per-view only, gambling and more. The credits were pouring in, outstripping even the cost of the black marketeers for weapons, armor and narcotics, even outstripping workers' payments, taxes, everything else. The books were then cooked using the mining and refinery plant as cover. What the refining actually made in profit could have been listed as slush funds compared to what his nephew was bringing in from his illegal and immoral activities. Even more startling was that Almowak had reported every drip of income from the Unified Taxation Office and paid the taxes. Almowak watched his uncle's tendrils tremble with pleasure and gave an equivalent of a sigh of envy. His uncle looked almost orgasmic, a feeling that Almowak chased but could only taste in the bare edges of, only in the cockpit of the cargo mech. You did all of this? Lower man Nan asked, surprised his nephew even understood how a multi-column accounting... Almoak snorted in amusement. Hardly, uncle. I pay employees to do it and pay them well. What if one of the Neo-Sapiens tries to cheat or rob you? Lower man Nan asked, sure his nephew didn't understand how to keep a Neo-Sapient in line. The first one that did, I had chained up to the fist of my cargo mech and pasted him across the chest of my opponent with a few punches. Almoak said flat as a matter-of-factly, as if he wasn't talking about the brutal killing of another sentient being. Lower man Nan stared at his nephew in horror as the younger one gave an equivalent of a shrug. It's one of the most downloaded and paid-for clips. My opponent was painted over in a dark blue of dried blood and the bright paint to remind everyone of the battle. Since then, my employees only steal about 2%, which I'm willing to overlook. Lower man Nan just stared at horror. With another word, he'd returned around and galloped back to his limo, returning to the capital with a promise to himself as long as his nephew kept bringing in the record profits, the maniacal Langtalan could just stay at the remote facility. Almuak looked at the being called a human, apparently, a bipedal primate with closely set forward-facing eyes of a predator, thickly muscled, with hair down the head and around its mouth, and five fingers instead of four. It was dressed in clothing covering with holograms that showed cartoon female humans chasing each other and hitting one another with blunt objects. It made Ormoak inflate his crest with amusement. You know, I can replace that eye with a cyber eye within about an hour, the human said, using the universal translator. No charge, just have the medibot it, do it and we can conduct business. Ormoak signified his agreement with one hand and his eyes only for what would the human junker had brought him. Massive robot power armor, armor meters thick, bristling with weapons, designed like the bipede, just oozing malice, all of them designed to appear aggressive and menacing, just sitting there with their fusion reactors pooled and the weapons empty or disengaged. A spider bot climbed up Ulmoak's foreleg and then up to his torso and then onto his head, settling over the empty socket of the right eye side. Ulmoak ignored it. The medibot was nothing to grow anxious about. He mentally braced for pain. Pain, and it was inevitable. Pain was good. Pain was life. 
Got some old Terran battlecruiser battle screens. They should protect your crowd from any missed shots as well as provide really slamming effects when they're hit. Nothing outside of nuclear penetrator would get through the class of shields, even though they're old tech. Pull them off of some blown out ships back around Bringle 6, the Terran human Maximilian said, snapping his hands together eagerly, the motion like he was brushing off dust with more animated and loud. Omoak liked the body language. He tried to do it himself and found it much more satisfying than the hound ringing and anticipation than most of his race used. That sounds sufficient, Omoak said, following the Terran's body language of nodding rather than inflating his crest in ascent. He liked that too. Now these mechs are civilian grade. Usually they're used by the frontier, harsh environment worlds for heavy security. They'll rip up a pirate ship to shreds and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with light armor and can even take on your civilian government-grade heavy armor units, Max said, pointing at one of the smaller mechs. That one, right there, that can crush most heavy armor units used by your civilian government with a single stomp. I wouldn't try taking it to the corn-fed mil-spec tank, that thing would rip you apart, but against anything you'll probably face, no contest. Olmoak nodded, admiring the lethal lines of the massive mech Lai liked, the one with the skull face, the big fist, and the retractable rotating saw blade sword when this forearm. Ah, oh, so how many do you want? The human asked, rubbing his hands together. Olmoak's implant told him that it was an eagerness not to stress. Olmoak stared at the mechs in a massive freighter's hold, over a hundred of them, all heavily armored and armed. All of them... The cartoon female humans frolicked on Maximilian's suit all waved their pom-poms with their eyes replaced by throbbing hearts. Corpsec Chief Executive Officer Mulamak exited the armored lawsec wagon, adjusted his sash, and trotted forward. The small neosapient waiting for him performed an elaborate welcoming rituals with his due. Two lower-caste Langtalan females, their implants marking them as food service workers or refinery executives, both trotted forward to coo at him and rub him. The Walcrit climbed up onto his back and began rubbing and soothing the narco cream into the four shoulder blades. He liked her. She had strong, soft hands and knew how to rub his muscles just right to force the knots and tension to his racks. The smell of the hot lubricant, scorched metal, sweat and anticipation filled the corpse ex-CEO's nostrils as his tendrils shivered in anticipation. He was a wealthy and powerful male of the Langtillan executive class, even beyond this planet. Yes, he should arrest a young Olamok for everything involved or served by the younger male's illegal activities. But Mulamok couldn't bring himself to even think about such a thing. After all, where else would he get to see such amazing sights? The sound of music, new music, harsh, demanding, thundering, aggressive, and violent poured over the CEO as he entered the highmost class of executive lounge. He merely used the entrance to gain access to the facility. He handed off his sash and badges of rank to the little pantomite at the door, who was inside an armored cage and took all valuables and put them in a registered locked box. The sign of the top of her armor past window stated warning, are responsible for grabbed stuff you take in. The CEO nodded and warning and gave the little Neosapiens weeks worth of meal chits for the way she rubbed her groveled and she put her stuff away, and headed deeper into the facility. 
He passed the other members of his race, set the clean and immaculate feeding lounges, moving past that to where he preferred, the greasy, slightly dirty, shabby lounge where the neon glowed, the music was almost too loud, and more than once some of the neo-sapiens and even members of his own race threw fists over the outcome of a match or a disagreement over which cargo meant pilot was the best. A bunch of his corpsec men, or lower executives, raised their narcopier and cheered him. Mulamak signaled the being tending the bar to bring another round to the table and clopped over to his men. They all thanked him for getting them into this giant mech bash. Something new was promised, something grand. The alien-sounding hard-driving music hinted at whatever it was. It was going to be big. When the fireworks went off, the lights went out, and Moolah Max turned to watch the oversized split display. Sure, the tables and the executive lounges had built-in hollow projectors, but the faded and transparent hollows just didn't have the excitement of the vid screens. The little wildcrit on his back tapped him, and he turned around to face her. She took a drag of a stim stick and put her other hand against his hand gel, and slowly exhaled stim smoke into his nostrils. He inhaled deeply, grateful, feeling the already activated stim surge in his bloodstream and shivered. What stomped out on the view screen, obviously shaking the ground in the arena, was something the Mulamak recognized, something that he'd seen in classified videos from the furious fighting against the precursors over the last two months. A human war mech. It raised its arms over its head, clasping the massive hands, and shook them with a crowd roared. Mulamak was aghast. How had these war machines, those weighing as much as 500 tons, gotten to the planet? How had young Mulamak gotten a grasping four hands in one? He stared at his special effects, froze the giant mechanized war machine, spun it around, put it in garish colors, and then detailed the weapons. Sweat popped up on Mulamak's crest as he inflated them with agitation. The giant beast carried a two 200mm autocannons just to start off with. It packed missiles, lasers, particle beams, something called a chainsword, and more. Its polyceramic wall steel laminate armor could shrug off anything his entire corpsic force could bring to bear, and those autocannons would shred anything he could field. Yeah, yeah, one of his subordinates, a senior executive officer, cheered, Slam smash, slam smash! The little Walcrit tapped Mulamak, and when the CEO turned at the waist to face one behind him, the little mammal pressed both hands against his nose and slowly exhaled narco smoke into the first one and then the other nostril. Mulamak closed his eyes and let up the little Neo-Sapien, put her four hands on her fur and started to stroke. It soothed him, such degeneracy. It calmed him, indulging in such deviance. He would never do so in private or at work, but here, surrounding by the pounding alien music, the dimly lit grimy sports lounge, surrounded by the subordinates and other Macbash fans, he indulged himself in vices that he would have never imagined as a young Langtelan in the unified call systems where he had grown up. He turned around, shifting his arm so that he still reached behind him and stroked the wildcat, who tapped the inside of his arm with a narco jet, just in time to see the opponent. A giant war mech the same weight class, different weapons, painted in garish colors of another competitor. This one armed with lasers, particle cannons, missiles, and a point defense and other missile defenses. Then they pulled back displaying the modified arena. Giant chunks of armor made up of wall steel and blaster steel, glimmered with energy fields, and other things to take cover behind. 
Plasma mines, auto turrets, flamers, all kinds of hazards that the crowd could activate by throwing a bash cash at it in the form of work chits, woo chits, corpse script, unified system credits, or even promises of favors. Countdown started and Mooler Mac calmed his agitation by touching the little female in ways that the member of his species, his caste, his executive status probably shouldn't. He brought her around to his chest, cradling her and stroking her in his arms. Well, she blew clouds of narco vape across his nose and balanced a mug of narco brew on her stomach. The battle started with Mooler Mac quickly forgot his agitation. Particle cannons thudded, auto cannons shrieked, the shields screamed and sparked with masses that thrilled the crowd as they were only howled off by a certain death by the invisible hands of the battle screen projectors. Ten fights, all between massive Terran war mechs. Mulamak won as often as he lost, but by the time he was halfway through watching the fights, he was cheering as often as everyone else. He broke a narco-brew bottle across the face of the senior executive Lankalan from the financial services during the sixth fight, clasped hands with the same being and cheered with the seventh, two males slapping each other's sides in shared joy as the mech that they'd been undefeated the larger one. One of his subordinates put a fist in his eye and he responded by kicking the other male in the chest to a roar of the onlookers. He bought his defeated subordinate a large mug of the subordinate's favorite narco-brew to show how gracious he was in victory. The subordinate cheered Mulamak's name as they left together and rode home in the same executive limo. Mulamak's uncle looked at the profits from the new and improved Macbash and had to shuffle funds around at the senior executive level to hide the profits. He noticed the CEO of Corpsec had swollen eye and during luncheon, but didn't pay it any mind. Corpsec types often had to put down riots. The air was full of thunder as the atmospheric craft roared overhead. More humans had arrived to protect the system from the possible precursor attack. Humans had sworn to protect the star system, had deployed massive amounts of war machines through space, around moons, on planets, everywhere. A precursor fight attack might strike at the beings they so hated. Well, the other Langtalan had run circles panicking, wringing their four hands, inflating and deflating their crests in fear, shaking their jowls in terror, bleating and crying out their anxiety. Olmoak felt a tingling tremor deep inside of him. Actually felt it. Invited the Terrans to the mech bash, can comp the entrance, drinks and anything they wanted. They enjoyed it. Olmoak liked Terrans, he had to admit. Members of something called the V-Core, old metal, that just made his tendrils coil in joy. Olmoak had noticed that even their officers liked the dimmer, grimier-looking loungers. More deviant and dangerous, the better. The two humans had pulled knives on each other, fighting on the floor over one of the lounges over a pantomid female that they had both been petting. Neither one had been killed, but they had been injured. Ulmoak had ordered the Walcrit medicos and not to use painkillers on the Terrans to see how they reacted. Every reaction to pain brought jeers from the fellow Terrans. One who had flinched had Narcobrew poured over him by his fellows. The two knife fighters were arm in arm, cheering less than a fight later. Ulmoak was fascinated by the Terrans. They looked... looked... alive. Almoak envied them. V-Corps Commander's Memo Attendance to Almoak's Macbash Arena is permitted via recreation pass. Please stop stabbing each other. It looks bad to our hosts when a senior officer's duel with knives over who gets to pet the furry Xena species with great tits, no matter how much it amuses your subordinates. 
I appreciate a great set of memory glands just as much as the next species, but rolling around on the floor while the enlisted poor knocker brew on you is undignified. Real officers use stun pistols at 20 paces. While dueling is legal, please refrain from doing so unless it is vitally important. Like who may have stolen your last pack of Terran cigarettes? General Nodraak V. Corps Commanding. Nothing follows. Kestimate Corporate Memo. Attendance to the so-called Mechbash is strictly prohibited to all executives by order of Kistimit Corporation Headquarters, Core Worlds. Attendance to any illegal activity can result in a fine of up to three days' pay. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 45 The Terran was a big warborg, two tons of anodized black wall steel, heavy weapons hidden inside his chassis with magnetic power inductors the size of Ulmoak's hand, covered in a thin layer of armor plas, with an eight pierced by the upright arrow marking both the shoulders. His face shield was open, letting Ulmoak see the Terran's biological face that had been attached to the wall steel skull. While the Anilantalians might have been distressed by the cyborg, it didn't bother Umoak at all. The Terran was one of Umoak's loyal customers. Over the last weeks, the Terrans had been deployed at the war material and getting ready for the possible precursor attack. You won't want to get off this planet soon, Umoak, the Terran said. It took a sip of the narco brew. Good stuff. My appreciation at your enjoyment, Umoak answered, nodding. He liked the Terran physical body language much better than the right to Creston tendril signals. Why would I want to leave? The Terran sighed. There are imps in the Oort Cloud, and that can only mean one thing. Precursors are coming, Umoak guessed. The big Terran nodded. You advise me to flee? The Terran Warburg slowly nodded. It is only going to get ugly, friend. The precursors are going to come at the system with everything they can shake loose. It's an important extraction and refinery system. The Warborg paused. They're going to come straight at this facility. Ulmoak nodded again. That sounds logical. My uncle has sent some of the Corpsec out here, some with heavy vehicles and Corpsec designates them, to protect the refinery from any rivals, he says. I believe it's trying to protect from any of the Bashmak pilots going rogue. The Corpsec vehicles won't last 15 seconds against precursor machines, the Terran answered. I've seen the Bash Mac list them as the light civilian defensive vehicles, Ulmoak answered. He lifted his hands in approximation of a shrug. My Bash Mac is a civilian version. I can only imagine what the precursor machines must be like, and even then, I'm probably under-imagining them. The Warborg nodded. I faced off against the precursors a few centuries ago. Not this brand, the other types, and they're a serious opponent. They don't stop, and they linger to kill every living thing. To top it off, friend, they view your species as deserving to be wiped out. Ilmoak shook his head. I will not leave my loyal workers. They work hard for me. They fight harder. The Warborg sighed. All right, look, saying this is in the gray, I can probably get away with it because you're technically a CEO and the community leader. Nobody else outside this Turkon-fed mill knows this yet. One moment, Ulmoak said, he used his implant to turn off any surveillance devices, cleared the surrounding rooms, and locked the doors. The big warborg nodded at the sound of the maglocks engaging. Go ahead. These things use psychic assault arrays. We don't mind that much. We're highly resistant to such things. But I don't know how your people will react. 
The Bulbork said, They come at you, they're gonna hit you with psychic assault and slaughter your people while they're still alive and screaming. Ulmoak thought for a moment. Is there a way for non-Terrans to protect themselves from psychic assault? The Warborg nodded. Sure, most of the Trianonad soldiers have psychic shield implants. Most vehicles have them. We even get portable ones to protect camps and bases. Ulmoak nodded. Thank you for the information. It is most helpful. Can you guess at how long until the Picoses arrive? Days? Weeks? With the imps in the Oort Cloud, we're being reconned. It's not if they get you, it's when they get you, the Warborg said. He stood up. I should get back before I'm missed. Ulmoak nodded, thinking carefully. He unlocked the door and ordered the Warborg to be comped tonight's entertainment. Psychic shielding, eh? The Terrans seem to have it commonly installed. That means they have an abundance, he thought to himself. He signaled to the facility's computer to send two of his employees to him, one a structural engineer responsible for keeping his mind operational, the other a refinery expert. They arrived quickly, both smelling of stim sticks, but they both had obvious shakes from taking a quick sober. Olmoat soothed their fears, handing them bottles of Terran Nocobia after he twisted the caps off. He turned down the music and then locked the doors. Honor Jumanat! Almuak addressed the refinery master. The other being nervously signaled was paying attention. The humans call it wall steel. Can we create it and work it? The other, Langtalan, shook his head. No honored Almuak. We can craft it, but it immediately hardens and cannot be worked. What hyperalloy can we create that can work with the tools available? Almuak asked. Terran endosteel. We had the templates and industrial fabrication specifications. The refinery master said. 10% of our output to endosteel production. Keep it off the books. Offer triple pay for anyone willing to work off the book ships to produce it, Almuak said. As you wish, I most, he answered. Another thing, Jarmanat, Almuak said. The subordinate looked nervous. You have family on the planet. Yes, I most, he answered. Bring them in. I'll have a vacation time authorized for them. Use one of the empty executive bidders for them. Bring all of them, Almuak ordered. Jumanat didn't ask why, just nodded. Every one of Ulmanak's ideas had enriched him vastly, and Jumana had ceased asking questions. He accepted his dismissal and left, Ulmanat locking the door again behind him. Zalamuint, Amaok turned to the master engineer. She nodded, still looking miserable from the quick server shot. Yes, hi, host. She stared at the male's robotic eye, fascinated by it. Supposedly, the Langtalans were too advanced to accept cybernetic prosthetics, but the eye had been there for weeks without problems. Almoak, I used his personal holotank, her inversion with an excellent resolution and fidelity, to put up a map of one that played out the mines that weren't beneath the worker habs and the executive vidas. I want you to build shelters beneath the structures, in these mines, with the fast access ports that can be sealed and camouflaged until rescue can arrive. The female, Langtalan, nodded slowly, getting up and moving around the holotank. Shelters? For how many people, Highmost? All of them, plus another 10% redundancy. No, make it 20% redundancy and provide atmospheric power and food dispenser backups, Albuak ordered. Triple pay for all who work on this. I want it done as soon as possible. As you will, she answered. Will that be all? Almoak shook his head. No, I have one other set of orders, he stated. He moved to scan the set that played out mines miles away. It had a large entry cavern. She curled her tendrils in confusion but waited. 
I want you to move all our spare parts, our spare repair equipment, the bash mechs to the spot. We're going to be going back to cargo mech fights for a little bit. He said, build these buildings out of Jirokra. Make sure the repair scaffolding is finished first. Which do I prioritize? Concealed repair bays first, moving the parts second. I have a different cruise get the cargo mechs ready to fight. Your customers won't like that, she warned. I'll play it up as a celebration of some type, offer reduced fees that'll quiet them, he said, and thought for a moment. Zen Cricket. Personally, no data link or com. Zaal Muunt nodded and left, finding the Puntamat mechanic drinking a narco brew and puffing on a narco stick in one of the lounges, a pile of scripts, chits, and rations in front of him. Sober up the highmost once you right now, Zaal Muunt said. A little, Pintament nodded, ordering the quick sober and getting up. He injected it into his arm as he hustled to where he knew the boss would be watching the fights. When he went in, he heard the door lock behind him and worried that the boss knew that he'd been skimming money off the repair fees being charged to the fighters. Sit, honored high-most mechanic, Olmuak said, motioning at the comfortable seat. Cracket sat down, nervous, noting the unholstered needler pistol in the hotter tank. Alvowak cracked open two Terranaga beers and handed one to the little furry lizard. Cracket watched as Almuak brought up the schematics of his own bash mech. Assign your less skilled text to bringing up the cargo mechs back up to fighting status, Almuak stated. Your best techs will have an assignment soon. They'll be making modifications to our bash mechs. What kind? Cracket asked, beating the tingle of excitement. Right now? I'm not sure. I just have your men go over the technical documents for the bash mechs and start doing EVR training from the data chips and manuals. Even the stuff like ruptured reactor shields. Almanac ordered. He handed another beer to the fuzzy lizard. Triple pay. He cracked nodded, hustling out of the room. Almanac opened his personal encrypted data link address book, going over the various link addresses that he had amassed. There. There was some context there that were even at the MacBash Arena. He ordered in comely male and female members of all races and had them dress scandalously and then had his office arranged for effect. He then went out and took part in the unscheduled match to get that feeling again. He needed his edge to meet the beings he needed to meet with. Uncle O'Omanan, I invite you to inspect the mines in a week or two. Please bring my aunt and my cousins. I have missed them dearly. I promise you won't be disappointed in what I wish to show you. Alma'ak. The Terran officer got out of the heavy cargo truck, walking towards where Alma'ak sat on the foot of a bash mech, feeling the machine vibrate with power and menace. The Terran officer glanced up at once and nodded before moving to Alma'ak. The big Terran held out one crushing primate gripper, and when Alma'ak shook the primate increased the pressure, staring at Alma'ak's eyes. Alma'ak held the stare, refusing to show any pain. Pain was life. The Terran officer nodded grudgingly and released Alwak's hand. Alwak ignored the pain of the crushed muscles and bruised bone. The balloon, like feeding of swelling, it was just pain. I got what you wanted: psychic shielding for war mech, updated monocric packs, everything but war boy hashes. Even got your training EVR progs with the simulators. Uses the latest battle data that we've got against the precursor machines. The Terran said. What do you have for me? Here, the Langtalan said, monitoring. The two Puttermans ran forward, each carrying a chip box. The idea had startled Olmanak. It was simple, so easily done, and apparently brought in massive amounts of credits, chits, payments, and customers. 
The first one was opened and the Terran removed one of the chits, checking it. The 15 seconds was unlocked, the rest behind. Surprisingly enough, civilian-grade Terran cryptography. The Terran turned it off and put it back in the box. Full EVR, he said. That's important. Albuak nodded. That one's just sex. He opened up the second case. This one, my friend, will be your big bunny maker. Oh, why? What do we have here? The Terran asked. Everything from slowly eating a meal while sitting naked outside in the rain to feeding low-power heated blowers drying one's fur to a slow kiss between two lovers. Urinating in the bladder has gotten excessively full, and the first drink of water after getting a full day without it. Feel of an infant soft fur or scales or skin beneath your warm hand. The grain unturned up to maximum, as broad spectrum as my text could make it. Almuak said... He lifted up the upper limit of the best approximation of human smile as he could make. Before you tell me that it's worthless compared to Xeno Species 6, let me tell you. A Warborg offered me a year's pay for the EVR of a female putament finishing a long run in a treadmill, then carefully, slowly washing the shampoo beneath the stream of water before blow-drying her fur slowly. The Terrans narrowed his eyes. He dealt with the Langtland before but had never seen one who was so focused, almost predatory, from a herbivore species that might, occasionally, eat meat. He thought for a moment, trying to decide if he could bluff one or maybe apply a little good old old intimidation. Almuak knew what the other was thinking. He pulled a long stick of spiced meat and treated meat, something that he saw the Terrans enjoy, slowly unwrapping the slender jams and beginning to chew on the stick, coiling his feeding tendrils in pleasure. When he knew that he had the Terran's attention, he reached down and patted the gigantic foot of the pleasure and glory. With his lower left hand, the Terran quickly changed his opinion. He had been warned by the person who had put him on this nice bit of graft that this Langtalan was different, but he hadn't believed it until he watched the way the Langtalan was not enjoying the meat stick, but knew what kind of effect it had and was relishing every little bit of the transaction. All right, deal, the Terran said. Parts, ammunition, repair vehicles, the whole nine yards. Excellent, buddy, the Langtalan said. He whistled another Terran skill that he'd spend days mastering. Pentiment workers ran over while the others drove cargo trucks up. Langtalan shook the other being's hand, and this time he squeezed as hard as possible, staring into the human eyes, tilting his head so his side cyber eye was part of the stare. Terran Major Tactivan, Delta Company, 108th Military Intelligence, Rangers Detached, smiled back. Pleasure doing business with you. Cricket looked up from where he was crouched behind Ulmer Ox, fighting Cradle, the panel behind the Cradle removed. The little punimment had firmware analyzer in his hand and had an expression of satisfaction on his face. Well, we know what those interfaces we could never figure out were actually for now, Cricket asked. They, first psychic shielding booted up just fine, went through diagnostics, then stayed stable during your entire match. Albuak nodded. And the shielding inside the shelters? He asked. Four days of activation, and now we've got the right analytics and wavelengths to protect everyone, Cricket said. He used his tools and started reattaching the covers over the dense model wreck bricks. The shelters are complete. They're being furnished and stocked as we speak. All right, outfit the rest of the Bashmax with the psychic shielding, Ulmoak ordered. Cricket hesitated a moment. Honored most high, Ulmoak, he asked. Yes, loyal one, Ulmoak asked, stroking the controls of the pleasure and glory like some men stroke their sleeping wife's hip. 
the same faraway look in his eyes. The precursors are coming, aren't they? Cricket asked. Yes, they are. Do you plan on fighting them? Cricket asked. Do defend all my loyal employees. Of course, Olwak said. Your wife pulled the knife from my back and repaired my lung. Your daughter works hard to make sure that the coin girls and joy boys are all healthy and have a thumpman nearby. How could I not defend you? Cricket nodded. My men, they have spoken. We will hide in the caverns and we will repair any damage we can. That pleases me to know, Olmoak said. And he meant it. Lomanan exited the vehicle, moving over to where his nephew was dressed appropriately for once, surrounded by well-dressed sycophants and underlings like a proper Langtalan should be. Lo Oman's wife and children exited the limo, looking around with parts disgust at being of the refinery, mining location, manufacturing facility. Art pleasure of seeing Almoak so improved. All they ooed and aahed appreciatively during the tour. Lomanan noticed that the beings came to his nephew frequently with updates, prompts, and signed and introductions. They were moving outside, preparing to leave, when Lomanan saw his nephew suddenly jerk upright and put his hand against his elaborate data linked in the temple and blink of four four eyes. Repeat that, Omoak said. The authority and the urgent focus of the two words made Lomanan and his family draw back from the young male Langtalan in slight fear. There was a second and Olmuax took his hand from his implant, blinking his eyes, including the ugly-looking cybernetic one, and gave a reassuring gesture. Omanan saw Turknarn's security officers jogging towards them, holding weapons. Sorry, my apologies, Olmuax said. He gestured towards the executive vidders that made a motion. Please, before you fly out, at least try some refreshments. I'm sorry, honored nephew, we don't have the time. Manan answered, suddenly feeling nervous. Perhaps another day. Alwak sighed and looked at his uncle, slowly drawing a needler from his holster that he kept beneath his pouch. The Tuknan security men leveled their weapons at Lomanans and Lactalan guards and then disarmed them. I'm sorry, aunt, uncle, cousins, but I'm afraid my words were not a request. It is an insistence, Almanan said, his voice wide and sounding and menacing. It reminded Lomanan of how stressed Terence sounded. Hulu, dear, what do you mean, darling one? Manan's wife asked, hugging herself in fear. I'm sorry, most beloved aunt, but you must quickly come with my men. I'll be remaining here, Alwak said. He stared off with his aunt. Do remember, though, that I do care deeply for you all. The guards barked and motioned, and Lo Manan and his family began moving. As they clattered away, the hoofs clumping on the tarmac, Lo Manan called out to his nephew. I won't forget this betrayal as long as I live. Almuak didn't look back, yet his more facility guards took the servants into custody. Servants that had mysteriously brought along their families to see the perfectly normal mining facility. They all hid smiles as they hurried after Lohman. That one signaled eternal affection for Ulamak. Ulamak watched, listening to his implant. Attack imminent! Attack imminent! Attack imminent! Ulamak was strapped into pleasure and glory, the data link plugged in, his feet on the pads, his hands on the controls. His big bash mesh was vibrating faintly around him, the huge fusion engine a low power. The scaffolding around it was clear, the access ports were closed, his armor ready. The durochrome around the scaffolding made the repair scaffolding look like it was just some material storage towers. He could hear these gladiators talk to each other. Weeks in the simulators were one thing, but they could now hear the radios of the Goliaths were landing vehicles on the planet. 
that the Terran vessels were engaged in pitched fighting. The UMF and the Kestemet Corporation had already taken massive casualties. Only a few units survived, most of them working carefully with the Terrans. His men were nervous but unafraid. He was not nervous. He was not afraid. Instead, he felt something. The way poets described a female's tendrils trembling, the way commercials made tasting their wares taste. He wondered what it was. Hi, a small voice said in his chair. It was a personal comlink. I clear the channel, Almanac ordered, his best to imitate the Kestemet security jargon he'd picked up being arrested so many times. I'm your new friend, the voice said. Ulmoak opened his eyes and shook something tall through his firewalls through the security and scanned his entire bash mech in seconds. Well, good job on this. I should hash your security encryption, though. You're using old, outdated one that the precursors already cracked. Who are you? Ulmoak asked sharply. Oh, I'm your new warboy, assigned by the 3rd Coscom Digital Warfare Command. Either I help you and let my friends help you or friends... There was a long pause. All V-Corps has ordered me to slag your Warmax. Almorak thought for a moment. All right, dear friend, I'll warn you. I am here to defend my loyal people. I will not stray far from this area. Okie dokie, the voice answered. Rehashing now. His mech went to standby, booted up, shut it down, everything, and then restarted everything. Rehashed, I updated your systems with the latest IFF and targeting systems. I am sending my brothers to help your friends. The little voice said, What do I call you? Ulmanak wondered aloud. Don't know, that's up to you, the voice said. Oh, V-Core is referring to you as the fifth light armor regulars and limiting your operations to ten mile radius. All right, he thought for a second. One of his friends back in the core worlds talked unlike the computer program. His name had been long, but everyone had shortened it to Tack, so they could get a word in edgewise. I'll call you Tack. Tack it is. I have General Trucker on a secure comlink. He wants to speak to you. A general. That was likely the military high most. Curious. Almuak opened the comlink. Both LAI, do you read? A Terran's rough voice sounded in his ear. Almuak could hear a nuclear cannon cut loose in the background. Yes, Almuak answered. All right. I'm sending you some air defense and point defense units and some war borg infantry. I'll keep those shelters of yours locked down and defended. You just worry about any armor units that hit your way. Trucker growled. In the background, Ulmoat heard bellowed orders. Stay out of our way, though. You get in my way, and I'll run you over just like an ancient metal. Of course, nothing personal, Ulmoat said. He'd seen more than a few black market Terran war tribes in the past few months. Nothing personal, Trucker said. Suddenly, the pitch of his voice changed. Get those UMF aerospace fighters out there. Tell them to get the blasted formation tighter, or they're going to get raked out of the sky by the mass of the djinn. Tell those dumbass cows he's about to get slaughtered. Almoak knew Trucker was referring to a member of his species, but it did not bother him. Cattle described most of the people Almoak met before the Terrans arrived. Look, Fifth, I'll get you a dedicated data stream and provide what support I can, but uh, tell that dumb bastard to activate his point defense. But, um, I've got my hands full. I wish you'd have interlocked with us earlier, but... Jesus, sodomizing Christ! Will someone kill that thing? But I'll interlock you as best I can. I understand, Olmoak replied. The sounds behind the Terran's voice was bellow commands made something inside Olmoak's soul tingle. 
He opened up a slender James and chewed on it, filling his mouth with the taste of the greasy meat stick. Do your best, Fifth. Trucker out. Understood. In his tank, Trucker looked at the EQU MCOM ComTech. You sure that we were talking to the Langtalian? He sounded like a damn answering service, B.I. He nodded. B.I. says that he was an actual, living being with almost 83% certainty. Huh, Trucker said. Then he took his mind back to the battle at hand. Ulboak was relaxing at his crash couch, keeping his men's morale up, ordering them to sleep in ships. Listening to his implant, which Tack was keeping him aware of what was happening as was more and more precursor ships made landfall. Nearly two hours later, Tack woke him with a vibration on the bash mech lulling him to sleep. Got a combat troops on the horn, boss. They want to know which warehouse could conceal themselves in, Tack said. Alwak rubbed his eyes. What? General Trucker sent some air defense and point defense vehicles to keep your area safe. He also sent ammunition trucks and counter-battery artillery units, including radar. Tack answered. Almoak closed his eyes, visualizing the layout of the factory with his cybernetic eye. He blinked at the buildings, assigning them, Tell the leader of the vehicles that the warehouse and the vehicle hangar can be destroyed, or other surface installations can be destroyed. Just defend the shelters. Tack hummed for a moment. They say okay. Well, they talk weird, you know. Terran military guys. They all talk funny. Wake me up if anything moves funny. Okie dokie, Tack said. Almoak closed his eyes, going back to sleep. Boss! Boss! Wake up! Tack yelled. Almoak opened his eyes, lifting up his two upper hands to rub them. Yes, Tack. Trucker just signaled, you've got a whole bunch of, and I quote, big metal coming your way. Wake up the boys, Almoak said, bringing his Big Mac to full readiness. He waited for each of his gladiators, nearly eighty in all. Even the maintenance crews led by Cricket checked in. Finally, the Terran Confederate military forces checked in. Everyone was ready. It's time for the ultimate show, he said over his command channel, and put his mech into motion. We call command memo. Extensive civilian shelters outfitted with psychic shielding arrays and Kistimit Hulamunga Mountains Refinery. Estimated numbers of civilians in the shelters is in excess of 320,000. Area is protected by civilian-grade medium war mechs. 8th Infantry has deployed a company of air and point defense units as well as a battalion of artillery configured for counter-battery operations. Support these guys when you can. Leader is a known and malignant compromised black marketeer, but he's been good to our guys and is taking care of his people. General Nadraak, V Corps commanding. Nothing follows. Gistimate internal memo. Lesser High Most Lomanan and his family, as well as his servants, have been kidnapped. His known law-breaking nephew, Ulamak, who has seized control of the Holomanga industrial facility and may be planning on holding it for ransom. At this time, do not speak to any press agents. Third Armor Division broadcast. Here they come, boys. General Trucker, Commander. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 46 The massive Dura-alloy doors, sheathed with endosteel and covered with radar-scattering stealth paint, opened with a screech that could be heard over a mile out. Outlumbered 80 mechs in the 450-500 to 500 ton range, all heavily armed and armored, piloted by beings who had dozens if not hundreds of arena battles under their belts. The pilots accelerated to a light jog, 
heading towards where the medium-armored vehicles, mix of assault, air defense, propelled artillery, and anti-armor, were heading towards the industrial facility, accompanied by over 3,000 infantry. Okay, you want to disable the anti-armor first, Tack squealed, bouncing up and down. Bring up your long-range radar scanners. Ulmawak realized that he had no idea how long-range scanners work. Bring it up for me on screen 5. He ordered, selecting the display that usually showed his point total. Have the others bring up their long-range radar on their point and ranking display. Um, okie dokie, Tag said, and with a bunch of concentric circles, with a line sweeping around in a clockwise direction fairly rapidly. At the far ring at the top where the narrow V terminated, a bunch of dots started showing. We're six miles and closing. Not a problem, Olomark answered. He was calm, centered, and strangely feeling a lacking of something that he had his entire life surrounding him and filling him. Hook me in to everyone else. Done. Go ahead, Tack said. All right, we've all fought in the arena. You know how to fight in your bash, Max. We practice in the simulators. We can take these guys, Umoak said. Let's trash bash him up. He pulled, shooting a narcostem into his arm before looking at Tack's display. Close the channel, he told Tack. Um, sure, boss, Tack said. After a moment, Tack said, Don't you have a war plan? Yeah, scrap him, Ulmoak said. It's like any junker mech bash. Uh, hang on, Tack said. Ulmoak said the communication light came on but didn't hear anything. After a minute, the light went out. Um, boss, have you ever fought for real before? Over 300 matches, I can fight, Tack, Ulmoak said, feeling the narcostem run through his veins, making his heart rate jump and easing his muscles. Don't worry, we'll scrap these guys, go back for repair and reload, and wait for the next match. Um, are you sure, boss? Tack asked. Ulmoak sighed. Yes, I'm sure. We ran a lot of simulations against the Terran military armed services estimations of those machines, even the ones that we're heading towards. All right, boss, Tack sounded unsure to Ulmoak, but the AVI went silent. The miles swept under his feet as AT mechs thundered towards the enemy. 117 artillery is dropping smoke and chaff to cover your advance and soften them up a little. They can only dedicate two companies, so it'll be a light fire. When you exit the cover, you'll be half a mile from the long to extreme range of your long-range weaponry, and the 117 will cease fire, Tack said. All right, Ulmoak answered. An alarm went off on the screen he usually showed himself. The crowd then blanked on reveal another radar screen, this one tracking blue lines. What is that? Ulmoak asked. That's the point defense radar, boss, Tack said. Um, uh, those are friendly artillery rounds. I just told you about them. Ah, yes, Ulmoak said. He felt his tendrils tremble slightly and ignored it. Um, okay, boss. Tack sounded really unsure, and Almoak noticed the transmission light come on again. His forward radar was suddenly fogged out, like a solid wall appeared. Pop a drone, boss, Tack said. Hey, my radar isn't working ahead of me. It was the common thread of twenty of his men suddenly comlinking him. It's the stuff your AVI told you about, he reassured them. Half of them commented that they told their annoying little AVI to be quiet. Boss, don't let them do that. I'm serious. I don't think that's a good idea, he said. Turn on your EW suite, boss. Seriously, turn it on. Pop a drone and hit your EW. My what? Ulmoak asked. For the sake of the digital omni-messiah, Tack yelled. 
Ulmoak saw a power drain he wasn't used to. Stop that, I balance my power load carefully, Ulmoak said. Don't make me turn you off like the others. You guys shouldn't turn us off, boss, I'm serious. It's a really bad idea going into this fight, Tack squealed. It'll be alright, they know how to fight, Ulmoak reassured the ABI. Little Tack seemed a very nervous sort. Ulmoak wondered for a moment if there was a way to get the little guy a narco jet hit or not. They were into the cloud, and a few of his fellow gladiators cursed, but they all ran through the smoke, coming out. Almoak noticed that this radar kept fuzzing and wavering. Almoak's AVI suddenly created all of the dots on his radar, marking them with different shapes and colors. There's the anti-armor vehicles, boss. Get him! The AVI squeaked. Yes, Almoak said. He activated his data link to his men. Kill the anti-armor first. He clicked his data link and sped up sprinting across the terrain. His men gave a shout over the data link, breaking into a run with him. Boss, what are you doing, boss? The ABI squealed. Turn on your battle screen. Moving to attack, Ulwak answered. I don't have battle screens. Lasers were being fired at the precursor machines. He could see them now, heavy, blocky, bristling with weapons and thick with armor. They all moved on tracks that churned the ground, ran over small buildings and crashed houses and trees. They were making a straight line towards the mining facility. Past uh, said, turn on your battle screens. More lasers lanced out, hitting mechs, charging them. Particle cannons fired at extreme range joined in. Missiles started being fired from the machines. Small ones, medium ones, seekers... Each Bex point of fence shot down the oncoming at them, picked a few others off, and then went silent. Boss, the AVI barked and Ulmoak's point of fence went silent. A particle beam raked Ulmoak's leg, but a quick glance showed Ulmoak that it hadn't done much more than minimal damage to his leg's thick armor. Yes, Ulmoak asked. He was satisfied that the point of fence knocked down not only all of the ones coming at him, but ones aimed at others too. Activating battle screens! Tack yelled. Almoak saw his power take a hit and his view screen shimmer slightly. What is that? Stop that! I need that power for my guns! Almoak barked. Clear my vision. You need that power for your screens and you're going to get splattered. Tack shot back. How do you not know this? I'm like three hours old. Give me a sec to compensate for the screens. The displays cleared up right as Almoak increased the power and pushed the speed back up. More laser missiles hitting, this time deflecting or detonating by shimmering fields surrounding him. Shoot! Tack screamed. Tack jumped over the house, clearing it easily, and landed, raising his arms and triggering his missile launchers at the nearest set of tanks. Ulmoak knew missiles were point and shoot, and the pilot's hand-eye mattering more than the computer reticle. The missiles, Terran military smart weapons, shot out blinked in surprise, armed and impacted a second later before the VIs even went active. Both tanks shuddered, rocked back on their tracks, and continued forward. Half a dozen craters in their forward glacks. Boss, what are you doing? Tack screamed as Ulamak raked the leading tank with his 200mm autocannons, his whole mech shuddering as he raked his massive fists over the front of the precursor tank. Olomac fired lasers, covered some in plasma napalm, extended his sword and jumped into the air. Boss, what the frick? Tack screamed at Ulamak's massive feet slammed down on two enemy tanks, crushing them. He lunged forward and drove his sword through another tank, molten metal spraying from the impact curt percursive tank. 
He finished it off with a heavy laser shot as he yanked the chainsaw free and turned to face the next one. Told you, going to mech-bash these guys, Umark said, feeling a slight trickle of something as two heavy cannon rounds hit his mech, forcing him to step off the destroyed tanks. He selected a single target and unloaded two heavy missile pods, pouring a hundred heavy missiles into the front of the armor. The missiles, normally long-range smart missiles capable of dodging point defense, making pop-up attacks or even circling wide to come around for another pass, didn't even have a chance to completely unhash before they realized that they were about to hit the armed impact triggers. The tank, a medium air defense tank with minimal armor, exploded into fury even as the missiles kept screaming into the fire, most of them barely able to fire up the sensors before they slammed into the ground and exploded. Most of the damage was from unbound fuel exploding and the sheer kinetic hit rather than the heavy complex warheads designed to fight heavy war mech armor. Boss, this isn't an arena fight, Tack screamed. What the frick, boss? A shot hit Gulomark on the side as he turned in place, firing his auto cannons as he did so, breaking it across the front side of the robot tanks around him. Boss, you're losing men. I mean, really losing them. You gotta run, Tack said. Total armor is down by 50%, and you're getting close to getting blown up. Oluwak bellowed and fired everything he had at the tank, his cockpit flashing with heat. Lasers, cannon shots, autocannons, and particle beams were raking his mech. His point defense was overheating, and he was losing armor fast. Boss, run, Tag yelled. I'm overwhelmed. I can't, 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 can't allocate screens and defenses. Everyone, get back to base. Ulamak finished his turning and running out, stomping on the tanks as he went, slashing right and left with his chainsaw, firing his weapons into the sides of the tanks. He got clear, running back to the remains of the smoking chap, confident that the others were right behind him. There was a silence for a long time, broken only by the whirring and cooting fans of the cockpit, the thud of the mech feet and the howl of the point of fence going off. He broke free of the smoke, running to the cave where the repair teams were. Close air support 312 is coming to clean it up, Tack said, his voice quiet. 117 is supporting them. They can dedicate an entire brigade now. All right, Umoak said. It was silent for a long time. The small quarry that the cave opened up into came into view before Tack spoke again. That wasn't a sim or an arena fight, boss, Tack said. No, Umark said. No, boss, I don't think you do, Tack said. The ABI was quiet as Umark slowed down and came to a stop in the quarry. Nearly a dozen of his fellow gladiator mechs were already there, being worked on by the mechanics. He was pleased to see how light the damage was, although it looked to him as if they had taken a lot of damage in the rear quarter. I'm going to talk to some friends, Tack said softly as Umark started to shut down his mech. All right, Umark said. The mech slowly shut down, winding sound moaning through the cockpit. He popped the armor hatch and took a deep breath of fresh air. He could smell scorched and burned metal, hot lubricant, and overheated cooling coals, relishing the cool air even though his bash mech was radiating heat. The ladder steps that he'd customized for his four-legged form deployed and he moved down them. Mechanics were rushing forward with coolant hoses, grinders, and welders as he moved past them. Feeling the flash of victory for the first mass combat, he moved towards where his fellow gladiators were, looking around for the knocker brew as he did so. That was alright, but it still felt lacking. 
he thought to himself. This is it, Ulmoak asked, staring at the last batch to come in. It was a stumbling junk, both legs ravaged down to the wall steel internal structure. Actuators were blown out, artificial muscle fibers were shredded or missing, armor was completely gone. The bashmak was stumbling junk, half of its weapons destroyed. That's it, boss, one of the mechanics said. Everyone else is dead or had to eject, and got slaughtered by those machines before they could even get out of the ejection seats. One of his fellow gladiators, Mustalak, said, shaking his head. It's if that bombing didn't happen and those aircraft hadn't started pounding them, they would have gotten me too. The fresh Dalek put his face up against his hands and began to cry. I can't do it, Ulmanok. I can't go back and do something like that again. Ulmanok nodded, staring at the gladiator's mech. It had been ravaged by missile fire, laser beams and particle beams. There was a hole clear through the lower torso of the mech, its skirting missing. Only forty had made it back. The mechanics had told Umoak that eight of them were too damaged to return to service quickly. It would take a week or more working full-time to fix them. On the other gladiators led Mustlek away, patting the smaller being on his back. The one leading Mustlek was glared at Ulmoat, glacking her beak in agitation. I'll not go back either, a bashmack driver, not someone to race to the slaughter, she clacked. Ulmoak shrugged. I will not force anyone to fight who does not want to. Boss, Tack spoke up for the first time in hours. Yes, Ulmoak answered, taking a sip of his narco brew. We need to talk, somewhere private. The AVI said. Its voice was deeper, less squeaky, and sounded very serious. Ulmoak got up and moved to Old Mine Supervisor's office, resting on the sling-like chair. What? Ulmoak asked, taking another drink. That happens again, and you're dead. Your family in this bunkers are dead, the AVI said. Ulmoak gave the equivalent of a shrug. All right. Boss, did you train at all? Tack asked. Simulators against the Terran VR representations of the precursor machines, Ulmoak said. He unwrapped a ration and shoved it into his mouth, pushing it into his jaw so that he could chew it softly. True, we did better in the simulations, but I think we did well. We stopped them, didn't we? There was one battle, boss. This is the 98th century, not a battlefield in Europe during the Bronze Age, Tax said. By the digital Omni Messiah, boss, did you all do solo fights in the simulators? We trained at the same time, why? Ulmoak asked. No, were you all just in the same VR battlefield? Tack asked. No, we watched each other to learn from them, Ulmoak answered. We knew that we could fight next to each other, we had fought one another, and we knew each other's tactics. Arena tactics, boss. This was one battle in a war that might last for months or years, depending on how much metal the precursors are willing to bring to bear. We did well, Ulmoak said. We outfought the... No, boss, you didn't. Your entire force destroyed less than 120 tanks, damaged only 200, and in return you lost almost 50 medium-grade mechs, Tack interrupted. You took over 50% casualties and only inflicted 20% on your enemy. If it wasn't for the 312 and the 117, those precursors would be digging your family out of the bunkers to tear them apart with their claws. Boss, you barely touched the infantry support. Ulmoak frowned. He remembered destroying at least half a dozen. Why didn't you shoot, boss? Why? Tack asked. His voice sounded close to tears. Why didn't you order them to turn their electronic warfare suites or battle screens on? Why did you sprint at them like that? Ulmoak thought. It's how we fight. 
I had friends in those mechs, boss. You didn't know what you were doing, and you ran straight into the meat grinder and got them killed, Tack said. I might only be eight hours old, but those were my friends. Where were hashed together. Half of them died in their sleep, boss. War boys dying in their sleep. My condolences. I don't know your kind form detachment so quickly. Olwak answered. Boss, what about your fellow gladiators? Tack asked. Olwak shrugged. They die gloriously in combat, just like they were all prepared to do in the arena. There was silence for a moment. No, boss, they didn't. There was silence for a moment. You got them killed. You wasted them. I'm not sure if I want to be a war boy anymore. And Tack was gone. Ulmoak sat in his office, sipping his narco brew, trying to understand what the AVI had been telling him. All right, hook me in, Ulmoak said, staring at the technician. The pentamet nodded, reaching out and hitting the keyboard. Ulmoak felt his awareness expand. He was over the battlefield, looking down, the feed from multiple Terran satellites all merged by the technicians. He had asked Tack to get him some data, and Tack had reluctantly agreed. He saw his mechs in ragged, staggering line, charging forward, some stumbling and recovering, some slid, a few almost tripped on buildings. He saw the designations come up in the line from the mechs and then around the precursor machines his mechs were running towards. He'd seen the markings on his radar and scanner screens and queried his implant. Artillery markers, type estimated time to impact, unit of origin, target. Ilmuat loaded the information into his data link of the quick ram, so it would automatically come to mind when he saw those markings again. The artillery shells hitting, creating a solid-looking barrier of white smoke, chaff, and EM jammers. Other artillery rounds, anti-armor, and fuel air started detonating amongst the tanks. He saw his mechs charge through the smoke, saw a new icon pop up. According to his data link, that meant the 117 Field Artillery Brigade had stopped firing. By the time they came out of the smoke, the last of the rounds had hit. Most of the infantry had been destroyed by fuel air. He stopped the replay and then watched from the cockpit. Each gladiator fought like masters, putting into their tanks, raking with water cannons, lasers, missiles, ballerinas in a ballet of death. Each one that went down fell to superior numbers, going down yelling and firing. Some ejected, the mech smashed a junk. After the last one, he rewound the sim and played it again. He watched his own mech at the gladiator sprint to the precursor tanks. Four of the mechs stopped firing missiles from just outside the smoke, firing heavy lasers and lighter autocannons that didn't kick so badly and could stray on target. One went down with a lucky particle beam that punched through the cockpit. The rest, the 75 charged in laying about them with their weapons in a frenzy. Three times Ulmoak saw a mech accidentally hit one another, once from the rear blowing the friendly mech apart. The tanks began concentrating on the mechs inside their own formation, shifting rapidly. The slower anti-tank vehicles maneuvered, getting shots on the mechs. Less than 30 of them had their battle screens and electronic warfare suites actuate activated. Most of them only had one or the other. As he watched, they pounded on, hammered, reduced to scrapped. One, then two, then three began to run away, and without battle screens, barely made it halfway to the smoke before getting destroyed. Only some of them ejected. He saw himself tell the others to run. Only a dozen made it, most of those staggering. The ones that had stayed by the fading wall of smoke turned and ran while they saw Ulumak coming. 
He kept watching as the artillery started hammering the tanks, followed by aircraft roaring to drop heavy explosives. It took six passes and two of the aircraft were blown out of the sky, and another artillery barrage before the precursor tanks were stopped. This amended an Ulmoak gasp when he opened his eyes. The techs were looking at him and motioned for Narkobru. After he had a few drinks to settle down, he nodded. Load up the file, Tack got me. I want to see it. I need to know, Ulmoak said. The world vanished in a dazzle of pixels, loading back into another composite view. This time with swifty light military-grade mechs, roughly the same firepower and armor and shielding as his own. They were advancing on nearly three times what Ulmoak and his forces had attacked. He had asked Tack to find him a sim like this, as close to what his own battle would have been like between the forces and Terran. He watched as they didn't sprint through the cloud, they walked, a slow, steady metronome of steps. He saw drones pop up. He had drones on his own mech but hadn't used them. From the cloud was fired heavy missiles. His data link implant identified them as long-range missiles. He watched them streak in, going in evasive maneuvers, hugging low to the ground, only popping up at the last second to hit the top of the precursor vehicles. The mechs fired staggered and one set another whilst the first reloaded, keeping the area flooded with missiles. More enemy tanks than were destroyed and more caps appeared to the point defenses. The more missiles hit. A few of the light mechs fired off smoke and chaff of their own, keeping the mechs surrounded by the cloud. More drones popped up getting target data for the mechs. The artillery joined in, the rounds impacting with more more accuracy thanks to the drones. The mechs expended 20% of the missile loads and stopped firing. The smoke started to clear and the mechs began advancing on the tattered remains of the tanks, firing long-range weapons. Only a few of the tanks had reached to strike back. Ulwak noted that the light mechs walked in teams, three to five concentrating on the heavier tanks till it exploded. They moved through the wreckage, passing at each wreck, firing short-range but powerful plasma guns, the type that the gladiators used to augment fist punches into the shattered precursor mechs. The replay sim ended as the mechs moved on. It didn't seem like a proper battle to Ulmoak, who was used to getting into his foe's face. It seemed almost dishonorable, until he saw the casualties. None. Hardly any armor damage, less than 20% new munitions used, including the drones. That group of mechs was still fighting, still engaging in combat. They had only been reloaded once during the day and had not needed to stop to be repaired. End Sim, Ulmwak said. When the world cleared, he lifted his narco-brew and took a long drink of it. Get the bush mech pilot still ready to fight. The mechanic nodded as Ulmoak went into his data link looking for anything that would help him. Twenty-five Bushmech pilots, that was all he had left willing to fight. All right, boss, we'll listen for now, the leader, Festrelek, named Crenton, said, his voice serious. I made a mistake, Ulmoak said honestly, and the others nodded in agreement. We trained in simulators, we trained in arena, but we did not train together. Worse, I found a quote from a long-ago Terran leader that summed up what happened. Simulation training is nothing like field exercise training. Field exercise training is nothing like battle. Battle is nothing like war. Men must be trained to work with one another and to know what the man on his left and right will do, to know and understand how an army makes a war. Ulmark finished in the quote and stared at his fellow gladiators for a long moment. 
I trained us for one-on-one -on -one fighting. We practiced in our max, but we did not do what the Terrans call field exercises, and this is why I led you all to your deaths. We should have trained all together to work as one, like cogs in a well-made machine, he finished. Watch the recording I sent you, look it over, see how the Terrans fight, how the military fights, Ulmoak said. He heaved a deep breath. Then decide if you'll wish for a fight with me, because that is how we must fight and there is no time for practice. The others nodded, slowly breaking away from the group, leaving Ulmoak alone. Boss, Tak said quietly. Yes, Ulmoak asked. You don't have long, Tak said. How long, Ulmoak asked. A few hours. The precursor, the Jotun nearby, he sent more, a lot more. All light armor units and robotic infantry. But a lot of them, they're carrying close-range anti-tank weaponry, Tak said. Boss, he can't stop them, not if you fight like that again. We call memo to AVI-4236A55Z24. Tak, request for reassignment denied. Train them up, teach them to fight. You have access to the training library. Use it. Help these people help themselves. Nothing follows. Kestamit defends the refinery successfully. Kestamit Copsex forces successfully defended the refinery held by the outlaw Ulmuak, despite the lack of Terran military forces. Copsex has reported only minimal casualties while destroying the entire precursor force of thousands sent to attack the critical facility, perhaps offered as a valuable refinery by the outlaw Ulmuak. Corpsec wishes to remind all corporation citizens and employees that they are only contracted to protect you if you are in a designated shelter. End of chapter First Contact Chapter 47 Olmoak looked at the gathered Bashmak pilots, all of them taking drinks out of their narco brews before setting their mugs down. He could see that they were worried, anxious, and afraid. He wondered for a moment what it was like for them, then mentally shrugged and got down to business. There's a lot of precursor machines heading for us. Apparently they're all carrying heavy short-range missiles, even the robot infantry, he told them. So they're gonna chew us up like cargo mech against a bash mech, Waxtow muttered. If we go in like we did, then yes, Ulmuak said. Do you all review the record I sent you? They all nodded. Did you see what we did wrong? Ulmoak asked. We took Arena back mechs into a military fight? Suxto asked. Ulmoak nodded. I had us take Arena mechs to war. Most of our weapons are modified, adjusted, calibrated for the Arena. Some of our weapons are still on low power. I've had the mechanics fixing them, putting them back to their original specs. The Terrans should have warned us, should have protected us better. Ixnartre said, Perhaps, Almuak agreed. He pointed at the speaker. Tak, tell us what we would need to learn to fight like the Terrans. The little speaker vibrated for a second. Okay, boss, you would need to learn radio procedure, move, maneuver, and firearms, weapon ranges, effective warboy use, how to use variable munitions, rank structure, mission planning, how to use satellite and recon drones, first aid, how to interlock a war plan, logistics, support, how to call in close air support and artillery, how to... That's good, Tack, Alboak said, seeing that half the pilots were already lost and confused. How long does it take the Terrans to train a Bashmak pilot? 
It takes nearly a year to train a Warmech pilot, and that's after taking a year to teach them the basics. Tack added, that's not counting some VR and EBR time. Then a Warmech pilot would be sent somewhere to do basic combat operations in a hazardous environment for two to three years. Much longer than we had, Albuak stated. Make no mistake, individually we fought brilliantly. We're all brave, we're all skilled, but we made a mistake. What mistake was that? Clemakit asked. We didn't listen to or talk to our war boys, Albuak said. Mine told me to turn on the battle screens, came asking me for a war plan, told me to turn on my electronic warfare, didn't understand what we were doing. Then let them pilot the bash mech, Suckster said. He can have mine. Doesn't work that way, boss, Tax said. Suckster looked at the speaker. I can run the reactor, focus the battle screens, run your camo, help you targeting, fire weapons when you tell me. Keep your EW at max performance. But to be honest, if you try to have me pilot a mech, I'd fall down. I don't have legs. Almoak nodded. He's never had a body. He doesn't know how to move. He handles stuff that we don't do instinctively because those are his instincts. He doesn't have all the wiring we do that we use to just stand up and keep our balance. Suckster sat back down, looking modified. But why didn't the Terrogan government stop us? Ixnotres asked. They had to have known that we'd get massacred if the government's job to keep us safe. Because they aren't our parents, Omoak stated. When everyone looked at him confused, he gave an equivalent of a shrug. I looked at the Terran Confederacy legal code. I can sum it up for those of us who grew up under the unified tyrants as one simple sentence. Almoak took a long drink, waiting for the others to say something. What? Ixnotre finally asked. Do as you will, as long as you do no harm to others, Almanac said. If you dance in traffic and get killed, the Terran government just lists your cause of death as being stupid. If you play with a rock cutter charge and chew on it and blow your head off, it's not the fault of the charge maker, the mine, or even your parents. It's your fault. Their protections were mentally unstable or defective for some children, but by and large, the Terran government just doesn't care. It doesn't pretend to care. I even let you know that it doesn't care. It expects you to take care of yourself if you're able to. All the Bashmek pilots looked at one another, confusion on their faces. Local governments might care, but the Terran Confederacy does not. Albuak shrugged. But, uh, but, um... Wokstow started and stopped. Who will keep us safe? What if a corporation put out a detective product? Who would protect us from them? That is different. The corporation would be punished if they did so knowingly, punished if they did not recall the product. But should you have been warned, go behind the government's back, acquire the product anyway, and your feet fall off, then that's your fault, Almoak said. He shrugged. I find it reassuring. But, uh, but... How will we stay safe without the government to protect us? Exnotre asked. Armwak stared at the other beings. Do you remember what we do? Exnotre shrugged. Pilot Bashmax? Illegally, we gamble. Illegally, we sell drugs. Illegally, rent out joy boys and coin girls. Illegally, we curse the government for stopping us from having fun. We call ourselves outlaws and gangsters. We boast that we are beyond the government, and now you want them to save you. Almoak laughed like bagpipes being jumped on by a gorilla. We are indeed intelligent life. Um, boss, Dax said. Yes, 
Alborak looked at the speaker. I got General Tucker on the line. He wants to know if you could talk. Bowden threw. Alborak wanted to know just how angry the Terran was. Alborak, can you hear me? The Terran asked. There was a lot of static. Yes, Alborak answered. Good, good. Listen, you've got a whole crap ton of light metal heading your way. That Jotun wants that refinery, and it looks like it wants it intact. You did better than I thought against the last group. At least you went out and engaged them. The signal fuzzed out for a moment. Damn it, can you hear me, Ulmoak? I can hear you. All right. They can't take that refinery intact. If you can't fight, you let me know. I'll scrap the whole place with atomics and park a bolo on it. I'll use airbus so your shelters stay intact. But it'll have to wipe the refinery off the map. If you and your men want to fight, engage them at range. Trucker said. If my men and I should fail, what will you do? Almoak asked. I'll do what I've planned to do since the beginning. I'll blow it off the map with a 1.2 megaton thermonuclear airburst of the and park a bolo over it. Trucker said. Then after the battle's over, I'll dig your families out once the precursors are defeated. Excellent. The shelters can withstand that. My men and I are willing to fight. Almoak said. Listen. I can't spare you a combat leadership AI. You don't have the bandwidth out there. The ABIs are the next best thing, but they don't do it without you. I know you're not soldiers, but do your best. The signal fuzzed over, devolving to a dots and dash code. The high-pitched static sound, some sounds like a metal being stressed and then thin tension released. I'm trying to get him back, Tax said. Go to your bash, Max. I'll be there shortly. We'll do our best to fight well. Alwax said. The other Bashmek pilots nodded, and Clump breaking up just streamed away. Read me, Alwax, do you read me? Trucker's voice came in. Yes, Alwax said. Listen, I don't know what your government is telling you, but this is an all-hands-on-deck situation. If I had my way, I'd be having 8th Infantry handing out rifles to your plant workers and having the rest of the civilians rolling bandages and loading magazines. Our plans estimated 12 Goliaths. 50-plus hit us across the system. We still aren't interlocked with your government and corporate forces. Your government refused to let us put ammunition on the ground, so we're running on nanoforges and creation engines till the slush spills out. There is no heavy metal to back us up, and I put out a call that even includes idiots and civilian irregulars, Trucker said. If I'd known how it was going to go down, I would have disregarded protocol and interlocked you earlier despite your government saying that they could handle anything that came across the boundary zone. Understood, Almoak said. The Terrans had thrown the dice with their war plan, but come up triple falls. Do your best, Almoak. Every precursor you turn to scrap helps. It's that bad, Trucker said. Trucker out. Goodbye, Almoak said, standing up, draining the last of his narco brew and heading out to the cave, blinking at the sunlight. The Terrans had misjudged. Tack, prepare pleasure and glory for combat operations, please. Okay, boss, Tack said. Boss, uh, do you really think it's that bad? He would not lie to me. There is no profit or advantage in it, Alwax said. Do you think you'd really use atomics? Tack asked. I would. Boss, we don't have artillery or close air support and the sat links are down, Tack said. You're going to want to start loading EW rounds in your missile banks after this. I should have thought of it. It's all right. We cannot account for everything. We shall do our best. Ulwak said. He tapped the narco into his leg and checked the screens. 
The layout was strange, but Almoak knew he'd quickly get used to it. He wasn't like every other Langtalan who prayed and moaned when things changed. He wasn't a good Langtalan. He knew that. There was something wrong with him. Everyone said so. He couldn't bring himself to care about what good Langtalans cared about. But he could keep the precursors from digging his aunt and uncle and cousins out of the shelters and tearing them apart. It's raining. Lots of vaporized metal and ash and droplets. That still fuzz the senses a little, depending on range. I'll compensate as best as I can, boss. Huck said. Two miles to target. All bash, Max. Slow to a walk. Calibrate for a long range. Umoak said. Ready drones for launch. Boar boys will pilot them. He was surprised that Exnartere did not remind him that he was not the boss of her. There is close to 10,000 of them. Phew, Tak said. Drones ready. Everyone, launch your drones. Let's get a look at the enemy, Elwax said. Remember to put the feed on the screen and look at it. The drones bumped up from the launchers that had previously been used to launch fireworks. Elwax watched slightly disinterested as the fast little aircraft activated their cameras and moved into position. Elwax could tell that the warboys had discussed their plans with one another. Some went wide, some went high, some stayed low, and others swept forward in a fast line. His own mech chugged at three, five percent of the total load of his drones. The landscape was different than it looked like on the maps. There was a valley where they had not been nearly a mile across. A large gouge ripped through the earth in the middle of the valley, creating a canyon nearly a hundred meters deep. The precursor robots had been forced by terrain to split their forces, they were crossing what looked like a smooth stone, broken by slight ripples. What caused that? Almoak asked. Orbital strike, Tack answered. Caught one of the Jotun big boys out in the open, a mobile refinery heading towards you. What's left of it is at the bottom of the canyon. I see, Almoak said. The precursor robots were mostly hover, though and with what looked like crude copies of the Terrans hanging off every surface. Holding tight and missile launch tubes, there were things that looked like crustaceans, things with tracks, things that walked on stilt legs, others that slowly turned as they hovered. Simulations usually showed the precursors using hundreds of thousands of the same craft. Alwak made a small note to himself to change the parameters of his sims. Recommendations? Almoak asked. Tack had been created to fight walls. Almoak felt it would be foolish to disregard his knowledge. He would ask Wokstow what the best fruit knockabrew was. Chaff mortars first, since we know the wavelengths of the chaff we use missiles to start off with. Run EW suits. If they respond with heavy missile fire, pop out the chaff and flares. Tack said, keep them at a distance. They look to all have short and medium range weaponry. Tack hummed a second. This was tailor-made to slaughter you if you tried the same tactics. Logical, Almoak stated. He opened a channel. Missile volleys first. Let the warboys select targets and allocate the missiles. You launch and watch. Boss, we really like doing this. We're used to helping, Tack said. Give the word. We're ready. All bash mechs, check your number. Even will fire, then odd will fire. That way someone is always firing missiles, Almoak ordered. The drones were getting wiped out, but they were transmitting more than enough data. They'd identified the point defense radar's wavelength, transmitting it to the mech's warboys, which loaded the scanner data into the mortar shells. 
The mortars thumped, previously used for fireworks and colored smoke, and the mortar shells dropped down. The precursor machine's point defense hit a lot of them, but that still left a chaff deploy, degrading their point defenses and letting more spread the chaff. The screen got a little fuzzy, but because the warboys knew the wavelength of the chaff they had been designed to foul, the warboys could compensate to tell the missiles what to look for. The mechs, all 450 to 500 tons of war machine, all began firing missile volleys. One group firing while the next reloaded. The missile screamed out, unable to use stealth like their stellar counterparts, instead just relying on speed and bare bones maneuvering as they went hypersonic, roaring in at over Mach 10. While the precursor machines were nearly blind, the missiles could see clearly through the small hole in the chaff scanner defeated and jamming. We should start mixing EW warheads, Tack suggested. What are those? Alwak asked, feeling his mech shudder as he launched missiles. He noticed another reason for the staggered volley. It let his mech cool slightly between launches. Strobes, chaff, jammers, screamers, coffers, magic mirrors, stuff like that, gives them false readings, jams up their sensors, tries to infect them with computer viruses through scatter input. It's to make your missiles more effective, Tak said. Yeah, do that, Alborak said. Um, how about one in twenty? We don't have many loaded, Tak said. Yes, Alborak said, watching the different feeds. He had expected the warboys to aim at all the front ones. Instead, the missiles were slipping in between the enemy EW and point defense, knocking bigger and bigger holes in the point defense net. This does not feel right, Jistrix said suddenly. You would prefer the last fight? By all means, run down there, and we will use the data of your death to plan our assault, Halborak said. Jestrix didn't answer. Almuak noticed that some of the infantry robots were trying to use the missiles as point defense, but in a section of the grid that they were scanning around as if they were blind. What do you see, Tack? What? Tack asked. Grid D7. The infantry robots look blind, Almuak said. Got the wavelength, gonna see if it works. Other warboys are loading it now. Firing. Almuak watched as it looked like the robotic infantry suddenly went blind. Enemy is entering extreme range from direct fire weapons, Tack said. What's our missile count? Albuak asked. We're at 90% still, Tack said. Back up, keep firing, Albuak ordered. Activate battle screens in EW, fire long-range energy weapons, and consume ammo this far out. Will do, boss, Tack said. Everyone acknowledges. More and more gaps were appearing in the point defense. The infantry weapons were obviously single-shot, slow missiles that the incoming missiles just rolled to avoid. The infantry robots began firing with the additional weapons, laser, plasma, but obviously they couldn't see. Several times Albuak targeted reticle flashed yellow and he took the shot with a heavy laser or particle beam cannons. His arena skills came in handy here, making difficult shots quickly, knowing how to cycle his weapons to keep the heat manageable. They're retreating, Tak said. Move forward, Almuak ordered. Boss, Tak said. Yes, pop a drone, sweep it around behind them. It might be an ambush. Precursors don't care about casualty numbers beyond resource expenditure and gain, Tak said. Remember that the Jotun wants the refinery in the mines. Understood. Do so, Almuak ordered. He watched the drone launch, configured for stealth, and sweep around low and slow. See, boss, what did I tell you? 
Tack said. The machines hiding just beyond the hills, beyond the range of the sensors, were massive. Large, flattened eggs bristled with weapons. You would have just walked right into that. I see, Alboax said. He examined the data and the drone was streaming back. Heavier weapons than his mech mounted, thicker point of fence, thicker armor. The machines were heavier than his own mech, which was the largest of the bash mechs. The drones beeped excitedly and sent back the wavelengths of the precursor machines we were using. That narrow gap that he'd left for his own missiles. What if we did this? Fire EW with the same profile as we've been using for the entire first wave. Then drive in behind them, firing off EW in our gap. Then drive their missiles through that way, Elboak suggested. Let me talk to the boys, boss. Keep up the farm prior, but don't advance, okay? Tack said. Everyone, keep your missile fire. Don't not advance. They might more hiding, trying to lure us in. Elboak ordered. He waited, feeling bored, watching the missiles pounding the Pico's machines. He felt nothing. Okay, boss, we've got it figured out, Tack said. It showed a quick sim of the attack and looked fine to Ulmoak. Should we do it? Go ahead, Almwak said. He gave a sigh and injected a straight stim into his leg. He was getting sleepy from boredom. He watched as the missiles reconfigured, firing order, and then launched. They went in the bigger machines in two prongs, EW leading the way. The precursors held off on firing on their point of fence, obviously intending to lure the missiles in for better targeting data. When the second wave of EM cut loose, it became obvious the big machines were blind. The missiles rolled, chose their targets, and then shifted into a straight line. Why are they doing that? Umuak asked. Fire the leader targeting, Tak answered. The missiles all drove into the same point, a crater getting deeper and deeper until finally the last ten or so of the long-ranged missiles powdered into the interior of the precursor machine. Fire and vaporized metal gouted out the wound. Five of the machines exploded. The rest of them turned to face the two directions the missiles had streaked from. They were twenty left. Fire again, reverse targeting EW, Alvorak answered. Oh, good idea, boss, Tag said. The second set began to launch. Fire third set immediately after, double volley, maximum acceleration, straight into their face. No EW, just speed and warhead, Almwak ordered. Okay, boss. The second volley was slowly approaching, hugging the ground, swerving around obstacles. The third volley roared out. Bypassing the retreating combat machines, less than 10% were knocked out. The second volley activated EW drones and went supersonic immediately afterwards. At the same time, the third volley went hypersonic. The precursor machines hit from three sides, the jammers off bandwidth and the seekers using the wrong scanner data. Had their point defense systems fall apart, the missiles hammered in over half the vehicles exploding. Same thing, reverse, and a fourth on the high parabolic arc, Almuak answered. Boss, our ammo levels, Tack reminded. I'll send half back for reload while the rest of us stand guard, then we'll switch off, Alwak said. We have no SAT scans and no battlefield data. We relies on our eyes, Almuak stated. If you're sure, Tack said, what would be your advice, Almuak asked. Um, I don't know, Tack said. Then let us try it my way, Almuak said. The third body tore into the massive machines with even better effect. Almuak watched as the last of them exploded and then ordered the fourth body to clean up the last of the original machines. He sighed and sent back half of his pilots to reload their ammo. 
He felt nothing. That did not feel proper, Drakez said, staring at his mech, which was being reloaded with ammunition. It lacked glory and honor. Alboak drew his pistol, ignoring the sudden hiss of worry from the onlookers, and he tossed it to Drakez. There you go, feel free to put that in your mouth. At least then nobody else will get killed and your mash mech will still be available for the same effect. I didn't mean, Drakez said, carefully putting the sneedler on the table. It's all right, friend, I realize what you mean. Alwak said, walking over to the table. He picked up a narco brew bottle and cracked it open, putting the needler back in his pocket with his two lower hands. He offered to Chris the bottle, and when the other being took it, grabbed himself another one. Doesn't the lack of glory bother you? You fought the hardest for glory, Yeltrek asked. Alwak shrugged. What is the use of glory and honor if nobody survives to witness it? Who do we point our finger at to call out to witness us? If the precursors kill everyone, we will help the Terrans destroy the menace and rebuild the arena. If we fall, then we witness one another, and perhaps the Terrans will witness what we did in historical drivers. Alwak took a swig of Narkabrood. My parents, my siblings, my husbands, my brood carriers, my podlings, they're all in the shelters. I care not for honor and glory. I care only for them, Blunt Ketek said lifting up a knocker brew. I must die, and this trucker must use atomics to scar away the factory so the precursors no longer care. Then that is what must be done. I'm with you, Mookie. I thank you, Alboak said, nodding. I will force none of you to fight who do not wish to. Nap, eat, while your bash mechs are reloaded. Alboak turned away, walking to the nearby holotank. Tack, show me a replay of the battle. Point out what you see. Alboak ordered... More battles followed, mostly the Jotun sending more mechanized minions to take the factory and Almuak wiping them out with missiles and long-range weaponry. It was becoming almost mechanical, something Almuak felt it could be done by machine, not even requiring a complex programming as tech. It was the second day that things went sideways, to use the Terran term. Precursor forces down to 15% remaining, Tack said. Alwak noticed that even the AVI seemed bored. Missiles and indirect fire munitions are down to 60%. Keep up the pressure. We'll rotate out and reload now. We can finish off the remainder, even at one-third strength, Alwak ordered. Gotcha, boss, Tack said. 16 heading back, 8 staying, going to rapid fire. The last of the precursor machines bowed easily. Even as his ammunition levels dropped, Almuak joined the eight moving through the wreckage, using lasers to destroy any power source, destroying any possible active precursor machines. Boss, I have incoming aircraft. They're not even trying to be sneaky about it, Tag said. How so? Almuak asked. They're broadcasting IE and flying in a normal flight path. They say that they're corpsec and planetary executors, Tag said. They're hating you. Put it on the display seven, Almuak said focusing his cyber-eye on it. A Langtalan, his crest inflated, his sash covered in decorations, appeared on the screen. He looked at Almuak clad in cooling vest and body blanket, only to have curls his tendrils in disgust. The sight of the cyber-eye made the Langtalan look physically ill. "'May I help you?' Almuak asked, firing a laser into the cracked hull of a weird-looking crab with reds. "'I am second high most executor Pruthesetic.' and command a corpsec, the executor's forces. The Langtalan snapped, shut down your engines and present yourself for arrest. 
Why would I do that? Alborak asked, watching the ship swoop down. They landed outside the debris field, and the signs lowered to allow being empowered armors to exit the craft. Planetary Corporate Council and the Planetary Executive Council will take control of those shelters you illegally built and put them to proper use. The Executor huffed. You will be placed under arrest and remanded for summary execution as known criminal who has been caught in the possession of illegal technology and weaponry. I will not allow them to eject my podlings from the shelters just so corporate executives can take their place. Plunkitek snarled over the comlink. And if I object? Olmoyak asked. He turned his bashmack to face the dropships, aware that the other eight mechs were moving up to next to him, keeping far enough apart that their battle screens would rub together. Then you will be destroyed, the executor stated, his tendrils shaking with excitement. Almorak felt something, that thing that he had felt so long ago, just out of reach. Come then, Almorak answered. Witness us. 8th Infantry Division Memo We're still getting pushed back to the tempo is slowing. Looks like the precursors have been forced to start manufacturing reinforcements and replacements. They're going to be desperate for resources soon. Keep up the pressure. Nothing follows. 144th Ordnance Company. We've got the breathing room to reload the ammo stalls from the 5th Irregulars. Our creation engines and nanoforges can cool down and de-slush on the way. That could be probably be a use actual ammunition instead of civilian versions. We'll head out once we're done reloading. First armored recon. Nothing follows. Kistamit defends refinery successfully through the night. Kistamit, Scorpsex forces, working in planetary executive forces, have held off heavy attacks by the precursor forces throughout the last day and night as the Hulunga Industrial Facility managing to clear the area. The Corpsex and executive forces intend to engage the criminal Ulmanok and liberating the facility and the shelters beneath it in just hours. The government shelters beneath the facility should be open to senior executives and higher soon. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 48 The second high most expected illegal fighters in the mechs to charge these dropships. In nearly 2,000 power armor ready to swarm the nine patchwork-looking mechs in front of him to pry the pilots out so that they could summarily be executed. He was personally looking forward to exiting the cramped shelters of the center of the executor headquarters and moving to what seismic scouting had shown as a heavy and elaborate shelters beneath the mining facility. He already knew that he'd use his planetary authority to order the Terran anti-aircraft to point defenses units to either leave or follow his orders then eject the rabble and useless drones from the shelter so those who, by right, should have been in those shelters could take their rightful place. Ulmoak didn't bother charging. He opened the armored covers of his missile launchers and started firing. The power armor, barely taller than his foot, erected the long-range lasers and particle beams. Armor exploded. The missiles programmed to hammer through precursor armor sliced through the dropships like butter and the point defense barely had time to come online before the hypersonic missiles started blowing huge holes in the ships. The feeding flickered and died as three quarters of the dropships exploded into shards, the shrapnel ripping through the still forming ranks of power armor. Autocannons, lasers, particle beams, mag shot rounds, all ripped into the power armor as the mech pilots triggered a second salvo. 
a few power armor groups charged, using their jump packs to take to the air in big hops. The mech pilots swept them out of the sky with lasers and autocannons. Within seconds, the armor was fleeing back to the dropships, several of the surviving handful of dropships attempting to take off, only for the third volley of missiles to smash into them, collapsing deflector shields, overwhelming point defense, and what was more used to thrown homemade explosives than hypersonic missiles in long streams of screaming, swirling missiles, some of which exploded into submunitions, that kicked into the grav generators and slammed tungsten steel tips into the hulls of the dropships with nearly Mach 20. Goodbye, Executor, Ilwerk said emotionlessly. The image of the second highmost, he then opened up his rotating autocannon, slamming the 200mm shells, fired one every half a second as the barrels rotated into the hull. The single burst blew through the entire ship, exiting out the other side and slamming against the next one. He knew that his uncle, his aunt, his cousins, so young and innocent, would remain in their shelters as he raked the last of the power armor infantry with his non-consumable munition weapons. He felt something then, a flicker. Something. He didn't know what, but he felt it for a second. All enemy down, Tack reported. I don't think that went the way they expected. If it did, it was a poor plan. Elmoak stated, all pilots back to the choke point. The Jotun undoubtedly hopes that we are damaged. The other eight pilots flashed icons for ascent, following him back. Plunkatik raked the shattered ranks of the power armor once more, just for good measure, before turning and following Ulmoak. Her brood carriers were swollen with squirming prodlings growing from the eggs that she had deposited and her husband's fertilized. She would not allow some pampered executive who had looked down on the streets that she had fought and clawed to survive on take their place. If she was fated to die, then so be it. Her husbands would sing her glory to the podlings. The nine mechs, shimmering with heat, moved back to the end of the valley when waited. Ulmoak was almost ready to radio back to find out what was taking so long when Tack spoke up. We've got satellite again. The mad lad trucker put half a dozen bolos in orbit. He did it. He actually did it, Tack laughed. Oh, and the 144th Ordnance is arriving. They say they're going to load us up with munitions. They've even got maintenance techs and parts. All right, everyone, let's head back, Ulmoak ordered. Everyone was silent as they marched back. Gone was the chatter, the jokes, the usual talk. Instead, Ulmoak had noted that everyone appeared to be exhausted, even though they had been getting rest. He didn't feel tired, just bored. Tack, Ulmoak asked. Yeah, boss, what's up? Tack asked. Can you check everyone's vitals? I'm worried that they may be tired. Ulmoak said. Yeah, just a second, Tack said. After a moment, he answered. A little tired, but no more than normal. Why do they seem so exhausted? Why are they so silent? Usually, Distraxel does not be silent, but he has said hardly two sentences since the first battle. Ulmoak said, Is it, what is it called, a bioweapon? There was a silence for a moment. Boss, do you not know about battle fatigue? Battles make you tired, of course. That's why I insist on nap and sleep between. Ulmoak said, That's why I suggested stims before the battle. Well, it's... Wait, you did what? Tack said, boss, that's not a good idea. It's not a good idea even with a professional standing force. Why not? Ulmoak asked, looking at the unused impact sitting in his pouch. It messes with your body chemistry. I mean, real bad. Just a few minutes of combat can leave you exhausted for a day or two. That's why sleep is so important to commanders. 
Tak said, Boss, you guys aren't trained for this. You should start to need rotating. Like with the ammunition, Elmoak asked. Like that, only take like half of your force out. Just have the rest and stand by, eating and sleeping. Tak said, Some of them will feel too tired to drink liquid or even eat. Oh, Elmoak said, he felt fine. He'd assumed that the others did too. Who should I have sleep? Tak sighed, I don't know. According to my files, have the ones who took the most damage get some sleep. They're going to be the most tired. I shall follow your advice, Warboy, Alboak stated. He wished he had his narco brew. Captain McGran, 144th Ordnance Company, you must be Ulmoak, the Terran said. He still stuck Ulmoak as an odd when he saw a human who wasn't a warborg. The Terran had on body armor with strength enhancements and a backpack more like a hump on his back, but nothing like the heavy body of a warborg. His face was fuzzy, orange and white, with a muzzle adorned with whiskers and a black nose, his mouth full of sharp-pointed canine teeth. I am known as such, Omoak said. He looked around at the humans that were running everywhere, some carrying technical-looking equipment that must about weighed them by five to six times. Some in the massive cargo mech frames were grabbing blocks of missiles and cannons and mag shot and moving them over. This is all mil-spec ammo, variable mission configurable missile warheads, all in the hypersonic range. Mission configurable mortar rounds, same with your cannon and mag shot, the Terran said. I'm having my men to make sure your VIs know how to use them. You have advanced virtual intelligence, Omax said. The Terran raised an eyebrow. Really? Yes, Omax said. There was a silence for a moment before the human cleared his throat. Well then, uh, we'll reload your stores, some medical supplies, and medical VI. Drop you some food and water and get moving. We've got an armor brigade down to slush, the human said. Very well, Omoak said. The Terran turned away, shaking his head and flicking his ears. He'd dealt with the Langtalans before, and usually they were blowing saliva, rattling those tendrils around, raising and lowering their chest, and shaking their jowls. That one had just been still, his eyes dead and empty, more life in the cybernetic eye. He's probably just tired, Captain Morgan thought to himself, wishing that he could scratch the base of his tail through the armor. Alwak moved over to where the narco brew and food had were strewn on it on the table. He took a bottle of brew and some condensed Nutri-Cud and watched the humans run around. It looked like a complete anarchy to him. But within half an hour, the Terran who had talked to him came walking back up. You're good to go. We can't drop the nanoforge or creation engine here. Too much metal in the rocks. They'd just start doing extraction without taking a few hours to put up the proper shielding and running the proper protocols. The Terran said, his whiskers trembling. The same reason we can't drop you an AI core. The AI would get drunk on the EM scatter, and then the metal without enough shielding and our nanoforges are mostly slush. Very well, Almoak said. The Terran looked at him for a moment and then shrugged and headed towards the vehicle, a sleek-looking hovercraft with a squad of barrel iron slug rapid-fire guns in the back. The Terran, leaning against it with a white stick in his mouth, blowing smoke as he watched the sky. Elmoak knocked on the table an almost empty bottle, getting his pilot's attention. Once he was sure that he had it, he spit out the plastic fiber wadding in the synth cud on the ground and looked at them. Everyone, get some sleep. We'll have satellites now to watch the Picosis for us, Elmoak said. I'll wake you if you are needed. From now on, we only go out in groups of twelve with a leader. They all nodded, breaking up, and Elmoak watched them leave. 
He moved over to the highmost mechanic, Cricket, and looked over the ammunitions and stalls. Alwak noticed the smaller being had the headset on, obviously speaking with his own AVI. How well are we now stocked? Wilwak asked. Cricket looked up, nodding. Very well, these missiles, there's something else, boss. Our tubes can fire them, luckily. And the parts? Alwak asked. A little problem there. If we have to fix the knee, we'll have to replace both actuators, or you'll run with a limp, because these are top-shelf stuff, Cricket said. He wiped his hands on his coveralls up and shading his eyes. You sure we'll be getting warning if someone's coming? I'm sure, Olwak said. He looked around. I must go speak to another, ensure the mechs are loaded and repaired. Cricket nodded. Sure, boss, sure. Alwak cropped away, heading into the office where Tack had been brave enough to tell him that he had failed. He moved in, picked up a shielded communicator, normally used to talk to corporate headquarters in the capital, and plugged it in, and dialed the comm code he'd memorized, leaned back and sitting sling, and waited. His uncle's face appeared. Apartment 2621. Uncle, Alwak said, reaching out and touching the screen. He could almost feel something, something he felt when he'd watched the thumpmen escort his uncle to the shelters. Ulmwak, his uncle said. Ulmwak expected the older Langtalan to inflate his crest, curl his tendrils, and shake his jaws in rage. Instead, the older man looked behind him, then looked back at the screen. Are you well? Ulmwak nodded. I am uninjured. Is it terrible up there? The news says that the planetary forces are defeating the precursors across the fronts and that they will be defeated in a matter of days, his uncle said. He paused. That is not true, is it? Almuak shook his head. No, uncle, it is not. Even the humans are fighting hard. The factory. To the bowels with the dying ones with the factory. Almuak, how are you? The older male repeated. I am uninjured, Almuak said. I wish to know that you and our family are not suffering. The older Almwak's tumbrils trembled with something Almwak didn't understand. It is crowded, it is noisy at times, but your sec men are keeping order. We're just not suffering. But what about you? Almwak shrugged. I'll fight to defend the shelters. Not only are you there, but loyal workers and their families. Families are my Bashmek pilots. His uncle stayed silent, reaching back with four hands and touching the screen at the corners. Please, nephew, be careful. Almwak shrugged again. It'll be what it'll be, uncle. I shall fight hard to prevent the precursors from reaching you. Shall I fall? The Terrans have stated that they will protect you. You... you managed to make a deal with the Terrans? His uncle asked. No, they value you and the others and will seek to protect you. Almwak said. No deal, no bargain. They just have sworn to witness what I and my pilots do here and protect you. Loy, who is that? Almwak heard his aunt ask. Something inside him twisted, and he felt something for a moment. Tell her I was just a thumpman, Almwak said. Stay alive, uncle. Before the uncle could reply, he unplugged the communicating device. The feeding went away, and he picked up a half-empty bottle of whiskey and took a long drink. Boss, are you all right? Tack asked. Of course, Almwak said, finishing off the bottle and setting it on the desk. He tabbed the narco injector into his arm. Why wouldn't I be? Just checking. You should get some sleep, Tack said. I have things that must be done. You should get some rest, defrag, recompile, and sector check yourself, Ulwak said, sliding out of the sling. All right, boss. Call me if you need me, Tack said. 
I will, Omuak promised, clopping away through the deserted refinery office. Omuak stood on the edge of a valley, staring at the howl beyond. The Jotun had pushed more vehicles and more and more at his bash mechs. Tack had told him that the Jotun had been forced to allocate a heavy combat robots to defend against the Terran combat vehicles. Now, the entire valley was nothing but broken, scorched, carbonized, and melted metal, slagged internals of robots, and a pair of dead bashmaks. I screwed up. I didn't fall back fast enough when the aircraft came in, Plunkatech said, shaking her head. Zimkmak and Tikriz got caught up by the bombing run. Half my bashmaks got seriously damaged, and I've had to send the back for repair. Were they witnessed? Elmwak asked carefully. Yes, Plunkatuk said softly. Hail, how dead, she said. She fired a single hypersonic missile. No guidance, no warhead, just a dead missile on a high parabolic arc that left a white trail in the sky as it sped towards the Jotun and vanished in the distance. Did they have family in the shelters? Elmwak stared into the destroyed valley that had once been the site of a luxury vacation homes for wealthy executives. The river was full of toxic runoff from the battles. Yes, both did, Plunkatuk said. Then they will live on, Almwak said. Boss, boss! Tex suddenly broke into the somber moment. Take a knee! What? Almwak asked. He heard Plunkatuk's warboy yell the same thing. This! Tuck threw a wire frame of the old screens, just down on one knee, arms covering his chest, face tilted down, hands over his face, leaning slightly forward. Alwak took the position, feeling shattered Picos machines crumble even further under his knees. Why do we? Alwak started. A bright flash, a tore opened the sky, and Tack turned off the screens of the cockpit completely opaque. This rumble started, the speakers howled with static, sparks shot out forward of the control panel. The rumble got louder and harder, and suddenly a shock wave hit them from the front. He actually felt his mech slide back a few meters. Something, moving at 500-ton bulk like it was an adult pushing but defiant child. He then has a split second of calm, then the blast hit again. Harder, and Olmwak found himself leaning forward. Ejecting missile bay, digital omni-messiah help us! Tak screamed out. Another space, then a third shockwave. This one lifting him slightly, giving him a brief feeling of weightlessness. Impacts hit his battle screens, and Ulmwark was sure that it was the wreckage of the precursor vehicles being thrown against the bash mech by some giant hand. Ulmwark felt something inside, just for a second. His mech hit the ground, and he narrowly avoided putting his hand out to stabilize himself before Tack got his gyros under control. Here comes the boom, boss! Tack screamed, and Ulmwark could hear the fear in the AVI's voice. The roar! The explosion wasn't a sound, it was a physical thing, at first slammed into his bash mech with steel-covered knuckles. He managed to keep on one knee, managed to keep upright, light shined through the cracks that he didn't even know were there around his modified cockpit cover. He saw his battle screens fail right before his screens dissolved into static. Tack screamed in agony. The radiation meters inside the cockpit began to howl. Uvid panels blew out, showering Ulmwak's flanks with visplas. Static howled through Ulmwak's implant, and his cyber eye suddenly went white and shut down. His mech went dead. It was silent, 
just the ticking of cooling metal, not even a faint hum of the fusion reactor. Elwak sat there, looking around in curiosity as the Cybi rebooted. Failed, rebooted again and came online, shot with static that slowly cleared. Its cockpit cover was cracked in two places. The foot-thick armor-plast crazed white and shot through the spiderwebs. Carefully, slowly, Ulmoak restarted his bash mech. It took five minutes before it started up sluggishly. The fusion reactor had to be flushed twice before it would start. The mag bottle projectors overloaded and charged, ionized, and the circuitry was still full of straight charges. Boss, Tack said, Boss, are you alive? I am intact, Ulmoak said. You screamed. It sounded like pain. Tack made a sound that reminded Ulmoak of a cough. Particle steat. Someone saw a chance and hit the Jotun with a battery. Tack coughed. A plasma wave phased motion gun from near orbit or a near sea velocity shell or a main near sea velocity shell or a main ion cannon from the battleship. It hurt, Almwak asked. That was a 1.4 kiloton EMP at the end, boss. It was like getting hit in the face with a bash mech fist to you. It blew straight through the particle shields. It took down the battle screens, wrecked up everything, Tack said. He buzzed a second. I'm all hashed up. Sector errors, CRC errors. I'm pretty fragmented. Is it safe to stand up? Almwak said. Yeah, boss. It should be, Tack said. I had to eject the missiles and plasma rounds. Take it easy. Defrag and perform maintenance on yourself, Tack. Almwak said, standing up the mech slowly. Only one of these displays worked. A small one for the drone feeds, and Ulmoak shifted his forward view of it. It was nothing but static, so he rebooted his screens. Triggering a data link, he brought up the comms codes with the seven Bashmik pilots that he had been with and dialed them. Only four answered. Follow me. We need to repair. Mr. Cook's ammunition exploded. He didn't eject his ammunition in time, Plunkettuk said. I can see old Sir Rat's mech. It's torn apart. What happened? Ventra asked. Orbital shot. They took the shot at the Jotun. Elwak told them. His display cleared up just in time for him to look at where the Jotun was. By the forgotten brood mothers, Plakatuk said slowly, and Ulmoak knew that she was seeing it too. The clouds were gone, swept away by the blast. A huge mushroom cloud had formed, with other clouds riding up. Black and red, with fires burning in the huge cloud at the top, Lightning flickering in them. The whole sky looked like it was burning. I think they got it, Wuxtow said softly. Let us hope. Do not count the credits before with the end of the match, Ulmoak warned. Let us return. We need to repair and refit. The others, used to Ulmoak's calm voice and unshakable demeanor, followed him as they slowly trudged back. The trees were burning, what few buildings that remained were flattened, debris from the valley had crashed into the landscape, the heavier and larger pieces burst, smoke covered everything, dust and small debris hanging in the air. My boy boy is stuttering, sounds drunk, Wokstyle said, order him to defrag and recompile, Olmwak said. They moved through the shattered day, Olmwak piloting his damaged bash mech by a single screen that barely worked, until they reached the quarry. Twice more, the rumble of great explosions washed over them. In the quarry, the stacks of ammo were tipped over. The cranes on the edge of the quarry had fallen into. Four of the bash mechs were on their backs, and one was getting up slowly. 
another was gutted, and chassis were burning from where the missiles inside them had detonated. Fires were still being put out, and Olwak noted that it looked like everything had been pushed slightly towards the far side of the quarry. Olwak stopped and powered down his mech, noting that the survival core case for TAC no longer shined a green light, just a yellow one that slowly flashed. He tried to open the cockpit, but the motor just sputtered and clattered on stripped gears. Olwak had to have the mechanics remove the canopy. The air smelled of seared metal, smoke, and pulverized rock. Seeing the clouds in the distance, with the naked eye, not one small screen was impressive, Olwak noted. Other Bashmek pilots got out and just stared, their jaws hanging open. A few, like Wokstal, started crying. Olwak went into the office to check the status of the shelters. He had to go back out, get a battery, and attach it to the lone comlink that he could find still working, one as he applied power. They were fine, they'd barely felt the shock. Still, he stood by the desk, thinking for a long time in the darkness. The power was still out. The only connection to the shelters was a single shielded hard line and a single freight elevator that still had power and was protected by a 10-meter thick endosteel shutter. After a moment, he made his decision, going out to the mechanics. I need some parts and your help, he told Cricket. The mechanic nodded. Together, they set to work. It was raining. The clouds were heavy. The rain was full of ash, leaving sticky black streaks on everything. The mechanics were still working on the bash mechs, replacing armor, damaged molecular circuitry, replacing actuators that had been frozen up from the sleet and particles or from the impact of debris. Bash mechs were being reloaded as Ulmoak started on his remaining pilots. He was down to ten. Several pilots had been killed by the shockwave, picked up and thrown against something hard enough to kill them. Some could not fight anymore. Unable to stop weeping, some had died in the blast by the canyon. He considered it worth it to kill the Jotun. We must keep fighting, Alwak said. Half them flinched. Those who cannot retreat to the shelters, Alwak ordered. Be with your families. You will witness those who stay. Three left. Alwak touched each one on the shoulder and bid them farewell. Cricket, send all of your essential mechanics to the shelters, Alwak ordered. Once the bash mechs are repaired and reloaded, you and the others retreat to the shelters. Boss, you're going to need us, Cricket said. He's waved his mechs. We're going to get damaged. Need us. Almwak shook his head. No, friend Cricket, we will not. He turned to Plunkertuk. Go to the shelter. Be with your podlings and your family. Plunkertuk shook her head. No, I will not hide while others fight to protect my family. Almwak frowned. I will need you down there. You will need me up here more. The female stared at Ulmwak for a long moment. Boss, I've been with you since we were welding metal forklifts. I know you. There are some things you don't get, and this is one of them, she said. Very well, thank you, Ulmwak said. She was right. Some things he just did not understand. He understood loyalty, though, and Blanketuk had denied turning the Execuse or the Corpsek, who had stolen the entire batch of Narkabru, sitting in the cell right next to Ulomak until his uncle had used his connections to set them both free. Moving over to the table, he picked up another wad of synth cud, jamming it into his jaws. He chewed it slowly, looking at the entrance to the cave. 
There was a crack in it, a big one. One of the engineers had put a strut in place to ensure that the cave stayed open, and beings were moving the ammo into the cave with the rest of it. Looking back at the Jotun, he could see that the clouds started to spread out. The sky looked bloody and bruised. Boss, you there, boss? Tack asked suddenly. I'm here, Bulboak said. I'm all better now, boss, Tack said. I was really torn up by the EMP and those particle bursts. I'm better now. Good, Olmwak said. Run diagnostics and pleasure and glory, please. Sure, boss, Tack said. After a few minutes, his voice came back. Boss, why is there a shielded encrypted high-speed data link connected to my survival core? What is that for? Emmanuel suggested it. Brent, Tack, Olmwak lied. Lying to his friends was wrong, but Olmwak had come to understand Tack. Oh, okay. The glory really is beat up. She's fully loaded, and they've got her largely repaired, but there's some serious armor damage into arms, and the shock absorbers on the crash cast are blown out, Tack said. Very well, informed the mechanics, Umwak said, but out of massive plasterings, the cut empty. They grabbed another knocker brew. Something was happening, he was sure of it. He stared off into the distance, where the Jotun was burning. Boss, boss, Tack's voice gave his attention. Yes, Ulmwak asked, opening his eyes. I was looking through the couple of drones that survived the blast. We've got trouble, boss, Tack said. What type? Ulmwak asked, getting to his feet. Metal incoming, lots of metal incoming. They're pouring out of the Jotun. It's an army, Tack said. I'm seeing everything. Repair bots, infantry, big bots, some flying in anti-grav, some on treads, and some just pulling themselves with one arm. They want the refinery to repair and bring back to life their god machine, Ulwak said. He whistled to get the attention of his pilots. Most of them were asleep and he sent a whistle through their comlinks. Start glory, Ulwak told Tank and then looked up at his pilots. The enemy are coming. How many? Wokstow asked. All of them, Ulwak answered. If you cannot pilot, retreat to the shelter. Three more blanched and left. One was Restalak, whose chest rings were broken and having problems breathing. That left five of them. Cricket, Elmwak said through his link. Yeah, the engineer asked. Take your people and hide in the cave. The precursors are coming. All of them, Elmwak ordered. Your mech isn't finished, boss, Cricket said. Obey me, was all that Elmwak said. All right, boss, we'll hide out in the back of the cave, Cricket said. The mechanics and workers streamed by, running for the cave. As the Bashmek pilots ran for the machines, Umoak stared at the burning horizon and idly injected the inside of his upper right arm with a narcostum, tossing the container behind him. He walked to the glory and looked at it. His pilot's couch was still exposed. Boss, you can't pilot like this. You're going to be here in minutes, he said. Do not fear, Ulmoak said. The sky screamed and Ulmoak looked up to see the shafts of light streaking across the sky, terminating in greasy-looking clouds. He heard weird fluttering and saw rockets firing towards the Jotun. Point defense and counter-battery, boss, Tack said. The Terran military is trying to help, but you're at the edge of the defensive range. Tell them we will be there soon, Ulmoak said, climbing the ladder. He didn't bother to retract it, just sat back in his couch and leaned back. Getting his mech sync up with his brain, he lifted on a hand and grabbed the ladder and tore it away. Moving over to the pile of armor, bent down and grabbed a piece, bending it around the backsmith's hands, walking slowly as he moved to Wokstow. 
Use your light lasers and weld this into my mech, he ordered. He slammed a piece into place, bending it and flexing it with the power of the mech's hand. You sure? Waxtile asked. I'm sure, Elmwax said. All right, boss, Waxtile said. Elmwax heard the hiss of the laser and moved his hand away from Waxtile told him to. He buckled down to his restraints and straps as Waxtile finished the job. His screens were sufficient. He moved the HUD from his missing canopy to his cybernetic eye. They're almost here, boss, Tack said. I'm ready, Elmwax said. He opened the link. Get ready. He turned to the cave, checking the thermals to ensure that nobody was near. He used a laser to slice through the beam at the entrance and collapsed. He fired a single particle beam cannon into the cliff face just above and collapsed the entrance, bringing more rock down. Boss! Boss! What are you doing? Cricket said. Stay safe. Go into the shelter. Well, shut the doors behind you. Someone will come and help you. Olmwax said. You were a faithful employee, Cricket. Thank you, boss, Cricket said. Ulmoak cut the link, turning to facing the far side of the quarry, where the switchback let down into it. Follow me, we'll join the Terrans, and there, Ulmoak said, there, they will witness us, and we will witness them. His five cohorts followed him, waiting as he used lasers on the last of the ammunition parts, reducing everything to wreckage. They're coming, boss, Tack said. The sky was full of traces and puffs of explosions, Metal fragments had started falling from the sky. Ulmoak led his comrades to the large parking lot, which had once held hauler trucks, cargo lifts, executive cars, and factory worker buses. Now, there was only half a dozen Terran vehicles, all of them firing skyward. Ulmoak wished he had a comlink for the Terrans, but pushed that away. Wishes were for children. Together, they stood and faced the direction that the machines would be coming in from. Destroy the buildings, Ulmoak ordered. Together, the last six pilots of the arena reduced the buildings to slag, using lasers and particle beams. Boss, here they come, Tack said. The machines swarmed out of the wreckage and through the alleys. There was no time to talk. The six pilots fired missiles, boring them into the oncoming machines. Short-range missiles for the rushes, long-range to hammer the oncoming ranks. Lasers and particle beams shrieked and thundered through the air. For every precursor Ulboak and his comrades killed, twenty more or a hundred more filled the gap. Slowly, the machines gained ground, coming closer and closer. The Terran vehicle's ammo ran dry and Ulboak ordered them over his loudspeakers, which was entertained the crowd with so long ago, to retreat. He used a phrase that he had heard the Terrans say on the tribad. Get out of here, boys. There's nothing you can do. The two Terran vehicles stayed. Laser point defense vehicles, their lasers raking the long-range missiles out of the sky. As the precursor machines advanced, now onto the tarmac of the parking lots, pushing past the wreckage of the public transit buses, the missiles got closer and closer, a waterfall slowly overwhelming the defenses of the Terran vehicles. The precursors were close enough to fight back. Battle screens flared and rippled as lasers and cannon shells pried at them with deadly fingers, looking for some way in. Etel Al-Nanak went down first, a heavy cannon shot blowing through his falling and already damaged battle screen. The liquid stream of explosively forged penetrated, hitting the dead center of his cockpit and exiting from the back of a fan of liquid metal. 
Alwak opened up his autocannons, going to maximum fire rate, ignoring the heat warnings, breaking the encroaching line of vehicles with armor-piercing discarded sabo rounds, sweeping it back and forth. His missile bays ran empty. He slammed the protective cover shut. One of the Terran vehicles exploded. The missile salvo started landing on the side, blowing Nikleem apart as his mech took an entire volley of heavy missiles. Elboak avenged his last pilot with a trio of particle beams and stomped the overheating override and kept firing. Boss, we're going to get overrun, Tack yelled. Yes, Elboak answered. A warborg pulled its way free from the Terran wreckage, grabbing a slightly intact four-barrel point defense gun, plunging it into power cable into his leg, and opening fire, laying two-centimeter laser fire into the oncoming precursors. Almwak added his own fire, sweeping across the still-advancing metal horde. Boss, on our right, Tack called out. The other Terran vehicle blew up. Almwak turned seeing more precursor vehicles rush out, firing as they came. Alwak couldn't stem the tide as the sudden rush let them overwhelm the Swinthal's battle screen and pour fire into them. The precursors were on them. Alwak was aware the Terran Warwalk fighting, still firing the point defense gun like it was a sidearm, the beam bright with the eye watering when he was swarmed over. Wokstal went down next, screaming, Witness me! As a crab-like precursor machine swarmed up his body, tearing off his armor and lasers firing from their mouths. Ulmwak heard him scream, turn and washed over the downed mech with plasma, cutting off Wokstal's scream and destroying the crab bots. Alarms went off and the battle screens went down. Back to back, Blunktikits yelled. My battle screens are down. Almuak took two steps back, feeding his armor thud against hers. Together, they fired, breaking the precursor machines who attacked them as if they were insane, swarming over the smoking wreckage of their own dead as their eagerness to get the last two warriors fighting back to back. Boss, we're out of ammo and we're overheating. We have to withdraw, Tack yelled. We've got like three autocannon rounds left. Goodbye, Tack. You were faithful. Ulwak said, slapping the red button that he had helped wire into the cockpit. Boss, no! What are you do Don't, don't, what, what, what? Tack vanished, the automatic maintenance transfer sending him into his own survival core. The transmitter went live, sending Tack to a spare survival core that Ulmonak had prepared. A survival core that by now would be being delivered to his uncle. I will see my podling soon, Balankatuk grasped. My mech is going to shut down. We're going to pull me from the cockpit and pull me apart. Face me, Ulmwak ordered, when he could see Punkadut's cockpit on his reticle on his left at his arm. Join the podlings without pain, old friend, Ulmwak said. Punkadut's mech stood up straight, precursor machines crawling up its torso and legs. He knew that she was raising her chin in defiance as she dropped her arm. Ulmwak fired the last three Gorto cannon rounds. Heat flushed through the cockpit of Plunkatuk's mech tipped over backwards, atomizing metal and streaming from the back of the bash mech like blood. Almoak extended the sword and started laying around him, firing lasers, PPC smashing the precursor machines underfoot. As he fought, he activated his data link. His uncle face appeared in his cyber eye. I'll be with you soon, uncle, 
was all he said before terminating the link. The precursors were crawling on him as a barrage of missiles got past his overworked point defense and EW. His mech shuddered and stepped back, the overheated gyro seized. Alwak landed on his back, feeling something snap between his torso and his body. He couldn't feel his legs, his mech's power failed, the heat was baking him and he could smell his own flesh and hair burning. At least, he couldn't feel it. He opened the comlink. Trucker, come in trucker, he gasped. His lower lungs weren't working, he could feel blood oozing up in the long throat. Come in trucker. Something was prying off his makeshift armor. Trucker, come in, trucker, he gasped, pulling the needler out from where he kept it under his pouch. With another hand, he pulled a handful of narco stems out and injected them into his chest. Come in, trucker. The armor screamed as it bent. Trucker here, is that you, Omoak? The armor bent far enough for a red-eyed tentacle with graspers to try and slide in. Omoak fired the needler, smashing the eye. It was able to breathe, barely, without pain. Yes, do it. Do what? Trucker said. Atomics, do it, Omoak gasped. Can't help us. Do it. Trucker dropped the line, and Umoak slapped the engine start button twice, shooting two more precursors that tried to get in. His mech started, and he struggled to his feet, and what looked like a metal octopus ripped away the canopy. The damaged laser still packing enough of a punch to blow the precursor machine off the front of his cockpit, even if it blistered his flesh and burnt away his hair. He was blind in his front eye, so he turned his head, using his mechanical eyes. He kept firing, not screaming, just shooting. Even as the precursor smashed his weaponry, he kept fighting. Even when the chainsaw bound up and shattered like the chassis of the precursor mech twice of wax size. He was still shooting when the precursor pulled his torso out of the cockpit, his lower body staying in the straps, when the world went white. Recall Memo with the regulars earned battle standard and awards due to the defense of Hulamanga Industrial Facility Shelters. A review after action is completed. Burlo 31673 SCR in on-site reports that shelters are intact and sealed. Nothing follows. Hulagana Industrial Facility Destroyed Yesterday, the criminal Ulmoak detonated an industrial facilities fusion reactor, destroying the executor and corporate security who had been defending it from the precursor threat, destroying the Hulanga industrial facility and the shelters both. Tune in later for the official Kestimate Corporation Office of Public Affairs statement. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 49 the streets were full of smoke. Random debris swirled around in the wind. Corpses torn apart and left scattered. Destroyed precursor drones and rubble that had spilled from where buildings had collapsed. The entire city was full of sounds, explosions, and high-pitched thrumming and screaming from energy weapons. The roar of rockets and missiles and the waning of frightened trapped in the buildings and huddling in the rubble. That had grown so loud that it could even be heard over the combat between the Terran military and the precursor machines. A little Talcon ran with short little legs, her fur filthy and matted, her huge eyes wide and watering with tears, her tunic torn and filthy. A ragged, tattered doll held tightly in her body, even as though it was missing an arm. She was crying as she ran, terror pushing her exhausted body further down the street. 
her broodmother's words echoing through her mind. Run, Podling, don't look back. The warm, soft, good-smelling and loving broodmother had yelled to little Tolkien as the machines had bit and stung, crashed through the window and into the little store that they had been hiding inside. She ran past the bodies, her little brain editing them out, running past the fires burning in the street, past the holes in the ground, climbing over rubble and sobbing as she'd been told. Run! She wanted her mother, her father, who brood mothers, the others, but all she had was Mr. Kukuk, her stuffy, and her brood mother had told her, screaming in the pinchy machines, Run! Her soft feet were bleeding from cuts where rubble had sliced into her delicate walking pads. But still, she kept going, crying, scrambling, holding tight to Mr. Kikik as she ran. She scraped her knee and got up running. She cut her hand, scrambling up the rubble and kept running. She burst up from the hole in the ground, scorching her fur. But she didn't stop. Run! She came to a stop, screaming when the huge metal snake, as wide as the street, crashed through the building, little pieces of rubble bouncing around her as she ducked and covered her head with one arm, screaming. The snake was twisting in the street when she saw it had hundreds, thousands of legs. It held something in its mouth, with its big pinches, something that was struggling. She screamed, knowing it was going to hurt it, knowing that the many-legged snake was bad. She turned to run and saw them. Pinchies. She looked around wildly, looking for a way out. There was only walls on either side, Pinchies running at her on spider legs, and the huge snake thrashing around. Kill you, skin you, eat you. A voice roared through the translator necklace that she wore. She screamed, crouching down, holding Mr. Kukuk tight, covering her head with one arm. She was sure the pinchies yelling it. The snake crouched down behind her and screamed again, staring at pinchies running at her. You aren't nothing. She heard a roar from behind her. Her necklace translated this. Eat this. There was an explosion behind her. The pinchies were halfway at her when she turned to look behind her. A big metal man was standing up, breaking the pinchies holding on to him, bigger than Daddy, with his two arms and two legs and his head and two eyes just like her Daddy. No tendrils or weird faces, just a flat face. He didn't have soft fur, not like Mommy or Brood Mommy or Daddy. He was made of black metal and his eyes were a bright glowy green. Christ, kid, look out! The big metal man yelled, raising his arm. She screamed and turned around and ducked, covering her head, curling over Mr. Kikik, holding him tight with his sore arm. There was a thrumming noise, a loud noise, like when the food heaty she wasn't allowed to play with was on, and she felt heat on her head and made her fur crinkle and made her get all wet and gross and sweat. She saw the pinchies get touched by the blue flickering light of the white core, the flickering light making them pop with the bright flashes. She heard the studding footsteps as a big metal man moved in front of her, his hand cocking back strangely, and the blue light coming from the tube sticking out of his palm. She wondered if it had hurt his hand pad. She looked away, and then light hurting her sensitive eyes. The light stopped, and she opened her eyes and looked up. 
The big metal man was looking down at her, and she saw the metal man had tears in his metal skin like she had in her tunic, silver fluid like the red blood that filled her scrapes and ran into her fur on her arms and legs, filled up the tears in the metal skin. A big knife was sticking out of his arm, and as she watched, slid back inside with a snap. You okay, kid? The big metal man asked. She nodded, her eyes wide as she stared at him. Where are your parents? The metal man asked. The pinchies got my brood mommy, the little girl said, starting to snuffle again. She yelled at me to run, so I ran, and for as fast as I could, she sobbed. The pinchies chased me. You're okay, kid. Let's find somewhere safe for you, the metal man said, looking up. This is Char 3381. Does anyone read me? This is Char 3381. Does anyone read me? Who are you talking to, she asked. Is Char your name or is it your number? It's a funny name. The metal man looked down. You can hear that? Yes, the little girl said, hugging Mr. Kikiki close. The metal man turned around and knelt down. Can you see the back of my head? The little girl stood there on her tiptoes. Yes, I think you have a pinchy stuck in it. The big metal man tried to reach back of his head, but wasn't quite able to reach it. He gave a sigh. Honey, I need you to climb on my back, okay? He said and sat down. Okay, the little girl said. Her snuffles were stopping. She climbed up and standing on his legs, pulling herself up. She whined a little when her arm hurt. Now what? Can you pull the piece of metal out of my head? He asked. She wrapped her paw around it and tried to squeeze and stopped. It's sharp. You're really hot. Do metal men get sickies? No, we don't. All right, he sighed, looking around. I'm not even sure where I am. My GPS is out. Oh, she said. Climb down and set on the big rock in the street. I'm lost too. Lost my rifle too. Auto cannons empty. Out of mass. Overheating and slushed out. Battle screens down. The big metal man stood up. And half my onboards are out. He turned around looking at her. Why aren't you in a shelter? She shrugged. Mama tried. The people at the shelter told us that we belonged in the street and called my mama a bad name. She started sobbing. We walked away and in the crowd was hoping to get into a different one and there was a really loud bangs from trucks with people and mommy always said to do what they say. People started screaming. Rude mommy grabbed me and we ran. She held tight onto Mr. Kukuk. There was a loud noise and everyone, even mommy and daddy and other brood mothers and the other podlings, all popped like balloons when the light touched them. There was a light coming from some big trucks. Digital H, Christ kid, the big metal man said. I'm sorry. The little girl sobbed and hugged Mr. Kikik harder. Brood mommy hid us in a store, even though she had a bad thing and broke the window with a rock. We've been in there during the noise, even when the big light came. The big metal man knelt down. You've been in that shop for five days. Have you even eaten? Little girl nodded. Brood mommy fed me. She ran out of milk yesterday, though. I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. The little girl looked up, tears coming from her large, expansive eyes. I want my brood mommy. It's okay, kid, the big metal man said. I've got you. What's your name? Podling, she said. We don't have names yet. Can you eat regular food or only brood mommy milk? The big metal man asked, standing up and looking around. I can eat big people food. I'm almost old enough to have a name, she said, looking up. There, we can get you something to eat there. 
the big metal man said, pointing at a shop. The little girl looked at front of the shop and shook her head. There's no potling sign. That's for masters. Not today, kid. You're with me, the big metal man said. He took a couple steps and stopped. Oops, that's not good. What? The little girl looked around. The metal man moved closer to a big car, an important kind that mommy said to always look out for, and grabbed the door and ripped it open with a scream of metal. Get in, kid. Hurry, the metal man said. Sit in the back in the middle of the seat and don't look. The potling nodded. Hurrying up, she sat on the seat and buckled her seat harness. Don't look. Look down. Don't look, sweetie, the big metal man said and closed the door. She could hear the wailing coming. The wailers screamed and ran down the street, some breaking windows, some hitting people, others throwing rocks. She didn't know why they wailed. They just did. She saw them ripping at each other's clothing sometimes, still wading. Even masters were part of the wailers. They were all blackened and owies all over, their hair falling out and icky sores on their faces. The wailing got louder and she covered her ears, bending over and squeezing her eyes tight. Get off me, don't touch me, get your slimy hands off me, the metal man roared. Glass broke, making her eyes open and some landed in her feet. She closed her eyes, squeezing them shut. She heard metal crunch, heard screaming and terrible noises. The wailing got so loud it hurt her ears. And still, the metal man yelled at them to stop touching him, to get off of him, to keep their hands to themselves. There was banging on metal, more glass broke, and it felt like someone was jumping on the car. Then, the wailing slowly faded away. It was quiet for a second and the door opened. She squeezed her eyes shut. Don't look, honey. I'll have to pull the roof off a bit, but don't look, okay? The man said. I won't, I promise she said. Okay, be good, he said. She heard metal screech and could smell the air. It smelled like blood. She felt a harness unclick and the metal man lifted her up. His hands and arms were really hot. Are you sicky? She asked. No, sweetie, just overheated, the metal man said. Keep your eyes closed. Hold on to your doll. He's Mr. Kikik, the potling said. Hold on to Mr. Kikik, the metal man said. He started walking, then running. It felt like she was flying, being held by the metal man as he ran through the streets. He suddenly stopped and there was a noise of glass breaking and metal tearing. She was carefully set into a chair. Okay, sweetie, you can open your eyes. She looked around. It was a food store where masters and important people that you did what they said would eat. The big metal man had moved over to the food dispenser and ripped open the front of it. It's Nutri-Paste, he said getting a pour out from the broken machine into a big bowl. You're gonna be in trouble, she said. I don't want you to be in trouble. I'm already in trouble, the metal man said. Okay, the little potling said, and started slurping down the nutri-paste. It didn't taste like anything, but it made her tummy feel better. The metal man moved under the water that was falling from a pipe, standing in the water. Pieces popped up and hissed as he saw the stream start to come off of him. She chewed on the little bowl to ease the ache in her gums, watching. After the big pieces closed again and the big metal man came over. We need a move, kid, the metal man said. The precursor's all over the place. We need to get out of the city. I'm hurt inside and I can't use my slush. Can't run diagnostics. Will a hug help? She asked. Brood mommy would hug her when she was scared. The metal man didn't have a brood mommy with him. It won't hurt, kid, the metal man said. 
She grabbed his thick leg and hugged it, feeling how warm it was and liking how it vibrated. She let go and looked up. Will you carry me? she asked. The metal man nodded, picking her up and Mr. Kikik. She went out into the street and started running. She felt like she was flying again as they ran. He kept dodging around the stuff that loomed out of the smoke, jumping over some of it. The popling suddenly felt embarrassed. Metal man, she said. Yes, sweetie, he metal man said. I pooped myself. I'm sorry, she said. She rubbed her fur and some came off. Her skin was red looking and hurt. My fur's coming off. You'll be all right. It's rad sick. I'll get you to the medics and they'll patch you up. The metal man said. Somehow, he ran faster. He started stumbling and staggering and poddling looked up at him. His green eyes glowing in the dark were fixed ahead. Are you all right, Mr. Metal Man? The podling asked. The goo around my thinky stuff is running out. I'm leaking, kid. The metal man said. Medics, get you to the medics, he said. His voice barely audible over the sounds of the war-torn city. They kept moving, the metal man lurching to the side, getting warmer and warmer. The metal man suddenly stopped pushing the podling under a car. No come out, no look, he said. He stood up and she heard it. The monster... Here, here, right here, he yelled. There was a crash. Three, three, two, infantry, the mental man roared. There was a bright light, blue, and more light, and then some of it red, some of it green. Kill you. A giant hand hit the street next to the burnt-out car, and the podling closed her eyes, holding tight Mr. Kikik. Skinned you. There was another crash, a loud shriek, and only a clap of thunder hurt the podling's ears. Eat you. The metal man bellowed. There was a heavy crash, then silence. The car suddenly flipped over and the podling screamed, looking up. The metal man stood there. His head was smashed. One eye popped out and dangling from wires. His body looked smashed. Wires poking out from the coop leaking out. Podling. The metal man rumbled. The podling held up her arms. The kick in hand. The metal man reached down, picking up the podling. The podling noticed that the big knife was broken. Part of it bent away from the metal man's head. Medics, the metal man said, his voice squeaking at the end. He cradled her close and started running. She looked behind her. There was another metal man, all brown metal covered in holes. Its head twisted off and burning hold of its back. One foot was kicking, but it didn't move. It was really big. Podling, the metal man said as they ran through the smoke. Yes, Mr. Metal Man, the little girl asked. Sick, medic, run, he said. Yes, Mr. Metal Man, brood mommy said run, she said, and hugged the metal man's arm, feeling how hot it was. His chest was warm too, just like brood mommy's. Run, the metal man said. They kept running through the streets, around the burning cars. Sick. Medic. The bottling hugged the metal man. Goo had oozed out of him. Some red, some pink, some silver, some blue. Bottling. Sick. Medic. He kept repeating as he ran. She hugged him, arm tight. When she threw up on him, still hugged him, willing him to be okay. Willing the hug to make him all better. The metal man stopped, looking down with one green eye. He put a hand up and fired out a bright blue beam once, twice, three times. The howl of a vehicle sounded, the vehicle coming closer. The metal man shot once, twice, three times again, straight up into the air. 
The vehicle landed. More metal men jumped out. They were flashing red lights on their shoulders. Bottling, the man said, the word drawing out like a moan. The vibration stopped. She looked up. His eyes were dark. The new metal men ran up, red shapes on their chests. They had to pull Mr. Metal Man's arm away, and they took her to the flying vehicle. She cried. She reached out to the metal man. As the vehicle went up in the air, she cried out for him. As they stuck a needle tube in her arm, she struggled, holding on to Mr. Kikik as they put a mask on her face. Reaching out while the metal man on this vehicle rose into the air. He stood in the middle of the intersection, unmoving, the smoke swirling around him, and he was gone. She came there often, after she was named, after she grew up, she had looked it up, where Lance Corporal Char 3381 of the Terran Confederation Marine Corps had finally died. She would stand on that corner, staring at the middle of the street as the ground cars went by. She never forgot him, even when her patchy fur turned grey, even when her whiskers drooped, even when her own podlings podlings had to help her go there, and she took Mr. Kikik with her every time. Terran Confederate Marine Corps, Lance Corporal Char 3381, posthumously awarded the Marine Silver Star for actions above and beyond the call of duty. Char 3381, severely wounded, carried an orphan Talcan potling suffering from radiation poisoning beyond the city of Sheraman, signaling a passing medical evac unit to the potling's distress. During his travels, he engaged two super-heavy precursor infantry units, upholding his duty, defeating them single-handedly in defense of the potling. Despite a cracked brain case, despite being out of neural fluid, he kept moving, and by his valor and actions, the Talcum Podling was evacuated from the city. Lance Corporal Char 3381 was pronounced dead on scene. His body was recovered, and the tissue remains were buried with all Marine Corps honors on terror. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 50 the evening was cool, slightly chilly and damp. The rain pattered down through the trees. Starleaf oaks, sector spruce, and western red cedar, blue oak, Douglas fir, and the western hemlock hemmed off the small clearing that rain drizzled down through the canopy. The trees were all thick trunks, high branches, water-filled holes covered in moss and vines. Ferns covered in the ground, shining with the pattering of water falling from the sky. A creek burbled over the moss-covered grey rocks, little fish moving around the slow, wider spots and tumbled on its way to the ocean. Up in the branches, a little creature swung, dimly happy, moving from branch to branch with strong tentacles backed up by claw-scented suckers. Its toppled brown and green shifted pattern as it moved. The rings on the tentacles and around its eyes were dark blue, almost black, as it let go of the branch and on to catch to the next, swinging back and forth. Hidden in the trees and ferns were two large biped freakies of three meters tall, covered in shaggy hair with flat brownish faces, large eyes, large hands, bigger feet. They stood motionless, almost hidden by the vines and the tree trunks, looking over the strange creature in the middle of the glade. 
Sitting below on a rock was a gold mantis roughly three feet tall when she stood up. She had on a little hat, known as a beret, between her antennae, behind her compound eyes. At the back of her triangular head were cyponetic implants, shiny chrome, with lights that blinked and changed colors. She had four arms, the top two had them bladed and from the wrist down, the lower two ending in six-fingered hands with opposable thumbs on each side of the hand. She wore a black, real leather jacket, me of the terror itself, with chrome link chains and spikes on it and the buttons made of steel. Over her abdomen, she had a colorful blanket full of triangles, making up a geometric pattern including one that looked like bears and eagles and wolves. She had the omni-translator around her neck on the beaded chain and a bluish gold from a place called Black Hills, North Dakota. She was using one of her blade arms to toy with as she read from the scroll in her hands. The scroll was more modern than its looks would make one believe. It looked like a brownish papyrus with black metal engraving caps on each end of the two rolls and a gold tassel on the caps. The part that she was viewing was a flexible LED screen, allowing her to look over important documents as she sat in her favorite spot in her favorite EVR sim, dressed in clothing that made her feel indulgent going over the day's work. A broken, woolly snail shell fell from the tree branches, landing in the creek and she felt a flutter of pleasure that Mr. Rings had found one of the treats that she had hidden to encourage him to exercise. The current document that she was reading was yet another complaint regarding the Terran Confederate Space Force that was neatly summed up as, You can't do that, which was accompanied by a second greatest hit, Stop doing that. Her meal time was three hours past. The time taken up by meetings just repeated the complaints that landed in her inbox, she reached down in the ink pot and flat rock next to her, picked up a paintbrush and painted her initials on the document. She carefully put the paintbrush back and then rolled the scroll, bringing up the next document. Stop doing that, she sighed to herself and felt Mr. Ring's tingle of pleasure. He found another Pacific Northwest woody snail. Not synth, not fake, but real ones shipped with great expense of raised in spatial outhouses as treats for people who owned Pacific Northwest tree octopi to feed their beloved pets. Another delicate painting of her initials set down the brush, rolled the scroll. You can't do that. She sighed again as Mr. Rings climbed down to the ball and dunked himself inside, swirling around to wet his skin, then peeked out. He was unaware that the entire thing but his nesting tree, his climbing tree, the snails, his mistress, and the two Sasquatches were all hardline holograms and expensive EVR recordings by some dedicated being who spent hundreds of hours recording that very spot. All he cared about was the yummy treats, branches to swing on and bowls to hide in, and a mistress to pet him. Dream of something more envied him a little. Her implant tingled to let her know that there was someone at the door. She felt better now that the Terran Navy had installed heavier psychic shielding in her quarters. Something about the Lanctalan bugged her to turn the comedic phrase that always made her smile. She didn't know what it was. Maybe it was the way they just seemed like they should be jogging into a Terran slaughterhouse to be made into a Burger Kingdom traditional beef patties for the Firewater, Firearm or Fireworks Day celebrations. 
She'd seen her once, you know. She had gone to the Burger Kingdom, aka North America, to see the slaughterhouses, and they were rare in the galaxy where most people would just eat synthetics. Not the Terrans. Oh no, they wanted meat. Craved it. She watched the whole process, fascinated, as cattle were slaughtered and prepared in the traditional Burger Kingdom way right down to the firing off of the ancient projectile weapons while drinking alcohol and slapping the still bleeding ground meat onto a metal grill over actual fire with one of Bear's hand. She'd done it just to try. The meal had been delicious. She had never told her fellow diplomats except the Mantids just how much she enjoyed the entire vacation. From Bongastan to Urugunia, to Anime Land, to Vodkaville, to Burger Kingdom, all painstakingly recreated from ancient pre-Solnet electronic cloud storage. She knew that there was still an argument over what had been real and what had been some kind of strange joke or hoax. But to her, the whole thing was amazing. She even had gone to an ancient ritual where gigantic combat robots designed to look like ancient Burger Kingdom rulers shouted almost forgotten campaign slogans as they fought one another in the hayfield of the cheering crowd. The winner was blown up and Dollary Doo's rectangular cloth paper, intricately done in green ink, rained from the sky and everyone laughed. She'd reached out her hand and caught a button that flashed. I liked Ike when she tilted it, she pinned it on her beret and the dolly reduced rain down. It was amazing. She found the Terrans wildly confusing but so much fun to be around. At times, she had been forced to use her psychic inhibitor, not because she might accidentally brush someone's mind, but from the sheer violent glee and overwhelming joy that the Terrans exuded in every moment. Dreams of something more had even learned the ancient art of Eurogoon stuffed crust ballroom dancing, vodkaville squat kick and fall dancing, burger clatter square barn dancing, and lit fire bass beat hip hop dancing. She was secretly proud of her ability to imitate the mechanical mentor on the dance floor. The chime sounded against and she giggled at the thought of performing the traditional dancing android moves to greet the guest, but she wasn't sure if there would be a unified humor council or not. She turned down the rain and wind, rolled up the scroll and set it beside the paintbrush with a little palette of paint and then sighed again and unlocked the door. It was past duty hours. She was hungry. Dreams of something more almost groaned when she saw it was the Langtalan, mournful-looking, wearing a cloth wrapped around its body, a sash covered with glittering metals across its torso, its six eyes blinking and four legs, four arms sentient goggled at the room. Mr. Rings climbed down, a furry snail in his tentacle, and hid in the bowler in the nearest tree, pulling the lid closed after him. The Langtalan blew saliva and shook his jowls in the forest scene around him. What is this? it demanded. Dreams felt her implosion wired tingle as the thought of dropping from a tree branch, landing on the Langtalan's back and cracking open his brain case, then preparing a traditional Terran meal of two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and sesame seed bun, while screeching out the Terran hunter traditional war cry. Where's the beef? It's a relaxation hologram, hard light, and 64K resolution Tri-D with advanced DVR, Dreams told the male Langtalan. What are those? He asked, pointing at the two big feet with shaking hand. Pacific Northwest Sasquatch, 
kind and gentle creatures that prefer a diet of beef jerky and rainer beef, which they brew in the tree stumps. They are harmless unless provoked by malicious pranksters, Dream said. In reality, they're actually my warborg gods beneath a hard-like construction to maintain the illusion. They smell disgusting, Langland said, blowing saliva out of his jowls. Dreams was a fastidious female by nature, and something about the way the Langtonlein just blew saliva or spit out, chewed on cud on the floor disgusted her. Still, decades of political statesmanship allowed her to keep her disgust from showing. It looked at her. What are the ridiculous garb you're wearing? Says the cow in a wrap and sash, Dreams thought to herself. It's the traditional garb of the Terran Burgerland politicians from the 20th century. Pre-Dysporia, she said. She reached down and picked up two objects from under the ferns from her grasping hands. One was a chrome chain made of pin-connected links, and the other was a knife handle with a chrome button. They went door to door like this and rewarded voters for their votes with money, alcohol, and pornography. She pressed the button and the sharp blade popped out. They also stabbed people who voted for other candidates as a friendly, disapproving gesture. She looked at the chain and fought against other politicians in donor cycle chain fights behind eating facilities, entertainment centers, or in the parking lots on ground cars. They also danced a lot while their supporters hit the other politicians' supporters with signs. It hardly looks dignified, the talking cow said. Dreams was thinking about the delicious, delicious traditional Terran meal, her implosion wire tinkling, and she pushed the thought away promising herself she'd gorge on the flame-seared meat later. What's the problem, if I may ask? Dreams asked. She queried her implant. Third highmost of the Unified Military Council, her implant warned. Ah, nuts, she thought to herself. Your vaunted military forces refuse to accept proper command hierarchy and submit themselves to the authority of the Unified Military Council, it spluttered. Mr. Rings peeked out curiously, barely showing his eyes from between the round wood of the bowler and the moss-covered wooden hatch. Where, in our office support against the precursors, did the government of the Terran Confederacy state that we would turn our forces over to your command? Dreams asked mildly. She felt Mr. Rings' curiosity and kept one tenor on him. The last thing she needed was for Mr. Rings to mistake the bloviating fool for a deer. The tree octopi could live for months on seasoned deer meat. He snorted and snuffled, and Dreams knew that he was looking over the 16,000-page document, written entirely in Terran legalese. I will wait, Dreams said, slowly swinging the chain back and forth like she was seeing the politicians in the Terran historical tripods do. It had a calming effect on her, feeling the heavy durochrome chain swing, the weight of it, the way the pin-connected links moved, the faint feel of the light hair grease on it. The question of who has command over the military forces facing the precursors must be answered, the Langtalan insisted. How about you show me the mill-spec vehicle, then we'll talk, Dreams thought to herself. As per Terran Confederacy Military Uniform Code of Justice, Terran forces are commanded solely by Terran Confederacy military officers duly appointed to such duties. While Terran military forces may work jointly with other governments or species, command is always held by the highest-ranking Terran military armed service member. She pinged the lawyer and waited a second. 
The Lankaland's knees buckled and its eyes crossed as the appropriate legal codes, case documentation, case precedents, and legal arguments crossed from the cyber barristers to his email and to his implant. The Lankaland gave a low, mooing noise of pain as the data link heated up. Finally, he looked up, its knees shaking. My office will look over this, he said. I'll be back. Is that a threat? Greems wondered. He turned around and trotted out, negligently spitting the chewing up plastic strings and consumed synth cut on the floor. A robot scooted out and grabbed it, disappearing after disinfecting the floor. Dream smelled like her carapace was prickling up and the synth cut splattered on her immaculate floor. She had just opened the menu of what were the dining facilities that delivered to the Unified Council Center had to offer when her door chime opened again. She sighed, closing the app, Mr. Ring's head in the bolo again, munching on a piece of Pacific Northwest woolly salmon-smoked treats. Another Langtalan, this one from the Unified Corporate Council, Dreams took note that this one was no second or third stringer. This was the most high. He looked outraged at the simulation around her. Turn this off at once, he demanded. Make me. Dreams gave out the traditional Terran counteroffer, swinging the chain and holding up a knife handle. If the ancient Terran politicians could do it, so could she, as she was representing the Terran Confederacy. Her implosion wire didn't even tingle. The Lankalan jerked back slightly, then clomped, clomped into the room, daintily moving around the rocks and the moss. It settled down on the moss-covered rock and stared at her. I must object to your lawyers finding so many lawsuits, the Langtalan said. Dreams gave a human shrug. They have passed the legal tests and are registered barristers within all unified civilized systems, as well as non-aligned territories. Object away. They are filing lawsuits on behalf of people who cannot be allowed to file. The being loud. Again, the mantid shrugged. According to your legal system, anyone is allowed to file with proper representation. The barristers do indeed qualify. They are disrupting the natural process, they cried out. That falls under the Terran's call, not my problem. Dream said she knew she was being undiplomatic, but she was getting extremely hungry and the big doofy cow-looking thing was blowing saliva in her vid scroll. You will rue the day, the Langtalan said, standing up. It clattered to the door, only tripping twice before it was gone. Dreams checked her translation. Yes, the Most High of the Unified Corporal Council had actually said Rue to her. She giggled and operated her food app. As she waited, she checked her timer and fed Mr. Rings another woody trout treat, then gently stroked his head. He was nervous after the Langtalana shouted, his rings bright blue, flush with neurotoxin. It's okay, Mr. Rings. Mommy made the bad cow go away. She clicked to it. She sighed, checking her appointment calendar. Six meetings, two council sessions, and three appointments were all slated for tomorrow. She regretted to do it, but the Langtalan ambassadors and council beings kept interrupting her constantly in what she suspected was some form of dominance games. She triggered by appointment only and waited for her food, holding Mr. Rings on her lap and petting her cool, wet skin. When this is over, I'm going to take a long vacation. Maybe go see hate anvils of Mars and the wrath forges of Mercury, she thought to herself. She changed her clothing into a comfortable four-armed kimono from the ancient empire of corporate Japan, LLC. 
swapped out her beret for a hat made of carefully crinkled foil to let people know that she wasn't interested in opinions or thoughts or conspiracies or diplomacy, and settled back down, rolling up the scroll and tucking her tools into a hidden drawer. The door signal chimed and the RFID system showing that it was a food delivery. She triggered the door and the Lanclan came in, holding four containers of food. It looked at her, looked around and then at her again. Tasty stuff, Pakaruguru, food delivery for dreams for something more, it asked. I am she, dreams said. She should have been surprised, she should have, but she didn't even twitch an eyebrow as the Lanclan dropped her food, jammed her hand into a pouch and squealed in pain as it cut the wrong thumb and bent backwards and tried again with its thumb in its mouth. It yanked out the shield the disruptor pistol, raising it up. Death too started rumbling around its thumb and dropped the pistol. It hit a hard light boulder, caught the twig and went off, and hit the thumb-sucking Lanclan in the chin, blowing its head off all over the ceiling. Alarms didn't start waning and dreams looked around, tapping her antenna thoughtfully just above her own eyes. She did her best to hold back the snickering, but eventually she gave in and burst into a manted equivalent of laughter. Interesting, wouldn't you say, Rack? Pinion? She asked when she got her laughter under control. No alert, Rack growled from behind her. No alarms, Pinion rumbled. Reconfigure dual protection, Dream said. Light anti-vehicle, anti-armor, point defense, and anti-personnel. Discreet and precision weapons only, boys. I mean you, Pinion, she chided. Yes, ma'am, they both said and went silent again. It was nearly twelve minutes until the alarm went off. Honestly, Dreams was glad the would-be assassin had spilled her food. Worse, his splattered brains were smelling better and better every minute. One of the lawyers brought her some of its meal. Raw, bloody meat soaked in the tears and wrapped in the paper detailing of defeat of arrival. The lawyer sat with her as the council lawsec went over her apartment and two menials carried out the body as three more stood on chairs to clean the brains and bones and flesh off a ceiling. Of course, they tried to bug her apartment, and of course, they were terrible at it. Mr. Rings found it and broke it open, hoping for a treat. Then he was huffy until dreams modified him with a woody trout treat. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.